This episode of How To Wrestling was requested by Christopher Hollandshead, one of our lovely backers at patreon.com forward slash howtowrestling, where you can support the show and access lots of exclusive content. This episode is sponsored by our super pals over at Foam Hammer Games, who bring you Book It, the pro wrestling promoter card game. Ever dream of putting together your own wrestling promotion? Have you got innovative ideas to disrupt pro wrestling and make your wrestling expert friends squirm with embarrassment? Book It puts you in charge of your roster, wrestling style, and promotional tactics, gain an underground following with deathmatch specialists, or go for mainstream appeal with hunks of all shapes and sizes. It's been designed by someone with over 10 years experience in wrestling, with beautifully designed artwork, and it's available from foamhammergames.com. It ships worldwide, and as a listener of this show How To Wrestling, you get $5 off with the code HOWTO at checkout. We've had so, so much fun playing together and with friends, and we know you will too. Check out Book It, but for now, get ready to style and profile. It's how to Ric Flair. friend and welcome to another episode of How To Wrestling, the world's first podcast detailing how to wrestling, how to get into wrestling, how to understand wrestling, and goodness knows maybe, woo, how to enjoy wrestling. Hello once again, it's me, your old pal Cowboy Kevin, styling and profiling into a new decade with my better half, the ever-curious, ever-learning Joe Graham. Hello. Joe, are you ready to learn about the 16-time world champion and apparently one of the greatest wrestlers who's ever graced this earth? Oh, it's 16 times. 16 times. I totally misheard that Hall of Fame speech they did. I thought they said 60 times. 60 times. Wow, that's amazing. (laughs) I mean... The fact, though, that you didn't question that and you thought, no. yeah, sounds about right. Yeah. Like, you know? <laughs> <laughs> if anyone could do it, it's Ric Flair. Now, there's obviously episodes we do where it's someone who's super duper important. I would definitely put them in the category of people like, you know, Bret Hart and Stone Cold and, you know, some of these big names that we've done. He is someone who you would have heard a bit about on the podcast before, both yeah. here and over on Patreon, where, if you don't know, Joe and I review all the pay-per-views, AEW, WWE, and otherwise, since 2015 SummerSlam. Mm-hmm. But you had seen a bit of Rick in your time, had you I've, not? I've seen a bit of Rick, yeah. He's popped up in a couple of other episodes. I'm trying to think which ones we've done now. I'm he, so bad at remembering. pretty sure he was in one of the War Games matches uh, that we did. He was in long matches with Sting. He was that, definitely in long matches with Sting. That's the one I, I will never forget. That was an eye-opener, that one. That yeah. kind of not only changed my kind of course of of what episodes I think you would get enjoyment out of but mm. it certainly made me think that 80s wrestling and that style was, was something that you enjoy a bit more yeah I'm trying to think he has definitely appeared oh on... yeah he's appeared in countless episodes he was also in the Mr. Perfect episode and I believe you enjoyed that match a lot Bob, yeah yeah Bobby Heaton and a Hammer great match yeah Bobby Heaton <laughs> and a Hammer yeah and I believe he showed up as well in the Macho Man episode oh yeah and he also showed up, not in a match, but showed up being crazy with Sherry in that episode as well. Yes. But you probably knew him first as the manager of erstwhile women's champion Charlotte Flair. Mm-hmm. How was that for you as a first introduction to the Nature Boy? Yeah, he didn't come across well at all. I hated Rick Flair. I was just going through some old <laughs> tweets. And my God, that whole kiss with Becky... No, people have Ooh. all forgotten about that. I know. Ever since he had this whole near-death scandal. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about like Becky Lynch before she was the man, and mm-hmm. Ric Flair like kind of before 
everyone was really thinking that he was going to pass away and like it's been a roller coaster with Rick Fair, let's just say but people don't remember that maybe like you yep. too <laughs> what was the context of it again I don't even remember I think so he was he was Charlotte's manager and just randomly out of the blue I remember him grabbing Becky and giving her a kiss I think there was some distraction technique yep. for the match he was being a heel and he wanted to <laughs> His classic heel tactics be a sex offender be a sex offender yeah uh, I'm, I'm not really sure how that was supposed to work it was meant to shock and delight the crowd I think right delight yeah. them sure it actually brings up to another point another place where Ric Flair had appeared definitely was in the plane ride from hell which we discussed at length yeah, yeah. In, a, in a few episodes gone past didn't he just wander around naked he sure did and Joe thought that was one time could you believe it <laughs> Now, we have watched a lot of Ric Flair stuff. When it comes to like a very important topic, we usually tend to, to watch quite a lot, you know, and Rick, I think, is probably, I can say, the contender for the wrestler who we've watched the most stuff for. Why do you think that was, that we ended up watching so much Rick stuff? I don't know. Well, I mean, is it because he's very important and he's had such a long career, or is there... I mean, it's not like he's changed massively over the years. I mean, he's certainly gotten older and a bit wilder at times. Yeah, but his character's, like, remained the same. I could go out on a limb here and say that... See, this is difficult for me to say on your behalf, but for me, looking at this stuff... And I only got into Ric Flair probably, like, in my early 20s, because, you know, I didn't watch the WCW stuff as, when I was growing up. But I think he's one of the most entertaining guys to watch ever. Just the promos. I think we've watched, like hours of Ric Flair at various stages of middle age and undress mm. screaming into a camera and like I for me I find that like hypnotic I could watch that forever I don't think I could no no <laughs> he's very entertaining but he's no macho man really like, I find Rick very hard to understand like a lot of the promos you showed me I was kind of like nodding along going yeah great I, I have no idea what he's saying 60 time world champion yeah <laughs> <laughs> now Rick, did he cast a spell on you, though? I mean, like, have you... Would you say... Because, you know, Macho Man was definitely mm. a character you said, like, you know, you, you understood the pro, the promos kind of straight away. It, it, it hit a nerve. Rick, with the high-octane in-ring and the high-octane promos and the high-octane lifestyle, has he kind of wormed his way into your consciousness now? Like, has he had an impact on you, like some of these other big wrestlers we've done? There were two things that we watched that made me love Rick Flair. Mm. There was a video of him versus Jay Lethal where they have a, a promo off this is like the first thing I showed you actually because yeah. you just knew about him as manager very bad guest on Ride Along mm-hmm. very very bad guest on Wife Swap yep. and you know the guy who had a cool couple of great oh Terry Funk there was another great match we had oh, yeah. on the pod see that's great he's had all these great random matches like yeah so you saw the, the woo off and the, the promo between him and Jay Lethal yeah and I loved that because in in that promo off, Jay Lethal does this fantastic impression of Ric Flair. And Ric Flair, you described it as a dog seeing its own reflection <laughs> in the mirror. But he kind of like, he gets so worked up and he starts taking all his clothes off and then elbow drops his clothes. That was the first time he saw Ric Flair attacking his items of clothing. Yeah, and what, I didn't even realise. What realize... is it that he does with that? So for folks who maybe aren't familiar with Ric versus his clothes... Well, he seems to get very excited in his promos mm-hmm. and he'll take all his clothes off and then elbow drop them. <laughs> Have you ever got that kind of feeling at any point in life where you want to take off a jacket and drop a knee on it or no. anything like that? No? no, I've never even fancied doing an elbow drop. <laughs> so, like, was that like eye-opening then, that bit for you with Rick and Jay Lethal? Yeah, kind of. Although I didn't realise 
the I thought he was just getting carried away in the moment and that it was him seeing someone do such a good impression of him kind of made him really excited. I didn't realise this was something he just did often. Yeah, that he often got worked yeah. up. Yeah, it's a regular occurrence where he just undresses. It's very, very interesting to see how much of Rick and his character intersect. I'm going to say, other than Vince McMahon, I don't think there's anyone we've done an episode on where the two people the lines are as blurred yeah. or the Venn diagram is almost a perfect circle. What was the other thing that you said that you saw that made you kind of change your opinion a bit on Rick or fall in love with him a little bit? It was when you showed me a compilation of him talking to Mean Gene. <laughs> mean! Woo! Gene! <laughs> now, I was wondering when we get the Joe Gray and Ric Flair impression. I'm, I'm glad we've gotten it's it now. so bad. It's my worst impression. What is it about... Ric Flair, Mean Gene, and him just saying his name that you were so enamoured with. It was just the way that he did it the same way every time, even though it was like in different cities every time. He's travelling the world and he's saying the exact same thing. But then also he, like every time he somehow is like more enthusiastic and gets more carried away and takes off more items of clothing. Is there something that Rick has... Because you said this a number of times during the promos, even the ones where you didn't know what he was saying. I'm wondering if the Mean Gene ones went down particularly well because you knew he was saying Mean Woo yeah. by God Gene, and then usually the name of a city. But you talked a lot about the recently about the fact that he's looking straight down the camera, mm. and does he like make that connection that other wrestlers fail to guess almost? Yeah, but I think that's a, an element of like that era of wrestling. Mm. Like I think wrestlers at that time even when they were being interviewed by an on-camera interviewer they would direct the answer to the camera Mm. and it's not just rick that would do that macho man would do that the four horsemen would do that like mr perfect would do that bret hart would do that everyone from the 80s was doing that like i mean the style could you imagine terry funk looking down at Charlie Caruso going, I'm going to be the biggest stud around. <laughs> how weird that would be and how it wouldn't connect I with know. you. Like. It's so strange that they do that now. I watched that Mean Gene compilation before I showed it to you and I got goosebumps. And then I showed it to you again. And then I got goosebumps again watching you watch it. I think I lost count about the number of times you got goosebumps during the watching stuff for this episode. <laughs> I'm like, I wouldn't describe myself as being like, Rick Flair's the greatest wrestler of all time, or he's my favorite wrestler of all no, time. Like as far as like wrestlers that we've covered go, this is probably one of the ones you've undersold me the most. How was I underselling you on Rick? Well, just like a lot of other episodes that we've done, like you've kind of made it very clear, like you know this person is you know absolutely the best. They're so so good. I love them. You know I get goosebumps during their matches. Like you never told me any of that beforehand, but like with Rick, you got goosebumps more than I think any other person that we've. <laughs> done an episode on yeah including like owen hart or yeah you know some some wrestlers that are like you know kurt angle that like you're among your favorite ever wrestlers i think rick flair is a wrestler that because of the amount of time that he has been around he very often finds himself in situations on camera where the emotion is getting almost too real Mm. and i don't think that's happened very often with owen hart or kurt angle or i mean even you know mick foley to an extent it's happened with but like there's so very often times where Ric Flair, what you're seeing right there, is pouring his heart and soul out. And it's not a character, it's pretty much him. I think back to that Eric Bischoff episode we did recently, and the absolute like emotion that was pouring out of Rick, which I think, having done the Eric Bischoff episode first, maybe you didn't understand at the time, but mm. I don't think there's anyone who's been as personally affected and it shown 
buy his life in the wrestling business as Ric Flair. Yeah. Because Ric Flair is a product of the wrestling business. Yeah, definitely. You know, that much cannot be said. But what a fucking hype man, though. On the topic of Mean Gene, particularly as well if you're looking at it and thinking that Mean Gene in the older WCW days is my dad. Yeah. And he has to stand there and try not and laugh as he goes, Mean! Woo! Buffalo City! New York! Bagot Gene! <laughs> you can say that for anywhere and you get hyped up. Yeah. You know, woo, mean, woo, baggage. We're in Media City in the Sulphur Keys. We're looking good tonight, Gene. Woo! <laughs> you can say it about anywhere. You know. I mentioned your Rick Flair is very good. Oh, is it? Now? I don't think I've had much opportunity to hear your Rick before. Joe, did I get let you know that when we sold our stock of How to Wrestling, that the consortium. Woo! With me! Which means we're partners! You know how in, when you do an impression of someone, there's like a trigger word that gets you in the, the right accent, yeah. the, right, the right voice? Consortium. It's consortium, <laughs> yeah. The, that trigger word. Or if you strut for five consecutive steps or longer in the house, you know? I'll tell you very often when I do become most Ric Flairish, it's when I come out of the shower. Really? I know not because I'm naked, but because I will pull my hair back. And because you're naked. And because you're naked. It's when you come out of the shower and you, pull, you slick your hair back, yeah. you can't help but strut over and get your towel down. Like you know, and then it's too hot and you flop. Like I'm always too cold after the shower to strut anywhere. You want more like mankind coming out of the shower, like (laughs) tortured. So with Ric Flair, it is very difficult to get a straight up, honest. Here's the man. Here's everything about him. So we tried to cast a wide net. We did watch WWE's now not on the network, assumedly because of the way it features his kids, the Nature Boy documentary, which is what they did in 20, 2008 or nine after he'd retired, mm. which is a full retrospective on his career. It focused a lot on matches and career and stuff. We also watched the ESPN 30 for 30 documentary, yep. also called Nature Boy, yep. which we didn't like necessarily take notes. We would just watch that at the start because I wanted you to understand his emotional state and him as a kind of as a person before we looked at like, he was doing football and, you know, going to WCW. So is there any documentary about Ric Flair on the network now? There is, yes. There's one called Forever the Man, which is an hour long and it's comprised of, like, chopped up bits from this doc and also a few bits. They did a documentary called The Ultimate Ric Flair Collection like, 2004. Okay. Now, Rick has... His viewpoint has changed on stuff a lot, particularly certain people. You know, I, we could talk later about beefs, but there's wrestlers who Rick, like, in 2004 would have said was a piece of shit, who in 2009 would have said are his best friend, who in 2017 he said is a piece of shit again. Mm. So it is hard, and keep in mind, at time of recording, we believe all of these beefs are up to date. <laughs> so I also have read his book, which is probably the most Alan Partridge-like book of all wrestling books I have ever read. Scott Steiner, needless to say, woo! Ah, the last laugh. You know, there's lots, lots in that. Mm. So we'll go through the Nature Boy doc, but I wanted to ask you about that thirty for thirty. If there was any thoughts you had on it, because you did say to me afterwards it was like uh, one of the strongest wrestling pieces you'd ever seen. I just loved the style of it. It was so, so, so well made. They had a fantastic score. The music was really, mm. really good. Like, 
you know, you think about Ric Flair and you think about his entrance and you think about how iconic the music is. We mentioned it in How To Music. Oh, yes, of course. But, so, yeah, the, the, the theme song you refer to, that's the 2001 Space Odyssey theme, yes. says Philistine Kevin. Yeah, um, <laughs> otherwise known as Also Sprach Zarathustra. Whoa, sorry, Also what? Also Sprach Zarathustra. So it is by Strauss. Interesting. I was going to say Also Sprach Zarathustra. Zarathustra mm. is the hardest thing to say yeah. as Ric Flair. Also, Sprag No, it's impossible. <laughs> 2001. Woo! A space odyssey. Uh, the reason he did that as well, 2001 A Space Odyssey, which in case you don't know. As done by the future heads. <laughs> um, he did it because Elvis, when Elvis would take the stage in Las Vegas in his later years, mm. It would start off, it'd be all dark, and then there'd be smoke, lasers, lights, and then he would appear. And you know, Elvis had the embroidered jacket yeah, and all of that. Yeah, course, the sequins and everything. And that was like Elvis's introduction theme. And Flair was, you know, early enough to adopt that as his theme. And he did it because he thought it had the grandeur and the gravitas. But you said in our music episodes, one of the best pieces of music of all time. I genuinely think it is. I think mm. it's absolutely fantastic piece of music. I absolutely love it. It's so, so iconic. Mm. And it suits Rick so perfectly. When you see him come out with his robe and all that glamour. The grandeur. The grandeur, yeah. The, the confidence. The the way he slowly makes his way to the ring with his arms held up high. Like, it's so regal. Yeah, and also it suits him as, like, the younger Rick. As in, this is the, the best wrestler in the world mm. today. Everyone fucking pay homage to the man because he's yeah. so great. But also when he's older, it's like... Pay respect. Look, it's it, there's a grandeur to him being an older wrestler yeah. as well with the music. It fits all those parts. And I think in the documentary, they use some kind of like cello versions of that they and do, stuff. Yeah. Oh, the music fuck. is really, really, really well done. And But that wasn't all I liked about it. Mm. I really liked that they used animations as well. Yeah. There was a moment where they described a plane journey that Rick was in and they had it all animated in this very cool stylized... Yeah, I mean, like using the animation to fill in the blanks of some of the earlier days. Yeah. That was a lot better than looking at the same picture of a Learjet that WWE had, you yes. know, to use in their documentary. So I would say, right off the bat, even though we're going to be going through the WWE Nature Boy documentary, the strongest recommendation whatsoever for that ESPN one. It's it's a genuine... Like, they really get to the heart of Rick. It's one of the best documentaries I've ever seen, I think. They don't pander to him. No, they Because are... a lot of the times at WWE, it's kind of... It feels like they're not yeah. asking him the tough questions. Mm. Whereas there, they're, and we'll get into some of the hardships later on, but they're pretty straight to the point, like, yeah. you know. Rick feels like he has to reflect on a lot of stuff. Before we get into the meat of the matter now, do you view Rick as being a tragic figure? Oh, yeah, definitely. In the same way as that you would have viewed Bret Hart as being a tragic figure? Because we did talk a lot about him being you know, quite a, quite a sad, tragic figure. In a different way. There's, you know, many different ways to be a tragic figure. Like, you know, when you think of wrestling's most tragic figures, you mm. think of those who've, like, whose careers have ended prematurely. Died young. Died yeah. young, exactly. Or had some kind of horrific injury, which meant that they couldn't wrestle. Or, you know, drug addiction. Mm. Or substance abuse. Taken advantage of in some way, like, yeah. you know. I just think of Miss Elizabeth always just oh, strings to mind as kind God, of the, the, yeah. the, the, the tragedy of that. But Rick is definitely a different dimension then. Yeah, he is. And his, the way he's tragic is more sort of self-inflicted. Like mm. the way that he really spent far too much money. He lived the, the gimmick too much. And 
it meant that he had very little to retire on. He's had to keep working well into his 60s. Yeah, so that's the question then. What is the gimmick? What is a nature boy? Because I remember <laughs> legitimately in like 1999 or 2000, my cousin rented like the WCW game on PlayStation because we had beaten, you know, all the, we'd beaten SmackDown or whatever. We thought, oh, it'd be good to see what the competition are doing. And we saw Ric Flair. And you imagine 32-bit late 90s Ric Flair isn't a very good advertisement for Ric Flair. And I was like, who's this old man? Nature boy. What the fuck's a nature boy? And we like did two on one matches to beat him up. Like, you know, he's like, you've got a stupid name. What even is a nature boy? Beat up the old man. Now feel the stumps of Kevin Devil. (laughs) (laughs) So what is, in your estimation, a nature boy? I don't know. What is a nature boy? Does it mean he's naturally gifted? That's what I kind of guessed it meant. I mean, I was maybe limousine riding. What what comes after limousine riding? Kiss stealing, limousine riding. Yep. You've made the mistake now of using two without their rhyming couplets. So you've you've made it hard. So it's... (laughs) Jet flying. Yep. Limousine riding. Yes. Kiss stealing. Yep. (laughs) Gesticulating madly. I'm a wheel. A wheel? What's it supposed to... How about Del Boy? What would Hellboy be doing? Falling through the bar? (laughs) Kiss stealing... Wheeling, dealing, limousine riding, falling through the bar, <laughs> woo! And Trigger made a face. <laughs> Rodney, woo! By God, you're a punker. Um, wheeling, dealing. Oh, of course. I don't really get the wheeling, dealing because he's not. I mean, I associate that with sales yeah. people. He's not in sales. Although I mean, he's a he, wrestler. He would be a hell of a salesman, I think, Ric Flair. Oh yeah. Yeah. He'd be great. But like the, the lifestyle, you're saying that the character influenced him and he had to live this lifestyle. Yep. What, what is the lifestyle of Ric Flair? Because we've not actually really mentioned it yet. Well, it's difficult to talk about the lifestyle of Ric Flair without talking about like where he came from. Mm. Because it's important to note that what became his lifestyle was not how he was raised. Okay. But yeah, I mean, Ric Flair, how he was raised. And this is something that I remember when I read his book, it came out in like 04. I was shocked by Ric Flair, he's adopted. And not only is he adopted, but... Um, my mate Paddy was telling us at Christmas, you know, he was actually involved in the big Tennessee Children's Hospital scandal, which was a huge black market stolen baby operation. Ric Flair was, in his own words, the first chapter of his book is a black market baby. Wow. And it was a very, very strange set of circumstances. I don't know how familiar you are with this. Rick didn't dwell on it that much Not at all. at all. All I know is he was a stolen baby. We will in the suggested viewing or extra watching on howtowrestling.com where you can find all the extra stuff we talk about in all previous episodes it's your hope for all how to wrestling stuff and great articles there as well we'll put a link to a, there's a podcast that delves into this specific topic in a great deal of detail but essentially there was a movement in 50s a kind of a forced adoption movement and it's weird because modern adoption kind of sprung out of it in a strange roundabout what? way this woman called georgia tan and she stole, and she basically, I think there's thousands of babies who got stolen in the end as a result of her. And she had many different methods. She would pay off nurses, doctors and whatnot. And there was a high demand for white babies mm. for certain you know, adoptive parents. And the adoptive parents didn't know where they were getting them from more often than not. You know, I don't think pa- Flair's parents knew that he was, you know, they stole the baby. But... In the documentary, they say that he was taken to an orphanage. Oh, right, I see. So he would have been taken to an orphanage and then been adopted. But that's what I don't understand. An orphanage isn't going to pay to have a stolen baby. Like, you 
like I think there is the the conspiracy is quite wide let's just say in that sense I think that there was people involved at every level at this you know at the adopting stage I think some of the adoptive parents were aware of what was happening some weren't some of the orphanages were some weren't but like they would do things for instance like if anyone was given birth in a women's prison or you know a sheltered accommodation things like that they would always try and take those because they knew that there'd be less pushback for for that happening oh it's so sad you know in some cases it was do you want to give us your baby yes in other cases was just taken some vulnerable people who aren't in a position to be parents would be better off with selling their child absolutely yeah that's okay louis Louis threw had a had a documentary about that very thing last year and i thought he he went quite in depth on it it's a very sensitive subject people don't like to talk about it it's very controversial do like to demonize the mothers particularly in it but this situation here is like the thought of like if you're if you're hopeful and expecting a baby and you're excited to bring that home with you mm. and then it's just stolen but i i just can't even comprehend what that would feel like flair doesn't have a lot to say about his parents in so, some respects i suppose you could go mad thinking about like you know what you know what situation was my mother in like never did, knew your did mother she give father, me up? did she know? like is she is she there at home crying about her stolen baby or is she you know hoping that I've lived this great life being a celebrity well, wrestler? I, mean, I was going to say like she would like <laughs> would would she even know like that? One of the most yeah. famous people in the world, you know. And the things about Flair as well is that their real thrust for it was babies were to be white babies with blue eyes and blonde hair. <laughs> Ric Flair, not naturally blonde, obviously, but you know he was he was blue eyed and. It's a very big traumatic thing, I think, to happen without... And you can't take that on as a kid, but I think in terms of the framework of how you interact with people around you, your relationship with acceptance, your relationship with home, family, all the things that go on to happen in Rick's personal life, I do think you can draw a line to a lot of it from... Like, his adoptive mother couldn't have children anymore, so Rick was, I think, meant to kind of fill that void in their life. And judging from how he talked about his relationship with his parents, his adoptive parents, I don't think there ever was that level of true acceptance of who he was. All the stories about his parents are how they were disappointed in him, how they sent him away to, like, boarding school, military school, uh, how they didn't ever go see him wrestle other than a handful of times... When he you know, got his first house with his paycheck as world champion, they chastised him for his excess. It doesn't feel like he had a good, loving home in that respect. I think, I don't know, I disagree that it wasn't loving. Mm. I think his parents just were very different from him. Like, yeah. his dad was a doctor and... They were in community theatre, it was what they were involved in yeah, as well. Yeah, they were very, like, you know incredibly middle class they didn't believe in you know excess of money or excess of wealth like didn't believe in flashing your money around like literally if you had rick flair the college years as a cartoon series you know they beat the footy duddy parents yeah you're a bit you're like rick you know he he, they're like almost seem like a comic foil for him in some respects i just don't feel like they understood rick and i don't think rick understood them they they always come from different worlds well i'll tell you though from the book where he just spoke about his parents and you know how his father was was quiet and his mother was was quiet but you know they loved each other very very much and then to the documentary which we watched from WWE where he talked about a bit to 30 for 30 where he was quite open about I never had their full acceptance yeah. he felt like and, which I mean yeah. you could kind of 
I can totally see that happening. If you've got, you know, this very normal parents and your child is into professional wrestling, like that's yeah. hard for a lot of parents to get their head around. Yeah, it's hard for my parents to get their head around that I podcast. Yeah, you know? it's, mine too. It's a completely <laughs> different thing, by the way. But yeah, I, I, I do wonder if that kind of gives you the not the leg up in wrestling but it gives you a certain hunger that re- i mean god knows we talked about it in the roddy piper episode wrestling is there with open arms for someone who needs a whole boatload of you know outside positive acceptance yeah. and gratitude and it's the same reason why when i was at my most depressed i did most of my stand-up because the gratification that you get from an audience really can fill the black void inside mm-hmm. of you sometimes. And I think Rick did come into wrestling, that not necessarily being his primary goal, but he did rely on that later on in his yeah, career, definitely. definitely. In the opening minute of this documentary, he was referred to as a wrestling god, a wrestling Rembrandt, a wrestling maestro, and a wrestling master. Wow. That's a lot of high praise. Yeah. I genuinely was worried about bigging up his in-ring credentials to you. Mm. Because I know that you like certain styles of wrestling. Yeah. And even though Rick has went down well on the podcast in the past, his offense and whatnot, I thought that you would not view him on the same level as someone who has a much more versatile arsenal, let's just say. And I think that's fair. That's that's probably accurate. Mm. Like, you know, if we do compare him to someone like Bret Hart, like... Yeah. To me, Brett is a way better... <laughs> Ric Flair is unhappy right now. I know, now. I'm sorry. But Graham, like... you son of a bitch! <laughs> <laughs> but look, it's, it's almost unfair to compare them because they are so different. Like, Bret Hart is never going to have the mic skills yeah. that Ric Flair has. He's never going to have that charisma, that that connection to certain parts of his fan base. Like, they're just... they just meet such different criteria from one another. Yeah. But yeah, in terms of actual wrestling... Rick is not my favourite. Okay, yeah. I, I just... Uh, he was someone who had a lot of clamour around him. I think yeah. he's someone who's probably the most praised wrestler by his peers. Yeah. Like, if you were to do a straw poll of male wrestlers, they will probably... Particularly ones from the 80s to the 90s, they will probably come back and say Ric Flair was, was, was the greatest yeah. or whatever. And... Yeah, I don't know if necessarily it's always fair comparing like and like modern style to the style of the time. Mm. But I think this documentary does a very good job at framing what the time was and what it needed. So Ric Flair did go to boarding school. We share that in common. And Ric Flair said that when he was there, all the wealthy kids and the excess, they're all kind of wealthy bad boys, basically, who've been sent away from home. That strongly influenced... Yeah. His love of the good things. Yeah, and it definitely would. It would be hard growing up around lots of wealthier kids. Yeah, far from home, like, you know. Mm. So he then kind of, he's doing college, he's doing football, he's doing wrestling, he did track and field. Young Rick is a much different looking cat to to any other version of him. He's unrecognisable. 300 pounds. Yeah. Looks like Jake Hagar, like. Yeah, he does. (laughs) I mean... Did it shot? I mean, usually when someone's younger, they kind of look like a scrawnier version of themselves. Mm. You know, you think of young Brett, young Roddy, yeah, young Mick, young Rick. Though he fucking know. eat old Rick for lunch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just it's it's so surprising seeing how like his body shape is just entirely different. He looks like he doesn't even look like he could be related to himself. Mm. He looks kind of like his son a little bit. A bit like yeah, a bit like David yeah. Flair. Yeah, actually, now you mention it. 
The training that he did, and Rick was a big wrestling fan all of his life. Dad didn't like wrestling, but the sweet thing he mentioned in the doc was that you know, every year for his birthday, his mum and dad would take him to wrestling in Minneapolis. You see, now things like that yeah. make me think that they did love him. You yeah. Wouldn't, you wouldn't do that for a child if you didn't love them. I think the feeling of out-and-out acceptance of your life choices and love, yeah. uh, parental love particularly, are two very different things. Yeah. yeah. And I think maybe I, I spoke erroneously when I said love. I think acceptance, it's a very different thing. Like, you know. Yeah, like neither of our parents are going to listen to our podcasts necessarily. Oh, my dad's a big cinema swirlhead. That's, like, that's, that's true. Sense. But like, okay, wrestling podcasts yeah. is not really, you know, in their interests. No. But they still love us. Jeez, I hope so. <laughs> Mom, Dad. We didn't eat them out of house and home that bad at Christmas, did we? Like... <laughs> Tweet in, Mum and Dad. So Rick gets into the training and, you know, AWA, Minneapolis, like, AWA has popped up a few times with Bobby Heenan, Hulk Hogan. Like, this was like a real hotbed. This was like primordial, like where modern wrestling was really coming to its forefront. This is where Vince McMahon went, ah, oh, okay, I'll have... Mean Gene, Hulk Hogan, Roddy Piper, Bobby Heenan, you know, basically all of 80s wrestling. Give me that, please. So Ric Flair was growing up in a great place, Minneapolis, a great wrestling town. But AWA, old school as it was, trained by Vern Gagne, Hall of Famer, several thousand time AWA world champion. So strict was Vern that his son Greg, also in the camp, exclusively refers to him in both documentaries as Vern. Wow, like Brett and his dad. Yeah, Brett and Stu, like... Yeah. I don't know, man. There's something weird about that. What episode was it where we talked about Vern Gagne? It would have probably been in... I know the Hogan episode, we talked about how Vern, he was very old school. He wouldn't let Hulk get, like, T-shirts and merchandise money or do, like, Rocky Three. Idiot. So, yeah, so he didn't understand it. And I think we talked about it as well in the Bobby Heenan episode about how he had this old school promotion that was clearly, you know, not changing with the times and... Even though people there who were creative were trying to help him, he kind of dragged his feet a bit and it kind of petered out instead. You know, he's basically a an advertisement for why stubbornness is the worst thing to have as a wrestling promoter. Right, you yeah. Know? And he was like a he was the type of guy, he was the world champion, he was the booker, he's there fifty eight or whatever, he's still becoming the world champion, his son's getting booked to be, you know, top guy and all that, you know. Wasn't it the Bret Hart episode we mentioned him oh i know it was it was eric bischoff yes he worked in his promotion for a while didn't he yeah like in kind of the twilight of awa That's it, yeah like bischoff went into a sinking ship and found out how to steer it like yes. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah training with Vern Gagne, not the easiest thing in the world and we got some snippets of this in both documentaries oh i thought ring of it was hard <laughs> <laughs> yeah except that you have to pick up ricky steamboat and there's 21 flights of concrete stairs and Vern Gagne's all move super energetically <laughs> dun, 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 Oh no, you fall and broken your face on the concrete. Move super energetically. <laughs> Fucking hell. Great job. Fantastic. And then like you're bleeding and those broken teeth all over the... Yeah. the... Looks <laughs> tasty. Um, what were some of the things that Rick and Co. had to do? He trained with uh, the Iron Sheik and Greg Gagne as well, interesting enough. And you know, a couple of, couple of names in wrestling. But what, what, what types of things did they make old Rick do? I forget the, the exact numbers. Now, was it 200 or probably more likely 500 push-ups? It was 500 squats. Yeah, 500 squats, 500 push-ups, 500 sit-ups. Yes, and then you would get 500 suplexes. Oh. In, this is before you're tired, and they, they would do 500 bumps then, just front bumps. 
and then they run. What, what's a front bump? As in, you do a roll and you uh, land on your your back, like right. so. Yeah, they would they would be taken. I mean, I'm sure that's called front bump. They would they would just take bumps basically, like right. hundreds. Of, and this is the old fucking concrete ring of the. Yeah. the this is the 70s, folks. This is when he's training. Okay, Ugh. so all 100% kayfabe. These guys are all thinking they're training to to fight for real. You know, they don't know that wrestling is choreographed or that it's a work or there's any sort of a negotiation with your opponent you know what though i reckon in a way that was kind of to their advantage because i bet there's an issue with current day wrestling where wrestling fans go ah it's all fake though isn't it so i don't need to be that fit to do it but actually you have to be so physically fit to be a wrestler hang on joe let's just check in with all of the wrestling training schools in the entire world does the money of out of shape wrestling fans still lodge into your bank accounts Oh, it turns out it does. It's, it's just exactly the same. So uh, some would even say, Joe, what you point out there is a cornerstone of the wrestling training business. Like, you know, no, all, all kidding aside, like, I think this was, we mentioned the Terry episode, you know, how protective everyone was. Yeah. And, you know, if you haven't heard our Terry Funk episode, you can find out about how Dusty Rhodes wasn't allowed into the wrestling business for a few years because he wasn't taking it seriously enough. So, you know, Rick, you know, was not going to be told the secrets and rightly so as well in some estimations because... Rick wanted to quit like three or four times. We didn't even talk about the worst part of his training. Oh, yes. Let's go to the worst part. So he had to run up 21 flights of stairs. No, all like fire escape, concrete. Yeah. yeah. And then they had to run back down. Mm -hmm. Then they had to carry someone else who had just run up and down those 21 flights of stairs on their back in a fireman's carry. So they're complete dead weight. Complete dead weight. They had to run all the way up. Did they have to bring them back down? They had to again? bring them back down, and then they had to put them yeah. on their shoulders and then take you up. Up and down, yeah. It is literal hell. Ricky Steamboat, like, we were joking about Ring Fit there. Ricky Steamboat did say you'd slip and you'd hit the, you'd hit the steps. Yeah, he said that he had forehead bruises for, like, most of his training because he kept falling onto the stairs and hitting his head. Fucking hell. They do two-mile runs, and this is the dead of winter, you know, in Minnesota. That actually ground. seems, like, quite easy in comparison <laughs> to, like, all the other stuff they yeah, have to do. Yeah, keep in mind, though, this isn't fucking Slick Rick, the, the cardio machine. This is 300-pound beef boy Ric Flair, like, you know. This is, he was saying, like, you know, he'd be throwing up, like, constantly yeah. doing this. Because he was still loading up with all the calories, thinking he's going to be big Ken Patera type of a guy. And, you know, no one was going to tap him on the shoulder and say, lose a load of weight. Because wrestling, it was always like, yeah, bigger is better type yeah. of thing. It seems like the worst training in the world in many respects. Yeah. But a surefire way to ensure that everyone who does make it through will definitely, definitely, definitely... Be tough as shit. I mean, your back will be calloused, if anything yeah. else. Like absolutely. 500 squats... I, before Christmas, was was doing some squats, and I, I got to the point where I could do 30 squats. Yay! My legs are very weak, but weak knees. Yeah. But 30 squats was a huge accomplishment for me. That was yeah. like a big, big deal. Big stuff. Unaccompanied squats, like. Yeah. The ring was very happy with you. And then, over Christmas, I didn't do any ring fit, and now I can do about five squats. So just do that 100 more times, and that's one fifth of one day of training and we can move on to the bumps and the run and literally wouldn't be able to walk no i like after 50 squats i can't walk that's it i'm done i'm lying on the floor done fetch me everything i need because i live here now here's a one for you rick says and this happened with roddy too wasn't told wrestling was kayfabe even as he was having his first match yeah isn't that fucking dangerous or what like 
I don't know. I mean, that for me, that sounds terrifying. What? I don't understand why. Why they didn't tell them? Make it look realistic, I guess. You know, you go out there, you're going to try and fight for real, and the veteran will just kind of, like, take you through the ropes, and maybe you figure it out that way. But Rick said the only way he found out, like, no one ever told him, said, right, kid, you've had your first match. Now you get to learn the secrets of wrestling exposed. But instead, he just said he overheard guys talking in the locker room. That was it. There was no, like, you're officially broken in now. Congratulations. He, he had to kind of piece it together himself. God. I mean, I don't think you're going to get people who have this fucking really odd, I would say almost damaging passion for wrestling and wish to defend it. You know, Ric Flair says it's the greatest sport on earth and he fucking, he bleeds this wrestling business, you know? And I think part of it is because, much like with, with some of the other 80s wrestlers, there's a bit of a spell cast when you're brought into the secret club mm. in the 80s and no one's allowed to know, shh, but you. I do feel like there's a kind of, uh, this almost like omerte-like thing with, with wrestlers from that time that does not exist anymore. I don't know if it's for better or for worse, but it was certainly a lot more closed off back then. I think it's for better. Though. Yeah, I think it allows for more collaboration, more people to talk, yeah. gets us more exciting matches. I think and really it's more accessible as well. Like you think there's there's probably going to be a lot of like you know minority groups who are more likely to do wrestling if they know it's like not an actual fight. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so Flair starts out. He's based out of Charlotte. He, you know, the old Ric Flair. He's, you know, tie-dye, big crazy sunglasses, bandana. Kind of looked like a mix between superstar Billy Graham and Dude Love. Not really the Ric Flair of, of modern age. And it really is strange that the kind of, the catalyst, it seems, for the Nature Boy character in Ric Flair as we know it. Huge event in Ric Flair's life. And one that I think a lot of people don't really know much about. Um, in October 1975, Rick was involved in a plane crash. Mm. Now, was this shocking to you to find out that Rick was involved in such a scary accident? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. What are some of the the details of that for the folks at home, if you recall? So, they went up into this little private six-person jet, Mm. and uh, I think there was like four wrestlers plus a manager. Yeah, there was an announcer, I think. An announcer, right, yeah, and then the pilot. And they all had equipment and stuff as well, so they went up into this little this little jet thing and they were they've been flying for I think 10 minutes when one of the propellers went limp god which is so so scary when we we went home for Christmas uh, I noticed that on our plane one of the um, the flaps on the wing yeah. was like moving around and I got really into my own head I get a bit nervous about flying I was like oh no it's gonna fall off and fly away and we're all gonna crash and die I don't know why I just want a remake of Terror at 50,000 feet with Ric Flair Stewardess, they're the goblin on the wing of the plane. <laughs> Takes all his clothes off, elbow <laughs> drops it. <laughs> elbow drops his complimentary peanuts, yeah. handcuffs himself to first class. <laughs> if you close that curtain, when you come back, I'm going to be naked. <laughs> but yeah, not to make light of this terrible situation, but I can't think of anything scarier than a propeller going... And stopping. Yeah. And they were meant to have a reserve of fuel. Yeah, you had to explain this to me. So they were meant to have a reserve of fuel, but because they wanted to fit an extra person on the flight, they decided to take off the extra reserves of fuel. Because fuel carries weight yeah. and you get better lift if you have lighter. So yeah. you know, what's what's what costs more, you know, obviously it costs to have fuel, you will get money for having a passenger, so just take off a passenger's worth of fuel. That's fine, yeah, right? Yeah, that makes sense, sure. 
But then it meant that when they realised they only had half a tank of fuel on the plane, they had no reserves to use up, so they were running on an empty tank, and so they crashed. They were around a couple of miles from the actual runway. Mm. They crashed into a railway embankment, so, you know, not the best fucking place in the world. Jesus. Sorry, as if there are great places to crash one's well, obviously plane. obviously a like. pillow factory is... <laughs> The good place to we'll land. get to send Greg Wallace inside the factory to find out if that's okay. <laughs> like, Greg, get your plane and let's see if, uh, if if it's if it's okay or not. So the pilot died a year to the day, pretty much. Which is so horrible to think of. Like sustaining injuries so bad, it takes you a year to die. The other major injury was Johnny Valentine, who's Greg the Hammer Valentine's father. He was a legend in the NWA. Uh, he was paralyzed from the waist down. He was still an active wrestler at the time. Ric Flair got a broken back. Yeah. Uh, he broke his back in like two places. And the announcer got a severe concussion. Broke, you know, got uh, broken ribs. One guy walked out of the plane. Yeah. Completely unscratched. And that, like, whatever about, like, <laughs> whatever about, like, walking out of a plane unscratched, that is, like, just kind of ungodly. Yeah. Kind of, like, good luck or whatever. But to be like Rick and to actually get a severe injury, breaking your back, and then within six months well yeah because he was told he was told you will never wrestle again you've broken your back yeah like you'll be lucky if you walk again you definitely will not wrestle now something as a result of this if you look at rick anytime you see him wrestling rick doesn't take a very wide variety of bumps very often in his match there'll be a lot of like big back body drops where the person kind of bends down and lifts them up into the sky or he's picked off the top rope and thrown onto the ground there's a lot of kind of big back drops and if you notice, Rick will never land squarely on his back like a lot of wrestlers would. Rick kind of lands almost slightly on one side, like he's you know taking almost a like kind of a stunt roll. And that is because of the injury on his back. He just kind of favours one side over the other. Right. Now, to think that Rick Flair is the fucking bump machine that he is, and he's doing this, not on the Mick Foley, you know, God's gift to wrestlers pear-shaped backside that takes all the damage. He's doing it on, like, half of a back that is, you know, had to have surgery on it and stuff. That's fucking wild. Yeah. So, yeah, all the time he's in the hospital, he basically starts thinking about, like, what he loses a lot of weight as he's recovering. Yeah, I'm sure you'd lose muscle mass. And yeah. You'd, you'd naturally drop weight anyway from being in, in hospital. So he decides around this time, you know, and I think this gives him a bit of a lease on life. I mean, this is the thing about Ric Flair. This is, like, you know, such a huge moment. Near-death experience. Have you ever had a near-death experience? Closest I've had to a near-death experience was once when I was crossing the road, a lorry came out of nowhere, and I just stepped back in the nick of time. It would have crushed me. Mm. But that that's the, the closest I've You, you shook up after that for a bit. Oh, yeah. Imagine. Shook yeah. up, yeah. I mean, as a child, I've got a scar I, I got in childhood, which was as a result of a, a near-near-death experience, let's just say. But I wasn't old enough to remember it. What happened to me when I was in my fucking 20s, like Ric Flair? Yeah. I do think it does... It, it does play on one's sense of self when yeah. you come this close to dying. There's another story that Rick tells that also is true, which is when he was getting onto a plane once, a private helicopter or something like that, and it was raining really badly, opens up his umbrella, lightning comes down, strikes the guy beside him and kills him stone dead. What, his own umbrella killed the guy next no, then, to him? I, I'm not sure if it was his own umbrella that caused it, but lightning struck the guy right beside him. And by right, you think lightning would strike the guy with the umbrella. Yeah. Now, wow. fucking hell. If you ever need another kind of pat on the back, like, you're the nature boy, you're special, you're not like other people. Yeah. And I do think that is a big part of Ric Flair, if you look at how he lives his life. And at this point, he's thinking, let's have a character that reflects this new lease on life. He goes to a woman called Olivia Walker to start making these beautiful sequined robes for him. 
Are you a fan of the old school wrestling robes? Oh, I absolutely love them. They're fantastic. I'm so glad that Charlotte wears similar robes today. Cause so cool. What a waste to not just do that as as his daughter. Yeah, Bobby Roode can't just have all the fun, guys. Come yeah. on. <laughs> I can't believe like every other wrestler hasn't got a cool robe with their name sequined on it. What the fuck? Like? <laughs> It'd be a bit expensive, I think. Where, yeah, these Ric Flair ones were running five, six grand a pop, I yeah. think. Which uh, they didn't tell the people who in WCW did an angle where they stole one of his robes and ripped the sleeves off of it <gasps> against his will. Like, Oh my God. Whoa. But Rick's robes, were there any ones that you particularly liked? The blue robe where it's got the sequins on the inside of the arm wings. Mm. That's my favourite one. The one where he can lift his arms out yeah. like Macho Man. It has the kind of the bit. Oh, that's my. Oh, that so to good. me is peak Ric Flair. There's one as well, which is the black and white kind of sequined with the very feathery oh, yeah. uh, cuff and the very feathery um, collar. It's, honestly, Ric Flair robes, unbelievable. And the fact that WWE or no one has actually made a line of wrestling legends bathrobes is fucking wild to me. Well, what I would do if I was WWE is I would have like a... You know, like Orlando Studios? Yeah. Uh, like I'd, I'd put together a like wrestling hall of fame, all the outfits. You yeah. I'd have like a room of Ric Flair robes where you pay an entry fee and you go and you can see them all in real life. Like nice. see all these iconic wrestlers' outfits and Physical Hall of Fame, yeah. Stuff. Physical Hall of Fame, exactly, yeah. I mean, I, when I did go to WrestleMania, they did have some of the kind of the objects from the archive. There was a few Flair robes and stuff there and it was really cool. But like they have so much stuff, it's just sitting in a warehouse. Yeah, exactly, like, yeah. It's kind of weird. But yeah, Rick looked to someone else really for a very, very big chunk of inspiration to his character. And this is something else I wasn't sure how you'd react to. Nature Boy Buddy Rogers. Mm-hmm. Another Nature Boy? Yeah. Has slick back hair? Yeah. Blonde. S- blonde? Hair, yeah. Figure four leg lock? Strutting around the ring? Yeah. What? I had no idea he wholesale lifted, like... Half of his gimmick from another wrestler. And yet you didn't call bullshit. No, because I feel he made it his own. What do you think... Like, because I know Scott Steiner, we talked in the episode how he, like, uh, he, he shot at Ric Flair and he was just like, you stole Buddy Rogers' gimmick, but you couldn't take his class. And, like, people are like, oh, he did, he stole his gimmick. But, like, I'm not sure if he had the blessing or not. I think, I'm not even sure if Buddy was alive at the time. Mm. But... Do you think that wrestlers should be allowed to look into the past and kind of go, there was someone who had this gimmick, I'm going to bring it back and I'm going to make it my own? I think absolutely, especially considering that like wrestling in that time would have been more territorial based rather than like global. That's true. A lot of people wouldn't have known who Buddy Rogers was. Yeah, exactly. A lot of people still don't know who Buddy Rogers is. And I think it's different as well then, like, because in wrestling you get a lot of instances of wrestlers just nicking it from Japan. Yeah. Which happens all the damn time. So it's actually refreshing for once for it to be an American stealing from another American. I think before anyone gets kind of too up in arms about it, like you look at pretty much all of the 80s wrestlers who came into the mid and late 80s you know macho man hogan ultimate warrior you can really make an argument that most of them just nicked off you know superstar billy graham in the first place but the difference was is that they all made it their own because superstar billy graham didn't necessarily have the maneuvers set or the specific charisma that those individuals had i think it's fine if it's a starting off point if you can make it your own yeah if someone comes out now and says i'm going to be nature boy fucking kevin mahan or whatever then it's going to be a serious uphill battle because you have got such a precedent and such a you know 
Ric Flair's out in the stratosphere. There wasn't any streaming service pumping out, you know, loads of compilations of Buddy Roberts back in the 70s no. that Rick had to compete with. So I don't know if it's even appropriate to do anymore, you know? Yeah, I, I think honestly you're right. Like, it's 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 much harder to do now effectively yeah. without just wholesale lifting. Maybe, I don't know, Seth Rollins could rebrand himself as the Texas Rattlesnake or something like that. <laughs> Figure four leg lock, Joe. Obviously, we, we've already talked about the master of the figure four, uh, a.k.a. The Miz. Yeah. Or should I say, a.k.a. The Miles. Uh, what do you think of that manoeuvre? Scintillating? Salacious? I wanted you to put me in the figure four leg lock last night. I could do it now if you want. Yeah, okay. Yeah, let's pop over here. We need to stretch the legs anyway. Back in a sec. Do you know how to do it? I'm pretty sure. Do I need to be on my back? Yes. <laughs> I won't chop block you, don't worry. So you pick up a leg, you want to yeah. put the other leg flat. And what Rick would do as well is he would go, woo, woo, and he'd dance around, woo. So, turn around, yeah. now bend this leg. Yeah. <laughs> it's fiddly. It is fiddly. Hard for you because you've got such long legs. And now what I'm going to do is pull down on that. Oh, that does hurt. Oh, does it? Yeah, it hurts my shin. Also, I, I may not be doing it as full strength as, as Ric Flair maybe. <laughs> I can't do the figure eight yet, though. That sounds really complicated. Joe, back from the figure four leg lock. Yeah, that hurt. <laughs> Shit, I'm, I'm sorry. Okay. No, I'm fine. Okay. It wasn't like, you know, ah, 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 but it was like, ooh, that is a little uncomfortable. And my ankle was digging into my shin, mm -hmm. which isn't what I thought would happen. I thought the pain would be either in my core or in mm. my thighs. Ah, I see. Because of the way they're like kind of stretching and stuff. But no, it was, it was definitely my ankle was digging into my shin. Which was very kind of very sore. I'm telling you, there was nothing quite like the days on the playground when someone burst out the figure four and they grab the leg, and go woo, and they strut to the left, strut to the right, turn around, then drop your leg and go. I don't want to do this anymore. Walls of Jericho. It's easier. <laughs> I would love to know how to put someone in the figure four leg lock. Oh well, maybe we can put together a step by step guide, like a tutorial, like yeah. for people on how to do that. So, Rick is armed with a new gimmick. He excels pretty much straight away. He's based out of Charlotte and Crockett Promotions, and Charlotte would become his adopted hometown. Really cool thing about Charlotte being his home city and the kind of... You know, you were, you, were, you like the link with, with Charlotte as her current character. Yeah. Because Charlotte, North Carolina is the Queen City. Yeah. Which is both her hometown name and also she is the Queen as her gimmick. I yeah. think that's really fucking cool. It's such clever branding. Mm. Really, really clever. So Rick becomes champion in the 70s and his first win he is quite down on. He says like, you know, the people didn't know me very much. You know, when I won the belt, I won it off Dusty Rhodes. He was a lot more popular. Anytime we went to my hometowns like Minneapolis or Charlotte, we'd sell out. But I wasn't as good a champion as I think I needed to be. But my God, traveling champion is a fucking understatement. Yeah. What did you think to the schedule of NWA Ric Flair? Oh, it was just... Oh, it was just ridiculous. He was just everywhere. And the way that they laid out the tour as well was so, so, like, I, I want to say badly organised, but it can't, you can't do a tour and make it be badly organised. Like, he just heads all over the fucking country. He just and... goes everywhere, but, but like, no, no rhyme or rhythm to, yeah. like, you know, they didn't go all the areas nearby first. They kind of went here to there to over there to as far away as possible to then back to the beginning and then back again to, oh, it was just ridiculous. 60 Minute Man Ric Flair had the moniker for because, you know, he, he had a bit of a hard on for the old uh, long matches like Daniel Bryan. 60 minutes every night, twice on Sundays, twice on Saturdays, 365 
days a year, he said at one point. Now, I'm not sure how... Like, he had to surely get a day off here and there. Surely. But, like, his kids were talking about the same. Yeah, I didn't see him at all. And David Flair... David is, Flair said he saw mm. him on Christmas Eve. And that's it. Jesus Christ. And also as well, the old moniker back then, which Ric Flair said was, you work until you're hurt. You keep going until you can't go anymore. Yeah, it's pretty sad. Now, I think they didn't do a very good job in the documentary. So we had to have a bit of a chat about it ourselves. But how this travelling champion business worked, like what the actual basis of the territory and what Rick would do. Because Rick wasn't going around beating people up and then putting them in the figure four leg lock and making them tap bang. Oh my God, Ric Flair, he's the world's champion. Mm. It was a different scenario. How would you describe how Rick went about being the traveling champion? He would travel around basically putting over the local top guy. Mm. So he would go there, have a match, make that guy look great. He would do his figure four leg lock, but then he'd also fall over and (laughs) sell a lot and lose often yeah I mean he would lose on ways that meant that he wouldn't lose the belt right so it might be like a count out or time limit draw that's where you get those 60 minutes and that's the thing right if you're coming to say you know your local territory and your top guys like Bobo Brazil or whatever it is and Ric Flair the champion comes in and he's begging off the whole time and Bobo Brazil knocks seven shades of shit out of him you get to 60 minutes Flair it's like one two 60 minute time and it expires and Rick crawls out of there with the belt and everyone's like my god Bobo nearly could have fucking done it he's our guy which means the next time Rick comes around people are fucking clamoring for yeah. him too. and that he made everyone at a local level a superstar and that was weird because Rick wasn't on national TV and you would see him like Hulk Hogan or Macho Man the Ultimate Warrior or whatnot, but everywhere on the local TV, Ric Flair was like the final boss that was coming to your territory this week, and he's going to put it on the line against the greatest wrestler in the world, and that wrestler is Czech's local competitors. Top, you know, mm. and that I mean, all the stuff that you liked about Flair, you know, him kind of begging off and his over-the-top selling, and him, you know, doing the flop, the stuff with the referees, that all came from Rick having to fill out sixty minutes. With wrestlers who sometimes weren't very good. I bet. (laughs) (laughs) Must be really intimidating being like a local wrestler who's probably only been wrestling for a couple of years and it's like you're told, oh yeah, Ric Flair's coming over to do a match with you and it's going to be an hour long. I mean, they'd fill stadiums. Yeah. You know, baseball fields. People come to see Ric Flair get beat up. And that's like people made this point that, oh, you had WWF in the 80s. You had Hulk Hogan who was like undefeated for five years. And then NWA, which is meant to be the more realistic, stronger wrestling, you know, pure wrestling style. And their world champion was going around the country begging off, hiding behind referees, you know, kicking people in the dick and then (laughs) running away by the skin of his teeth. And some people were like, oh, this delegitimizes, you know, NWA. It makes it seem like we're not as good. But I think this, he made so many stars by doing this. I suppose it depends on like how you see wrestling as an art form yeah like do you see it as more of a an athletic sport mm. or do you see it more as sports entertainment like Cassius it, Ono recently said that American wrestling is like a morality play I loved that tweet Ooh. he did he, he described the main types of like wrestling from the different like main countries like Japan yeah. it's kind of like a struggle England. style yeah. England is like mental and physical chess <laughs> Mexico is like acrobatics and showmanship and then, yeah, America's the morality play, which is like, God, you're, you're so yeah. right. Because even if you have influence on those other bits, the mainstream wrestling still comes down to not even good guys or bad guys, but wrong thing and yeah. right thing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I think Rick was really good at that because in, you know, when you go from the 70s into the 80s, and Rick really feels his first proper title run was when he won it from Harley Race in the mid-80s in Starcage. 
that was when he really felt that that was his proper run. And what is it now in the 80s? It's Yuppies, Wall Street, Greed is Good, you know, it's Reganomics. And here's Ric Flair talking about his limo he's just bought, yeah. his Lear jet, his custom-made clothes, his lizard shoes, his, his diamond Rolex, yeah. you know. <laughs> this was so wild to find out now about the lifestyle. Mm. What are the types of things that Rick was, was, was doing now that he was the top guy and the champion? He would just, like, give away items of clothing that were worth hundreds, if not thousands, of dollars. I mean, buying one's own limousine. Yeah. That's pretty expensive. I, I have no even idea how expensive that is. No comprehension. Lots of money. And they'd say things like, you know, Rick would be constantly buying stuff and he'd be like, this is to enhance my image, you mm. know. Because Ric Flair, the character, needs to have custom-made suits yeah. from, you know, St. Michael's of Kansas City. You know, otherwise, people aren't going to come and see me wrestle. You know? It's a real dangerous pit to fall into. It is an unescapable pit. You've basically I, come up with a reason to buy anything. Well, I can really empathise with it, though, because when I got I got a job at a bank about three years ago, yeah. and it was the first job I'd ever had where I was, like, working with, like, really, like, professional-level executives. It was much less relaxed, more much formal. Much less relaxed, yeah. yeah. You know, I was used to working with, like, developers and stuff like that who wear jeans and a T-shirt. Like, no very, shoes. Yeah, no shoes, <laughs> exactly, yeah. Whereas this was, like, you know, you wore suits, you mm. were well-dressed, you, look, you know, you networked, you were professional, you and represented the company. you dressed yourself in a my Giorgio Manny? Custom made, head to toe. <laughs> <laughs> but it was like, it was the first time in my life where I had to really care about my appearance and take it really seriously. I, you, people know what I'm like. I have silly coloured hair yeah. and, you know, piercings and I wear whatever the hell I want. So this was really new to me. But you felt that you could justify a lot of expenses because, exactly. oh, it's office attire. It's office attire, exactly. And, you know, I'm still a very, very, very thrifty person. You're talking so... about dozens of pounds here, by the yeah, way, I'm assuming. Yeah, not, not hundreds. But still, for me, that was like you know quite a big expense and I, I mm. did end up spending a lot more money when I worked at that job than I do now as a podcaster yeah. and I don't have to see people in like that particular business environment anymore and it is very easy to convince yourself both rightly and wrongly that it will benefit your career in some way because your image is important it really is important to put across a certain image in a certain business environment yeah. but also it's a very slippery slope and this is all on Rick as well they'd say you know Rick was spending literally hundreds of thousands i'd say it's probably over the years it's millions and then they were like oh rick would do things like he'd forget to pay his tax you know and all of a sudden he owes the irs 800 grand you know rick they did not go into in this at all in any detail any of the docs that we watched and rick did it a little bit in his book but the man's finances are an absolute train wreck you like four sets of alimony declared bankruptcy multiple times i think he had to be like at one point in his book he describes like how some close friends and family like literally purchased him like as in he registered himself as a company and then they put bought him as a company so they could pay off his tax essentially right and he's he the line he referred to is like they sold me like i was a fucking racehorse but like rick was not keeping track of any of this you know, and he was talking as well at the time about how you know, his wife is like, why aren't you wearing your, you know, why aren't you wearing your, your wedding ring on TV? He's like, oh, you know, it's just, you know, it's part of the gimmick and all that. Don't worry about it, honey. And like, why are you telling everyone to go to the Marriott room 603 tonight? No one actually goes. It's just a silly TV show. Mm. The limousine outside may not be a literal mile long, but there probably are 25 women in there dying for him to go, woo. Like Rick was a absolute 
superstar at this time. And I can't think of anyone who was beloved by both men and women, like unironically in the 80s, quite like Ric Flair. So yeah, I mean, Rick is, you know, adding loads and loads of stuff to his, you know, his look, his gimmick, his arsenal, you know, his in-ring work as well was was taking a, a whole other level of degree. The thing we found out about how Rick worked on his punches. Oh, yeah. I, did, I didn't know about it until I watched this documentary. It was fucking wild. So he hung up a piece of string. This is when he first started like properly training as a wrestler he did this he hung up a piece of string above a door and then he would practice i think he said he practiced for three years punching this piece of string as hard as he could without moving it and he kept practicing and practicing practicing until he could punch it with all his strength and it wouldn't move at all that's unbelievable so that he could do the softest punches that looked the most hard hitting that's amazing and i would like the audience now to compare and contrast rick flair attempting to punch a string with macho man randy savage breaking every baseball bat that he owns <laughs> i broke one baseball bat for every year jesus christ's life <laughs> And of course, as well, like the in-ring style, you know, the punches and you know, the chops is a huge part of that. You yeah. Know, the big chops. Anytime you hear a chop these days, it comes with a big woo. You know, the woo came actually from a Jerry Lee Lewis song, "Great Balls of Fire." You know, goodness gracious, I'm dating a child. Uh, <laughs> but like the in-ring style was very high octane, given his fact as well that you know he was in a plane crash six months prior. You know, to this big run starting. Yeah. I mean, the plane crash. Just to go back to it for a second, that was quite a high drop right i mean you talk about the hell in the cell being legitimate you know 15 feet or whatever <laughs> yeah it was six thousand feet <laughs> which fun fact is how high we were when we went paragliding in turkey and kevin got sick on a holiday resort yeah so we went on paragliding which is a big 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 like two-person parachute thing that you kind of control and maneuver around in you're in kind of like a big seat and like you, a big kite that you sit in. Yeah, like a big kite you sit in. Your legs are free, so you can wiggle around like Luigi as you're coming down from the sky. Yeah. And we were both quite nervous about doing it. I was fucking terrified. You were so arrogant about the whole thing. Arrogant? Yeah, cocky. No, I got, the part I got cocky at, you weren't even privy to, because you weren't there. No, but there. you told me. I told you. <laughs> so, right, we're, we're, we're coming up, we're nervous, we have to go jump off the side of a mountain, you know, very, very windy, clear day, we're high, high, high above the... The, the, the sky of Turkey and we're flying around Joe you were basically like take me down as slow and as steady as possible no nothing fancy please we talked on the way up about whether or not we wanted to do tricks because you can do tricks on these things the paragliding was above our holiday resort where we were staying so you could see all the paragliders doing all the tricks and stuff above you and it was a long long ride up there so long yeah. that we had to stop and forage for berries yeah yeah we ate berries on the way up and yeah I told my guy who was like he was the most experienced paraglider of all the people who we went up with I was like I want no tricks please make this as boring as possible Dennis for you Stamp, I don't do any tricks yeah so. <laughs> honestly I want you to be bored the whole time that would make me really happy just make it really boring, please. Kevin, on the other hand, was like, I want to do a barrel roll. I didn't know. What happened was we were there for five minutes, right? We were there for five minutes and it was fine. And I started humming the Mario Land 2 music because I was wiggling my feet around like Luigi. And then I said to him, are we going to do some fucking tricks or what? Now, granted, <laughs> that was the wrong thing to do. Because we, later, he was like, oh, we'll do some later on. And then I kind of had forgotten about doing tricks. And then when we came down to like, Lower, a little bit lower down. So we were up at like 10,000 feet and then we came down to about 6,000. I, I wasn't measuring the mountain personally, but we were... we were. My guy was telling me how Oh, far, really? Oh, yeah, yeah. So we, we were at a ridiculously high height still. And I would even forgotten that he was going to do, 
do tricks. And I could see Joe at this point. You know, you said for your guy to follow me. Yeah, so, we were waving at each other. Yeah, we were waving at each other, which is nice to wave to your girlfriend at, at, at such a height. And then the guy out of nowhere is like, right, we're going to do some tricks. Do a barrel roll. And he fucking dive bombs. Oh my God. He, like a bat out of hell. Like, my God. He went straight fucking down. This was like Darby Allen coffin drop like. You flipped upside down at several points as well. I don't know if you realised that. I, didn't, I knew that I was immediately caught in a whirlwind. Yeah. And my stomach went out my fucking arsehole. It was yeah. that bad. So immediately after this, I went woo, 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 woo. And I then- saw Kevin do this incredible trick. I was like, wow, I'm so proud of him. Look at that. It's amazing. And I turned to my guy and go, uh, I think I'm going to be sick, brother. And he goes, pick a side man okay I just saw you get sick from 6,000 feet up in the air and it fall bright red looking like blood that's the thing because we onto a holiday resort because we'd eaten all the berries (laughs) because we'd eaten all the berries and it just had happened we had this very bright you say we I was not sick oh yeah but yeah but we had bright red tummies yeah (laughs) and I evacuated mine yeah so yeah, it, it it was quite a scene. And then we went down to like, do you want to get any pizza? Nope, I'm going to go and eat a pizza and then lie down for an hour. And <laughs> my God, I, I'll, I'll tell you what though, on, on the subject of Ric Flair, like I was so shook when it happened, when we came down and then I went in like- The I, adrenaline. I had a pizza and then I had a gin and tonic and I was like, whoa, death on that long? Yeah. Come on. I was like fucking- buzzing like, oh, and that's th- Ric Flair every yeah, night yeah I think that's what a near death experience would kind of yeah. feel like like that adrenaline of like oh, I can do anything ah, I'm gonna eat a whole pizza it's probably more likely a near death experience for the person who came close to getting hit by my sick like, yeah it was full of seeds that'd be falling on you like acid oh, rain like. can you imagine just sitting down there sunbathing and then suddenly this bright red sick falls from the sky I knew we'd have find a time to chat about this at some point like you know <laughs> somehow at the live show there was no time when doing music about Bret Hart to uh, to talk about that. Yeah. So yeah, we got to do it here. That's good times. So Rick has got all sorts of nomenclature, catchphrases, kiss stealing, wheeling dealing. This was really annoying. He said he got it from a song. Yes, we tried to find out what song, and unfortunately, Ric Flair has penetrated the mainstream so significantly that literally it is impossible to find out what song inspired him because he's like inspired. 20 songs. Ric Flair has got, like, they, they interviewed Snoop Dogg on the ESPN thing, and he was like, Ric Flair has, like, had such an influence on black culture, you yeah. understand, like, that he on- said, you know, particularly, I think it was the era of rappers that would have been about the, kind of, the excess, and, yeah, you know, yeah. who's got the, the nicest car, and the biggest coat, and stuff like that. Ric was, like, an idol. So, there's, like, a thousand fucking rap songs that yeah. are called Nature Boy Ric Flair to be the man, style and profile and kiss the wheel and deal. Flair. Many of them actually involving Ric Flair yep. himself. Like, So I think that's amazing, but I am still very curious to know after all my research where the original line for Kiss Stealing Wheel and Deal yeah. came from. Like, Tweet in know. if you know, because I really, really need to find out. Some other good ones. Slick Rick, like that a lot. Nature, short mm. for Nature Boy. The Man. Uh, yeah. To be the man, you have to beat the man. Mm. And I'm saying right here, I'm the man. So does that mean we're going to get a match between Becky Lynch and Ric Flair sometime? It may take place in a courtroom. (laughs) 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 And then the other one here, a controversial one. 
Space Mountain. Oh man, Space Mountain. I think that is one of the best names for Ric Flair. Why is Space Mountain so appropriate? Because you love Space Mountain. We should point this out. I absolutely love Space Mountain. Space Mountain is my favourite roller coaster of all time. And the first time I went on it, it made me cry. When I went to, I got to perform, this is a casual brag here on the podcast. I got to perform at Disneyland, um, which is very cool when I was a teen. All and... I could do was slogan. What the fuck? Like? <laughs> and because we performed there, we got to go on some of the rides. And Space Mountain was completely dead. No one was on it. So me and my friends. But Joe, oldest ride, <laughs> longest line. Nope, no, no, it was dead. So the guy who was operating Space Mountain let us go on it again and again and again and again. We went on it for like thirty times Whoa. in a row. <laughs> well, when I went on it, it was literally like I remember literally like putting my hand to my forehead. Going, and just got thrashed around. Now I was in I was in Tokyo Disneyland, so I'm not sure if it's a different space Maybe it's mountain, a different one. like a strong style space mountain or something. Did like you have that. the big moon and the music? Uh, there may have been music. It just sounded like I remember it being very dark. Yeah, lots of lasers yeah. and and getting a sore neck from being thrashed around. Yeah, so yeah, much. yeah. Like I felt really, really perturbed. That's all roller coasters. Mm. It's not a real roller coaster if you don't come um, off with a sore neck. Uh, the the slick for uh, the Nickelodeon roller coaster from Blackpool Pleasure Beach, which is a legitimate pleasure what, to the ride. Wallace and Gromit one. No, the Wallace and Gromit. That's a, that's like a ghost train. That's different. Except it's cracking instead of spooky. But what I like most about Space Man, Rick Ferrio says. And that would work great for for Rick because you know in the eighties, Space Man was the big attraction. Like, you don't have to go to Disney World to ride Space Mountain. You know, the babes would have the Space Mountain Nets t-shirt. Anytime Rick's cutting a promo and Crockett, they're cutting to women, you know, fanning themselves in the audience and the men getting all grumbly that their 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 girls are in love with Ric Flair. It is interesting that I feel like most men I've spoken to didn't enjoy Space Mountain and most women I've spoken to did. So maybe that's another comparison which Space Mountain is like Ric Flair. I see. He was pissing off all the men but all the women wanted to ride him. All the women just wanted to have sex with that yeah. theme park attraction. <laughs> now what I like most about this folks is that you know we got a long bit here talking about Space Mountain explaining it you know how it was very appropriate for Rick then in the 80s and also then later in the noughties because it's like hey you know Ric Flair it's the oldest ride but everyone's still talking talks about Spaceman because it's really the best. Yeah. But when they, the first thing that Joe and I watched together for this out of all of our watching is Jay Lethal and Ric Flair and Jay goes, don't you be sad just because they tore old Space Mountain down. And then Rick is like, whoa. And you were like, does he like really like that ride? He's like really upset that he can't go on it anymore. Like, what's the deal? <laughs> Didn't realize that it was a metaphor for his penis. Yeah. So there you go. Didn't get it. So it's the lifestyle, baby. He's living the gimmick. He lives in the biggest house and the biggest hill on the biggest side of town. And I got a big, big yacht. 10,000 women is his conservative estimate. That is not kayfabe. Which- That's Rick sat down, tears in his eyes, you know, God, I think I've probably suffered 10,000. Which I was like, I scoffed at that. I was like, yeah, right. Because in the in a couple of the documentaries we watched, I forget who, someone was like, yeah, don't believe everything Rick says. He is a liar. Yeah, Triple, triple H... In the ESPN doc... He's harsh as hell. The harsh dad. Hunter Harsh Helmsley. <laughs> he was he was all over his cases. Like, Rick's full of shit. Like, he, he talked about Rick the way that, like, most people talked about Paul Heyman in the ECW documentary. Yeah. Like, gotta love him, but don't trust him. Yeah. But Rick said 10,000. And we did maths, We did Joe. the maths, and it actually came to more like 13,000. <laughs> like, we did conservative maths, yeah. right? And the conservative maths said that Rick Flair... 
okay, had sex like once a day throughout his 35-year career. And we thought it was fair to do once a day because if there were days he didn't have sex, that would be balanced out by the days he had sex with multiple women at once. Which was frequent. Which definitely was happening. We even cut off, like I think, like five or ten years of the career because I said maybe by the time he had settled down in WWE, he wasn't maybe going with a different girl every yeah. night in the 2000s. Fair enough. Even still, our estimate came out, or very conservative mm. estimate came out at over 10,000. Yeah. So I... It was over 12,000. Yeah, so okay, I'm kind of inclined to believe him. That's what I'm saying, good on you, Rick. I'm not sure there's anything to really be proud well, of. Well, it, it raises the question of like, did they practice safe sex? Because I cannot imagine Ric Flair insisting on wearing a condom. I, I don't know, Joe. I really don't know. Was he raw-dogging 10,000 times? I mean, he's the 60-minute man, who knows? Like, I, I honestly couldn't tell you. I don't want to speculate on who may or may not have kids they don't know about, because uh, I'm not or Triple like, H. <laughs> STDs. Like, it's just, you know, you've got to practice safe sex. Like, We did mention, remember, at the point where he went to his, um, you know, this would have been around the, the mid to late 80s, he went to his sports therapist, and he's like, how often do you masturbate a day? And he's like, two, three times a day. He's like, okay, how many times do you have a drink? He's like, I have 10 beers a day, then I'll have like maybe five or six drinks at night. And he's like, okay, and how long have you been doing this? He's like, Psh, every day for like 16 years? And he's like, what the fuck? How are you still alive? No, no, he didn't even say that. He said no. The doctor was like, no, that that's no, impossible. You, you, you're you must be lying. You must be wrong. There's no way you could be as fit and healthy as you are today if you were drinking even half that amount. So what really, how much are you drinking? And it's, it was like, no, really, It's much. really, really, really hard to know. But all I will say is that Ric Flair did not look like a man who was dogged with infection during his prime, which is when he was definitely having sex with a lot of people. Did he have his own personal medical team? Was it, you know, NWA with the Athletic Commission made sure they had a doctor so he was always looked after and pumped full of antibiotics? But let's just say he was a fucking alley cat. like you know, yeah. Rick. And this is all the time as well where he was married with kids. Now, Bret Hart was similarly... A bad uh, dog. A bad dog. A very bad boy indeed. Mm. There's a bad boy. Now, Brett was different though. Brett would probably, you know, talk about Japanese arm drags of someone on a year-long correspondence and then meet up with them at a bar and ask them if they want to, you know, have sex with them once a month for the rest of their lives. That, <laughs> that was kind of... Brett was very secretive. It was more about making a connection because Brett said that he wanted to have friends and people he could talk to and have companionship with. Brett just wanted a geisha, basically, is what he needed. Whereas Rick is literally on TV saying, girls, if you want to have sex with me, bring all your friends, because I'll have sex with you all, and I'll be here, and it'll be free liquor, and we'll party all night long. It seems like Rick is the type of person who can't bear being his own company. Oh, the story that Jim Ross told about him going to Rick in a bar. Oh yeah, tell that. So he goes to a bar with Rick and they're in the middle of nowhere. And this is the thing, Rick is like, he's talking about he's traveling and he's saying, look, if you tell me when I'm traveling around the world, I'm not going to go out and entertain myself. Like, I'm not going to go out and enjoy this, like, world that I'm traveling. You got to be kidding me. I'm going to go out. And he's like, it could be hard. Like, you know, Kansas City or Salt Lake City. How am I going to go and stay out partying in a town like that? But he'd always find a way. And JR tells a story like they were in some absolute backwater town. And it says like, hey, Rick, we'll go out for a drink. You know, go get a beer. Me and you will just have a chat. And Rick comes in and there's like 10 people in the bar. And Rick goes up and he orders like 137 kamikaze shooters and starts handing them out. You know, everyone's getting fucking plastered. Rick buys everyone drinks, you know, 10 drinks each. He's on the bar dancing. And JR's like, why can't we just go and have like a couple of drinks? Like, why does this always have to happen? And then once the 
people start leaving and the party starts dying down he sees that Rick is getting really agitated and kind of depressed and a little bit scared and yeah he needed that companionship if he was not the life of the party you know and they're like why don't you just stay in your room and watch TV you know have a, have a joint, watch some TV or something like that. So you just know? can't do that. Literally yeah. can't do it. Couldn't sit still. But it was really interesting, I think, that they mentioned that because they also mention in the documentary, the ESPN one anyway, about how he has self-identity issues and yes. how he doesn't really know who he is. Unless he's in the company of other people. Yeah. And Okay, I'm only going to talk about this because... We talked about the suicide stuff on the referees episode, and mm. I got a whole bunch of messages yeah. from people saying, thank you so much for talking about this. You know, it was only a random tangent that I didn't we even expect. We were taken aback, I think, by yeah, the, the, yeah. absolutely. But, but thank you anyway. Yeah, but, seriously, yeah. thank you. You all made me feel so, oh God, so so treasured. So thank you very much. But I'm going to talk about this for a second. I have self-identity issues. Mm. When I'm on my own, I don't know who I am. It comes with having a personality disorder. But... For Rick to also have that and like not know who he is when he's on his own is like, I completely relate. Like, it's so scary when when you don't know who you are and then suddenly there's no one. It's almost like when you're not around other people, you stop existing. I think there's a line and one of the promos that you know a lot of people are sending in various promos, and this is obviously from much later in his career. But there's a promo he does with Carlito about kind of you know, passion and the young guys not having the passion that he has and his generation had, and he's like. I walk around here and I don't know who I am. Yeah, me. And the whole damn world knows who I am. And that's got to make it like, you know, when when the whole damn world, like he's one of the most famous, mm. you know, guys in America, you know, in the whole world. Fucking hell, I can't imagine what that's like. And you can see like, even though those issues only came out into Rick's career, really in the forefront later on in the, in the late 90s and the noughties. You can definitely tell that it was affecting him yeah. when he was young as well. The only difference is that here he was surrounded by... All of his best mates traveling the world together. Everyone, Hundreds of young women. You know, getting praise from his peers. From you know, Well, like Meltzer and the original like wrestling kind of journalists were starting out and they were talking about who's the best in all the magazines. Ric Flair was always the guy who was like, he's the best wrestler in America. Like, he's the best. He's the, he's the guy who's having the best matches right now. We all need to pay attention to him. So he was getting universal praise from his peers, from, you know, the industry. So he had a very much, I think, a sense of who he was at that point. But once that kind of falters a bit, Rick kind of did crash quite hard. But I think, you know, I don't think he even did have a strong sense of who he was. Mm. I think he only did... Because of that. Because of the people around mm. him. Yeah. And I think if you... when Because he said that when he went home, he would be bored out of his mind and he'd hate it. And he'd have to then go back out again. Like, he hated spending time with his family because it was too quiet. Mm. And he was he had to spend time with himself. And that's it. Like, you know, he'd say, the first wife when he was going home he'd be home for like a day and he'd be there for like an hour then he'd get restless and he'd go off he'd go to Greg the Hammer Valentine's house to watch wrestling and hang out with Beth you know who's the next wife you know and it's there's a cycle there with Rick where it's kind of he gets bored he goes somewhere else he yeah. finds a new wife and then it kind of it, it goes from there I did feel very bad for his wives oh god but yeah. I think the people I felt most bad for because, you know, there's the two sets of kids. Mm. There's there's Charlotte and there's Reed. And then there's, there's Megan and David. And I think Megan and David seems... Yeah. You know, you compare the documentary from 07. You compare the documentary from 08 with the one from, like, you know, 2017. And I don't think they're as, as forgiving now as they were then. When they're caught up in the hustle and bustle of the Hall of Fame and the last match and the retirement. Now it's kind of like... You know, David Flair's got kids now and he's like, you know, now that I'm raising kids, I kind of get a little bit more angry at them. Yeah. You know? And it must be really hard as well being, you know, the first two kids from his first 
marriage, mm. you know, who were who were neglected by Rick. It's like the, the Tiffany Trump syndrome mm. here, like. You know. But then the next two, you know, Reed Nash, I should say, um, who who is now Charlotte Flair, they, I think, they had a much closer relationship with Rick. And by the time he had those two, I think he was spending a lot more time at home with He's them, overcompensating. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. But like, if you are David and Megan, it would be so hard not to see that and go. Well, if you can do it now, why couldn't you do it then? Mm. Like, why are they so much more special than me and my sibling like it's very easy to see how you could inherit your parents trauma yeah you know particularly in wrestling particularly even if you want to stay out of wrestling like you know say megan or whatnot you know that is very interesting but it's kind of inevitable it's a damaging life mm. you know particularly as it as it was back in in the day rick flair continued the 80s through image enhancement wearing a pair of shoes that cost more than your house and a rolex that was too damn encrusted with jewels to tell the time with he mentions at one point smelling good now, this is a part of the show now that we yeah. always have to incorporate. I think he would. I think he'd smell like really expensive cologne, but smell clean as well. Like, I don't think the cologne is masking bad smells. I imagine Rick being quite a... You know, he cared so much about how he looked and yeah. being smart and uh, like appealing to women. I think he would shower every day. So oh, yeah. very fresh smelling. Well, what Rick used to do, you know, as well as... Also as well, he dressed in cashmere. I think Rick would smell... Oh, imagine a hug from a cashmere Ric Flair. I mean, I'm just saying, you know, uh, he smells like a clean cashmere sweater. Mm, you know, nicely yeah. laundered, you know, put, putting in hot hot press with some nice beads or something. Like. Just the right... Maybe, <laughs> maybe just too much cologne, but not so much that it's like... <laughs> choking you but just like oh that's a little bit strong Rick. <laughs> Rick is interesting about that you know because you know a lot of people who drink a lot and are kind of are heavy partiers they do have that kind of a bit of a rind on them a bit mm. of a, a bit of a hum so to speak yeah. like. or as as my mum would say a bang of shit off of them like. <laughs> <laughs> but um but Rick what he used to do and this was kind of during the, the peak heydays what it would be is you'd go to the arena you'd have your match then you'd go to the hotel 10 till 3 or thereabouts in the morning. Party, party, party. Cocaine. Vodka and orange juice was the Ric Flair special because it went down easy mm. and it went down smooth and you didn't get a headache from drinking because it was mostly water because the, the ice would melt into the glass. And then what Rick would do is he'd go to the gym at 4 or 5 in the morning after getting an hour or two of sleep and he would hit the Stairmaster and he would exercise for two hours straight. He'd do 500 squats a day and he would, in his own words, sweat out the poisons. Yeah. And this is kind of how you explain the cardio conditioning of Ric Flair. He was pushing his body to the limit and then, like, working it up even some more. Mm. You know, he'd go out and he'd party like a motherfucker like some of these wrestlers would. But then he'd be in the gym on the Stairmaster. Yeah. I've been on a Stairmaster once in my life, folks. And it's the worst flat back bump I've ever taken. <laughs> oh my God, the thing is a killing machine. Yeah. And Ric Flair on that, probably naked, wearing socks and lizard shoes, is a sight I will never get out of my head. So Rick continued the 80s making wrestlers look competent, including Lex Luger and Sting. Like They talked about that match that you and I had watched, the uh, the famous match with Sting. And Sting was like, I mean, I, I didn't really know what I was doing. And Rick would be like, beat your chest, scream, pick me. Like, he would tell him to do everything. Yeah, literally his whole his whole gimmick is designed by Ric Flair. <laughs> like, and he literally said, I have a career... Because Ric Flair deigned it so that he decided, let's make this guy. He's got something. Like very, I can't think of many wrestlers in the modern age of the last 10 years. You could say, pop him in there with him. He'll make him a fucking star. Yeah. At, at, at their behest. You know, man or woman. I can't think of, of anyone in wrestling who's got that skill set. Mm. It's very, very particular. And then we get introduced to a very big part of the late 80s with Ric Flair. 
his group. We've talked about some big groups in wrestling before. Classic groups like the Union and the NWO. Well, this, folks, is the Four Horsemen. Joe, what can you tell me about this collection of men? Well, there's five of them, for one. <laughs> oh, this, was, this did not go down well at all, J.J. Dillon. <laughs> no. Every time they mention the Four Horsemen, it was like when you're on Tinder and you, you want to see the picture, you're trying to work out who in a group photo is the person in the Tinder profile. Oh, I like, hope it's Rick and not Ole. But it's the same <laughs> It's the same group of friends in every picture, so you have absolutely no idea. Oh, I hope it's Arn and not JJ. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, every time they showed the four horsemen, there was five of them, and I had no idea who which one wasn't a horseman. J.J. <laughs> Dillon, who has the glasses, uh, he was their manager, right. so he was not a horseman. Okay. But you had the original lineup, which was Arn Anderson and Ole Anderson. Which look kind of the same. Who were kayfabe brothers, and in kayfabe, Arn Anderson and Ole... Uh, they're Ric Flair's cousins. Okay. So in kayfabe, Arn Anderson is Rick's cousin. Right. And in, in real life, they they were best friends. Yeah. Like, and they were he was his confidant. Hence why he was kind of seen around him a lot throughout his career. Uh, you had Tully Blanchard, father of controversial wrestling figure Tessa Blanchard, mm-hmm. who as uh, as time of recording has just released a controversial statement about her controversial statements. Hooray. But uh, Tully, you may know this as well from AEW, where he manages uh, Sean Spears, yep. the former Ty Dillinger. And then we have J.J. Dillon, who McFoley wrote Fuck You in his book several times because he never got him hired in WWE. Now, isn't one of the horsemen problematic somehow? Ole. Ole Anderson's a very angry man. Right. Um, if bitterness in wrestling towards other wrestlers could take a human form, it would slime together and go... <laughs> and make Ole Anderson... <laughs> who is unquestionably the most bitter, curmudgeon angry, loathsome. And I don't say loathsome that I loathe him, it's just that he, the way he acts, it's like he, want, he, he wants people to hate him. Right. Like, he, feel, he revels in being wrong. And I think in his later years, he struggled with, I think he struggled with some kind of, you know, getting older and stuff like that. And doing, I remember watching a shoot interview with him where all he did was, like, shout at the interviewer for two and a half hours for getting the question wrong. Wow. You know, you know type of thing where he's like, what were your memories weren't you know, booking WCW in the 90s? What kind of question is that? What is this? Wrestling? Yeah. What is it? And he just, you know, keep asking questions like an angry dad. Very so that, antisocial. Yeah. The first, uh, the first horseman to uh, be sent out to the glue factory was uh, Ole. But the Horsemen was a mega group. Like, this was huge. You had the top guy in the world, Ric Flair, the baddest of the bad, and now he had to back up in these studs who were with him. And they were doing stuff in the 80s that, you know, Bischoff was saying was innovative in the 90s with the NWO. Yeah, they, like backstage brawls and yeah. stuff. Yeah, were you shocked to see, like, your Dusty Rhodes getting your crutches kicked out and slammed in car doors? I was, because in our Eric Bischoff episode, I specifically remember in one of the documentaries we watched them saying that the backstage brawl they had with um, Holland Nash was the first ever on screen backstage brawl. Yeah, we can confirm that is bullshit. I'm sorry if I said it was the case, like, but <laughs> yeah, no, they did all sorts of shit here. And this was this was real down and dirty and greasy, like you know, attacking in the fucking car park. We had the rock and roll express getting laid out in the fucking, you know, in the locker room, their blood's all over the flaminate floor. Like, gee, it was Ugh. really, really hardcore stuff. And the horsemen had many, many iterations over the years, some good, some bad, and I'll tell you what, it is definitely an episode in its own right, but it is important to know that, like, that symbol, those four fingers, Mm -hmm. that means a whole hell of a lot to a lot of people in wrestling, like, you know? I mean, I'll never forget, there's a great little gif that's floating around of (laughs) some guy in a WCW audience who just turns to the camera, has a Hulk Hogan sign, rips it up, 
Then does the four horsemen sign, then does two fingers and goes, yeah! <laughs> <laughs> so, like, that symbol, like, basically means old school wrestling for a lot of people. Right. Like, when, when WC, you know, when NWA was on top and that's, you know, when, when, when it was good and all that. So, Ric Flair's in the top of his game. 1989 is considered for many to be Ric Flair's banner year, the best year of his career. He had many, many high-octane matches and feuds, the most notable of which was with one of the most handsome men who's ever graced this podcast, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. They've had many encounters. This one is from the Wrestle War in 1989 for the NWA World Heavyweight Championship. Now, Ricky Steamboat, are you happy to see him back on the pod, Joe? Oh, so happy. I'm always happy for his handsome face to grace our screen. Now, I didn't hype this up for you at all now, did I? I can't remember. because. This match and these series that these two had are held in the highest regard. Oh, really? I would say higher regard even than Macho Man and Ricky Steamboat because that's one match and that has that asterisk of, oh, they wrote down all the stuff. These two had probably, I'd say, a dozen matches over the years, a lot of them in 89. They're all, you know, most of them went up to an hour, usually upwards of 30 minutes at the bare minimum. And they never rehearsed or planned a single thing. That's amazing. It's like, incredible. How do you think wrestlers do that? As in, it's a, a weird question because I don't even know if I could answer that. But like, well, I've I've guessed this before on earlier episodes when I did Sorok, and in Sorok you have little, what is Sorok? Sorry, Sorok, for folks you sorry, don't know. Yeah, so Sorok is a type of dance. Okay, but the idea is it's sort of improvised dance based off of some basic. Um, movements that you can then interpret to go into other movements. Could we have a Ciroc gimmick for a wrestler? Could that work? You need kind of two. Oh, a tag team. <laughs> yeah, to kind of do it together. So basically, the, the idea Ciroc is. Ciroc and roll connection. Yeah. It would work. <laughs> the idea is, is if you put your hand out in a certain way with a certain gesture while doing a certain thing with your leg, your opponent knows, ah, I'm going to do a twirl. Right, okay. Or we're going to do a certain sidestep. So your stance almost is giving away your next movement. Yeah, exactly. So it's your entry to the first movement dictates like your second movement. So it's almost kind of like chess. You're kind of... you. I was going to say, it's almost like Smash or like any kind of really super competitive fighting game where you have to know the exact animation that precedes something to then preempt it. That is a perfect, perfect comparison. It's it's exactly (laughs) like that. Brother, you have what it takes... 60 minutes, Fox, no items, final, woo, destination. <laughs> I mean, he, Ricky in the dock, he says like, I kind of glance up at the ropes and then Rick would know, I'm going to go into the ropes, go up top, yeah. then I'm going to throw them off and then we're going to do something after that. But like, to know that this match that we're about to watch is completely separate in format and ethos to the match we watched with Ricky Steamboat last time, I think that's worth bearing in mind. Now, these matches they've had are all very legendary. Rick says the best one that they had wasn't televised. It just happened randomly in some house show. And he said the you know, 3,000 who were there that night saw probably the best wrestling match ever and they'll never get to see it again. Like, oh, so wow. Anytime you see Ricky Steamboat and Ric Flair together... It's going to be gold. Some think this is the best. Others think that their match in New Orleans is better. I mean, there's lots of other things. I will say as well, this is the match that sets up the Ric Flair-Terry Funk match we did in a recent episode as well. Ah, yes. So, Ric Flair comes out ready for battle, accompanied by a literal army of babes. 46 beautiful, shiny women. 46. 
I was thinking they should have had a lumberjack match that had all the beautiful women around the edge. 46 beautiful women. Now, he has six leading ladies who link his arm when he walks out. Then he has 40 women in grey who kind of line the aisle and all around the outsides. And I would say, bad strategy from Ricky Steamboat. He came out with 45 less women. Yeah, he did, yeah. And a little boy. You know, that's a real... real, (laughs) And a horse. And a horse. How we I mean, describe Ricky's entrance? Compare and contrast, please. Okay, so Ricky comes out with his wife, and his kid is riding a white horse. At first, I thought Ricky was on the white horse. I was like, he's tiny. No, it was his. <laughs> it was his boy, who's about two. Oh god, my kind of heart went out for that boy. He looks very much like Angela from The Office would put him in a calendar. Yeah, like, you know, it's a, it's a bit indignant. Well, like, I love this. You have the the flamboyant excess of the 80s, fucking Ric Flair with a with 25 women in every port. And then you got Ricky Steamboat with his wife and young son. Yeah. Like the fucking family man versus the alley cat. Yeah. I love this. <laughs> the logo for Wrestle War, not that, you know, Andy Boy hasn't struggled enough with, you know, negative Southern stereotypes, but the logo for this is just a banjo. It's yeah. like a clip art of a banjo. Yeah, it's great. Welcome to Wrestle War. <laughs> I'm trying to think of a even less appropriate a joke. logo. Yeah, a joke. Maybe. Or a guy in a rocking chair going back and forth <laughs> with a long piece of wheat in his mouth, like you know. Or like a racist police officer just giving you a dirty look. <laughs> so one thing is immediately obvious here: you've got speed for days. I don't think these guys take a rest. And even in the submission holes, Rick is fucking jigging about and running around and slapping his arm and all that. Rick in his prime, like, what, what, how would you describe his style here? Was this something that you enjoyed seeing? Was this like the Sting match for you or like anything else you had seen? No, this was different from the Sting match. Although I couldn't exactly say how, because mm. I mean, it's been a while since we watched the, the Sting match. The Sting match is more about his power overcoming yeah. Rick, whereas this is more about the speed and technique of Ricky Steamboat. Yeah. Who, good guy Ricky Steamboat, just targets the arm like a shark the entire match. Like, there is... Look, if you want it, and this is what you like in wrestling, there's psychology for days here. Yeah. Every, every move that they do makes sense. It follows a logical sequence. Yeah, yeah. Every move that they do, there's a greater than half chance that it's the same move that you've already seen them do. That's also true. Arm drags, arm bar, chop, drop kick, punch. Yeah. And there's not a lot of hip toss, maybe. Yeah, yeah. But I don't think it's fair to hold that against the match, necessarily. No. I don't know. I mean, I think there are some people who would watch this and kind of go, they're not going to have to do it a whole ton, are they? Like, you know, where's my springboard so-and-so? Mm. You know, where's the top rope this, that, and the other? Although they do they do go off the top rope a few times. They do, yeah. Uh, Ric Flair's selling in this, I absolutely love. Oh, so both of them do really, really great selling. Rick, is he a noisy boy in the ring? Yes, he's. We, we had a discussion about this, about the different types of grunts. Yes, we need to bring this up with Adam as well yeah. like, from the ITR podcast, because this, this could be a breakthrough in the analysis of grunts that Joe's come up with here. I really think it is. So we, we noticed that, obviously, The Undertaker, he's a, an offensive grunter. <laughs> yeah, he'll make grunts as he's attacking. Whereas Rick Flair, he's a, a defensive grunter. So. <laughs> Yeah, he'll grunt as he's being attacked. Ah, Diva Christ! Oh God! I it's like it's like Terry Funk. Like Terry Funk, yeah. Just bellowing. He get a suplex, and then the second later. <laughs> I would love a wrestler whose gimmick is that they cry like a baby. <laughs> 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 
Chuck Taylor used to do like a high pitch, like, oh, yeah, if he would get great, a chop, yeah. he'd go, it's so fucking funny. I, yeah, Rick, Rick is unbelievable with the facial expressions. And I tell you what, as someone who also has a weird tooth, even though Ric Flair is custom made, twinkly eyed, perfect, manicured, perfection head to toe. He's Mr. Shiny. He's got a, he's got a weird tooth like like your old pal he's got Cowboy a Kevin. Of weird teeth. He hasn't yeah, he's he's definitely he's not got the teeth you'd expect from a character like that. No, me and Rick have got old Chomper here to to open up any cans that we may have lying around <laughs> the house like Ricky is constantly holding on to the arm and what happens in this match as well is that as all this offense is happening they're doing this thing with the judges. You know, we mentioned the judge, Terry Funk, who will challenge him later for, for another match. But the judges, we're told, every 15 minutes are going to update the announcers on the points that they've scored. Who has had the most offense, who's had the most successful counter-wrestling, yada, yada, yada. And like the start of the match, it's all in the favor of, of Ricky Steamboat. They get this in. And then later on, it becomes a split decision and Rick kind of has a bit of a comeback. And I didn't think I'd care for it because honestly, I'm not the biggest like sports presentation man. Like, I don't care about that that much. I think wrestling doesn't need it necessarily. I mean, it can be enhanced by it, but I really did actually get into this. I was like, oh, I wonder what the, the judges are going to say. And I actually found myself agreeing with them and it actually made the match make a bit more sense mm-hmm. that you had people saying, yes, he was in control for this part. And then announcers speculating why the momentum has shifted. Right. Like The announcers are like, oh, I think Rick... He held back purposely for the first 15 and then now he's bringing out his extra reserves. He wanted Ricky to tire himself out and now it's backfired so Rick's on the back foot even more. I was like, oh shit, you're doing a really good job here making this actually... Like the commentary was really excellent in this one, I thought. Yeah, Ricky falls into the first row at one point and there's a particular woman there who cannot keep her hands off him. It's like when the Pope was trying to shake people's hands recently. Like Ricky just <laughs> has to give her a slap like, no! <laughs> Stop that. You'd leave the dragon alone. The fans do love Ricky Steamboat. They sure do. I and mean, that, you that, can see why. That barrier is not necessarily a barrier to entry to no. uh, Ricky Steamboat. No. Uh, we get something we see a lot in Ric Flair matches. A little bit of bum. We did, yes. And I said at this point, because I knew that Rick had a penchant for getting naked, Ooh. I did ask if this was a common theme in his matches where oh, yeah. his bum is out. And it turns out I was right. Yeah, we did watch a bit of... Uh, you know, we watched a lot of matches that we didn't kind of go through for notes-wise, just to fill out the blanks a bit. We did watch Ric Flair and Jay Lethal and TNA in, in 2010. And you got to see that 58-year-old bum then, didn't you, Joe? I sure did. It's a good bum. Yeah, good stuff. No downtime in this match. They do not stop at all. And like, I think what I would say happens most in this match is it lulls you into kind of thinking it's it's the sequence is happening. And then randomly I found myself being gripped. Like there was a moment where Ricky Steamboat was, you know, had a bit of momentum and he was kicking ass. He was beating Rick. And I was like, okay, yeah, Rick's Rick's on the on the defensive now. And then Rick kind of stumbled and he just fell into the ropes. Ah, yes. That was my top spot actually ah. for this match. Yeah. So Ricky was climbing the the ropes and then rick does his flop forward into the ropes just as he's like as ricky's climbed the top rope thus shaking him off the rope and falling to the outside love that because he didn't intentionally do it it's just like really cool drama and circumstance the flare flop i think i saw you laugh every single time he did it i love it and it made me think that there should be a wrestler who does a backwards flop so the flare flop just so can you describe it for folks who maybe don't know what, what that means it's kind of like he trips himself up and falls on his face really amazing thing to be it's able to do it's so like comedic it's the type of thing that you can imagine like a like a physical comedian to pull off i remember kids in the playground 
trying to do oh my god front face things like that and just broken noses yeah. yeah bloody noses and stuff like that rick kind of he kind of almost like lifts himself up a little yeah, bit he does, like, yeah. it's amazing so yeah the flare flops uh, uh, uh one that you enjoy a lot then i love it so you want to see a different type of flop in wrestling yeah i want to see someone just flop backwards onto their back like dull boy falling through the bar oh but that's a side flop yeah i know but this is a back flop not a mm. side flop but but the yeah. same kind of like the upright rigidness of it where you just kind of topple now i think triple h used to do that a bit he used to do a thing where he would like jump off the top rope and then he'd get kicked in the face and then he would kind of like make out that his body had went into shock and he was dazed and he'd get a load of moves and he would slowly fall backwards. Like. And would he stay rigid as he Yeah, he would, and he would just go, go like kind of a, a tree falling yeah. or something like cool. that. Very funny. I think more people, sh- like it gets a pop every single time. And because the, the benefit of being a professional wrestler is you have a really tough back. Yeah. So, you know, most physical comedians who can do a, a backwards flop for comedic effect, you know, they're not wrestlers. They're not toughened wrestlers like these guys are. Some of the flare flops though, like there's the, the delayed flare flop is my favorite. The one where he gets a whack and then he'll walk up and he'll like look at you right in the eye and he'll swing his arm left and right and then do a big whoop. Like, you know, he'll his body continues to work out the orders that it's already been given and then that's it, flare flop so fucking funny like yeah. so so good and like a big part of this match is that Ricky Steve wants to work in the arm because his finisher is the chicken wing and you asked me what the chicken wing was and I described it to you and I'm not just putting Joe in submission holes all the time now but I did think it make a very did do a good job because Rick was selling his arms so much that when he finally did get the chicken wing in, you freaked out. Well, the reason I freaked out is because I used to put my brother in that. Joe! A lot, yeah. Yeah. There's going to be an explanation. Just like uh, I did it. Just, I've, you know, if if he tried to hit me or we we're fighting, I just whoop arm around the back, yeah. up it goes, hold it in place. You're not moving now. <laughs> and that's how Joe became the NWA World Champion. Like. <laughs> so again, something about this match with so many counters and momentum shifts, you don't know where the end's going to come, and it comes when Ricky's leg just buckles, and it doesn't lead to the figure four. His leg buckling leads to Rick getting an inside cradle getting the quick pin and Rick wins the match and I think it's a face turn for Rick because he then you know, raises Ricky Steamboat's hand and that was great about Rick he could turn between face and heel so easily because his wrestling was so good all he had to do was say you're a hell of a man brother you know great match and then all of a sudden he's a good guy and people mm. are like yay Ric Flair I didn't try and hype it up I don't think this suffered from like Ricky Steamboat breaking into tears about how great the matches were but they did talk about how they were unbelievable opponents for each other they had chemistry, you know, for days. How did you find the match? I liked this match. I didn't love it, but yeah. it, it was a good match. I gave it three and a half stars out of five. Mm. I was surprised that there was no blood in this match because I feel every time I've seen like a clip of Ric Flair doing a match or even doing a promo, he's more often than not drenched in blood. Uh, for instance, when I showed Joe the promo where he's meant to just talk about, you know, his near-death experiences and that's why he doesn't fear Triple H in 2005. And he's like, you see this? And he slaps the stitches that he has. And then, whoa, he's covered head to toe in blood. Going, Bleh! And he's chased Triple H with a baseball bat and he's lit. Like, I'm talking Roman Reigns WrestleMania against yeah. Brock Lesnar. Uh-oh. We accidentally hit a blood valve. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Flair's got a lot of blood in his body, I think. So as we were into the late 80s, and this is obviously all happening in the MWA, and concurrently, Vince McMahon is probably five years deep now into his national expansion, and things are going very, very well. 
And the WWF was doing something that the NWA always struggled with historically, which was merchandise. You had the likes of Hogan, Savage, everyone who was making big money off of t-shirts, lunchboxes, duvet covers, action figures. They were being marketed because they were marketable. Ric Flair didn't even have a t-shirt when he was in the NWA. That's so fucked up. Because, ah. he, you know, you come to the shows, you, you, you pay... To your ticket and that's kind of it. I think the four horsemen had a, had a vitamin supplements at one point. What? Yeah, you could buy four horsemen vitamins, which I'm not sure if that was just cocaine in a tabler or whatever, but yeah. So, you know, the NWA was trying to compete and it was, as a result of that, overstretching itself and there was many ways to respond to Vince McMahon and trying to be a regional territory that's part of a conglomerate of territories but at the same time start competing in Vince McMahon's areas head-to-head which is what the Crockett's were doing specifically David it didn't work out for them they were overstretching themselves and then they had no real choice they were losing money hand over fist or not making enough to keep everyone on board so they end up selling Crockett promotions and the bulk of the kind of NWA talent to Ted Turner and that's how WCW was formed and WCW is marred then for many years with a constant slew of corporate executives who don't really understand the wrestling business now we touched on this with Bischoff yeah but uh Jim Hurd aka Stuart Lee in his most recent stand-up special the most evil man to ever hold a telephone Joe as you can tell from the incredibly villainous music they use every time he's on screen <laughs> what was the problem with Jim Hurd, former Pizza Hut executive, they can all be Reggie folks, and Ric Flair the Nature Boy? So there was a, a big issue between Jim Hurd, brackets, Pizza Hut executive, not all of them can be Reggie folks, I'm sorry, and the Nature Boy Ric Flair. I mean, he thought that Rick was overpaid. Rick was doing booking and stuff like that, and he thought that Rick was not contributing enough. And he also thought, in his infinite I've never watched wrestling knowledge, that he was going to cut Rick Flair's hair, give him an earring and a Roman shield, and the name Spartacus. Why an earring? Because he was Greek. I don't know. Like it's so yeah, he wanted him to look like a Roman centurion, basically, but be called Spartacus. Right. Rick Flair. Great, okay. Brother, when I introduce you to currency it will be the biggest man on the biggest aqueduct on the biggest road in the biggest legion (laughs) in the biggest empire no it wouldn't have worked really for rick flair and yeah rick had a lot of issues with jim the chief among which and one that you were really perturbed by was the whole business with the championship belt they wanted rick to drop the belt to Lex Luger, Rick had already arranged to drop it to someone else. That's such a Rick thing. I'm not going to job to him because I've already agreed to job to someone else. <laughs> a Bret Hart dilemma that is not. I love that as well because I hate Lex Luger. <laughs> yeah, in fairness, like he's not giving you much reason to think he's anything other than a piece no. of shit, has he? No. So what happened with the belts then? So I didn't realise this, but apparently back in the day, wrestlers who were given the belt had to put, pay a deposit of... About $25,000. And you had found this out for inflation, didn't you? Yeah, I did. I worked out what it would be to, in today's money. And that's the equivalent of 60 grand. <laughs> Even for Ric Flair, that's a lot of money. That's like so much money. Like, I can only imagine that's like, you know, what, half their salary for the year? Could you like, figure out why they would make a champion pay a deposit like that? I mean, you kind of explained it to me, which was, it was the idea that they would 
feel a sense that it was worth more because they invested their own money. They're more likely to look after it. You know, it protects them for insurance reasons. I mean, there, there was obviously, you know, bringing this championship around the world, there was an insurance factor. That yeah. There was a cost to that. But I think, yeah, you're. It, it's like having... You having a fiscal stake in it means you're not going to go, oh, fuck this, I'm taking the belt and I'm going home. Yeah. It's like, no, you're not going to just write eat pussy on the wall of your flat and then leave. You want your security deposit back. If exactly. You, exactly. So it's pretty much the same thing. It's to make sure that we can do business. Yeah. And Rick was like, yeah, I'm not going to drop the, I'll drop the belt. That's fine to whomever, but I want my $25,000 back. Yeah. Which they weren't going to give him. Which is so unreasonable. So he just kept the belt. <laughs> kept the belt, which meant that in WCW when they finally had their championship match for the vacant belt and god what a great executive the first thing you do is you come in you get rid of the most popular person and like, the belt and the championship like, this would be like if you came into WWF in like late 1998 and fired Stone Cold Steve Austin and got rid of the big gold eagle belt like <laughs> what the actual fuck yeah. like? how was this guy getting paid to do this job so Rick keeps the belt he heads off and when they finally crown their champion it's an old belt from Dusty's defunct Florida days and they just like sellotape this like gold plate over it <laughs> that's really shitty like yeah it's awful and that is how we tie into another episode or two of this podcast because rick heads over to wwf in the early 90s as the real world's champion he's got bobby heenan as his manager mr perfect as his executive consultant He's entered into the Royal Rumble to prove himself that he is the man. And this is stuff we've covered in Heenan, Mr. Perfect, and our commentary episode, that Royal Rumble 1992 performance, which is like the stuff of mastery. Like, yeah. Would you feel like you'd ever want to rewatch that now, knowing a bit more about Rick and paying more attention to him as opposed to the commentary yeah, and stuff? Yeah, definitely, I would. Absolutely. Such an all-time great, great match. Like, But yeah, the real world's champion. He, he actually had the, the big gold belt. And Vince would digitize it because he didn't want to get sued. (laughs) (laughs) And the actual, they made another big gold belt in WCW. He never gave it back. Wow. And the gold belt that Rick took from WCW in the early 90s, he then gave it to Triple H as a gift. Aww. And it was like, the only thing I wish about this is that he gave him a letter and it was like, the only thing I wish more is that I could have given this to you in the ring in the 80s at my prime as opposed to giving it to you as a gift. Like... So that's kind of... I like this as a happy story. Very rarely does someone nick in a belt end happily. Yeah. You know, this has happened twice in ECW and Brett, and it's never really been a happy story. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, he said that before he went to WBF, it was, and I quote, the worst time in my career besides Bischoff. So we have that to look forward to wow. at the moment. Wow. They talk about how Hogan and Ric Flair was a big match that was going to happen in WWF, and it never ended up happening because of one thing or another. Do you feel robbed as a wrestling fan that we never got to see a WrestleMania Hogan versus Ric Flair? Is that a match that intrigues you? I feel I'm the wrong person to ask about (laughs) this because obviously my answer is no, I do not feel robbed. And you know what? Neither does Rick. Yeah, he's totally cool. They won't make it like it's a thing. And he's like, no. no." He was interviewed on several occasions about this and he was like, I have no regrets. I have absolutely no regrets about my matches with Hogan. We had the matches that we were meant to have. Yeah, had them in WCW. Had them in WCW and they were great. We didn't need to have it at WrestleMania. Yeah, it would have been grand. Didn't need to happen. I mean, that would have denied the world of Macho Man versus Ric Flair, which is a great match. And also Hulk Hogan versus Sid Justice, which is not a good mm. match. <laughs> but yeah, he had like a short run there and like he was 
you know, there for a year or two, I think. Right. You know, he had that great match with Mr. Perfect. You know, he, he dropped the belt to, to Bret Hart. He helped make a lot of people then there again. And like literally Vince went to him and said, look, Rick, we're on, you know, on an agreement here, but I want to let you know. Now it's coming up to 1995 and Hogan is gone. Hogan's gone off to Hollywood that I'm going to do the new generation. I'm going to be pushing the young guys, Brett, Razor, Diesel, Shawn Michaels. These are going to be like the guys kind of from now on. And you can stay here, but if you stay here, I will be using you for for that purpose. Because you're in your 40s now, they're in their 20s. Now, I can't remember if Vince did something similar with Macho Man. No, Vince just put him on commentary. Ah. That's different. Vince didn't... But let's think, though, because Vince said, like... It's weird, because like, Rick kind of felt like he was visiting, almost. Mm. Whereas Macho was, like, a part of the fucking furniture at that yeah. point. And I, I get it, though. That's more respectful to Rick to give him the option, say, you can stay but you will be put in this position or you can go back there where I'm sure they'll be fucking clamoring to have Ric Flair back at WCW. And like Macho Man, it was more like, yeah, you don't worry. You'll be on commentary tonight. All right. You know, mm. Maybe if you're good, you can wrestle crush next year. Like, you know, something <laughs> like that. And uh, Ric Flair with the most depressing quote about returning to WCW. There's no going back, which is what I found out when I went back. No. It's meant to be Bill Watts who's taking charge. Uh, Bill Watts, who is a friend of Rick's, noted racist Bill Watts, who thinks that if you're black, he shouldn't have to serve you in his restaurant because that's his right as an American citizen. Cool, but, cool. Um, is he still alive? Uh, he is. He also booked the first black world champion, so he feels he has an out for his racism. But wow. there you go. But uh, unfortunately, who takes over literally the day before Rick arrives from Bill Watts, who didn't get on well in the never-ending rotating horror show lineup of executives? Ole Anderson is in charge. Who then says to Rick, you just lost to Kurt Hennig on TV. What fucking good are you to me now? I don't get that at all. It's what Mr. Fuck? Perfect. Like, what What do you want? There you go. Oh, he's not, he's, but he's only Larry Hennig's kid. What, what good is only? he? Only? Yeah, he's that's, that's Mr. It. Perfect. He's great. It was a great match. What the fuck? One of the best wrestlers of all time. I, I know. It's just, that's, that's Ole though. Because he just felt that, well, here's a guy coming back. So if he's coming back, he can't be treated like a big star. He he needs to be he needs to know that he can't leave again, and he needs to know his place. And he should be grateful. And like this is now where Rick's real kind of anxiety start coming to the forefront. Like imagine leaving, coming back. You know, he, he felt he said WWF reinvigorated him. You know, that two year run, he felt great again. And then straight back to this, he felt even worse. But don't worry, because Ole Anderson with his curmudgeonly ways and you can't get thrown over the top rope or can't leave the ring, we're getting rid of him. Don't worry. There's a young kid down in marketing who Rick's got his eye on and is going to give him the nod for the job. And his name is Eric Bischoff. And this immediately reminded me, and sorry for this deep cut, <laughs> but the morning show where Jennifer yeah. Aniston's character is like... To cut off her nose despite her face hires Reese Witherspoon. Reese Witherspoon, yeah. exactly. Thinking I'm gonna fuck will, everyone yeah, up. Yeah, fuck like. everyone up, but it won't fuck me up. Oh shit, it's fucked me up too. <laughs> now all I wrote down here in my notes once we get into Ric Flair talking about this, having just done the Bishop episode, which I maintain much like doing Vince before Brett, this was important to do. But I wrote down, prepare yourself for a wildly different version of events. <laughs> Well, me and Rick are just pretty much cool. We you know, have a steak and a beer. He comes out does fly fishing in Arizona with me. Um, no, Rick is really upset about this period. Yeah. Rick gets Bischoff the job. Bischoff needs a coup. He gets the connection with Hogan. Yep. Macho Man, Bobby Heenan, Mean Gene, all these names that Rick helps get in the door. 
course, you know, Eric would say that he didn't do any of that, but Rick is... No, 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 no. To be fair, Eric Eric does say in his documentary, and I know we mentioned this in an episode, he does give Rick credit for getting Hogan and Macho Man. That is my Eric Bischoff bias that is sleeping through there. But here's the thing. You bring in these big top stars into the uh, WCW. Who's the top bad guy at the time? Well, it's Big Van Vader. And Big Van Vader isn't the type of guy who's going to be losing to Hulk Hogan anytime soon. So Hogan comes in and he has four matches against Ric Flair where he loses all four times. Rick. Who Rick does. Rick does. So Hogan beats Rick four times. And here's the thing that really is weird. He beat Rick four times before he wrestled anyone else. Why? I don't know. Like, here's the outside guy. Beat the hometown, beat the homegrown guy over and over and over and over Fun. again. Then Macho Man comes in. Guess who he beats four times before he uh, wrestles anyone else? No. Yeah. Why? Because again, gotta get Macho over, brother. So Rick basically spent most of the mid 90s just losing. Being a jobber. Yeah, just losing, 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 losing. And like, here's the thing with Rick when he's begging off and he's going, no, brother. And. When it's part of a high octane match with like a Ricky Steamboat or a Stig, and he's begging off, and he's begging off because he's crafty and he's just gonna give himself a breath, and you know it's part of the gimmick. But when he's just getting his ass beat and then he's begging off, going no, and it just made him. It really did. It it did a lot of damage to him. I bet. But I think it did more damage to his view of himself yeah. than the fans because the fans still were behind him. It's yeah it really got me thinking about the importance of like standing up for yourself or at the very least having someone to stand up for you and it got me thinking about sherry and like where Mm. she would have been at this point yeah in wcw as well actually yeah because she would have been with the this would have been when flair went back to wcw him and sherry were paired together but then shortly after that would have been harlem heat so yeah this would have been around that time yeah she was kind of not really I hate to say that she was kind of drifting, but she was. She was. No, she was. She was drifting. By WCW, she was. Yeah. And, like, it really seemed like she needed someone who she could help, like, look after and someone who she could kind of control a bit. But Like, like she did with Shawn like Michaels. Like she did with yeah. Shawn Michaels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was a, he's a guy who has is full of anxieties and, you know, was, certain things about the industry made him very scared and she was really good to, like, look out for him. You're and absolutely I think it, right. It was yeah. a very mutually beneficial relationship for them. And I think she could have so easily paired up with Rick and it would have done him the world of good for his self-confidence. Seriously. He would have had someone for, fight for his corner and sort of stand up for himself and go, no, look, Rick, you're worth more than this. I will fight for you. And think how good they look together as well. They're both so shiny and yeah. beautiful. Like, I mean, you know, the, the the little bits that of their brief tenure together were so great. chaotic. But like, it just felt, unfortunately, like kind of wrong place for wrong time yeah. you know it kind of felt like you want sherry from a few years ago and like rick from a few years after that like mm. it just wasn't meant to be but you know he's getting beaten by all these guys and rick said i didn't mind getting beaten by him my problem was that the guy beating me had a salary 10 times bigger than me that's so ridiculous you know and rick was of the belief that contrary to what he was being told to his face that they wanted him gone but this was their way of saying like you should you shouldn't go you 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 should go. We've got Hogan and Macho Man now. You should go. You're all right, like. And this is where the depression sets in, like, you know. They give him a match and says, right, it's you versus Hogan in a steel cage match. And straight away he's like, well, I'm losing that because bad guys don't win steel cage matches. I didn't even realise that was a thing. <laughs> well, think about it. I mean, very often it's, yeah. it's, usually the, it's usually the punishment for the baddie. They get put in the cage yeah, so they yeah. can't escape or have their mates come in. And, like, it's like they go and they say to him, oh, the tickets aren't selling very well. We've got, you know, Shaquille O'Neal... In, in Hogan's corner and Mr. T is a special guest referee 
tickets aren't moving for him to beat you for the like imagine that as well if you say what we will about WWE booking they're gonna give you the same match four pay-per-views in a row no they'll give it to you four rolls in a row that's different. yeah yeah or three <laughs> pay-per-views in a row but like how are they surprised yeah surprisingly no one wants to see Ric Flair who's been beaten three or four times already so they're like can you put your career on the line retirement match he's like all right, we'll move some tickets. Oh, it's so sad to think that he didn't realise... What they were doing, like... Well, no, I think he Or realized, his own worth. Yeah, his own worth, exactly. He didn't realise that he could look at himself and go, I'm Ric Flair. I don't need this. You think that WWF run where he literally went in, much, you know, he was, he was approaching his 40s, you know, and he was able to go in, make the money that he did, be on top, you know, headline WrestleMania, headline Royal Rumble, all that jazz. Yeah. You think that would be the pat in the back that he needed but i think you you look at his his colleagues as well people like bret hart or people who came after him like Shawn michaels and stone cold steve austin the rock and yeah you know even mick foley like they're all people who believed in themselves and knew their worth and they wouldn't let themselves be trodden all over like that i mean all the times that bret was being trodden and all the lows and there are many lows in the highs and lows of bret's career but yeah, that was something we were chatting about. I think at any point, Bret Hart was like, who am I anymore? But yeah. no, Or like, no one wants to see Bret Hart anyway. He yeah. knew he had fans. He yeah. knew his worth. He knew he was, you know, the excellence of execution, you know. And it's so funny that Rick, as a someone who is pointing out, we said at the start of this episode, oh, the lines are so blurred between him and his character. We really think about it. His character is not a fucking anxiety-ridden, depressed, loss of sense of self. I think Rick actually does go quite far from his character. Mm. I think the fact that him and his character are meant to be the same, and people tell him that all the time during yeah. this period, probably makes it work yeah. worse. Like, you're meant to be Ric Flair. Definitely. You know, and they say, oh, you've got to retire. You'll be gone for a year. A month later, Vader won't job to Hogan, so he has to come back and lose oh, again. No. There was a match that they had where Ric Flair wasn't even in it, he ran out to interfere, got beat up, given the leg drop, one, two, three. He ran out and lost a match on someone's behalf. That's like something that would happen to The Miz, like, (laughs) seven years ago. (laughs) Now, that's something that happened to The Miz on the real world, or tough enough. It wouldn't even happen in WWE, like. Oh, God. So, yeah. Triple H says in the documentary, you know, he just let it happen, you know? He's, he's let it happen to himself and he didn't stick up for himself. See, I wonder if there's a certain part of him that thought maybe he deserved it. Do you think he felt guilty about the, the, the family stuff? Maybe that's it, yeah. He yeah. thought maybe this is payment for me being a bad husband and a bad father. I mean, later on, you know, the years that you go at Rick, the guilt does seem to rack up. Like, Yeah, he, definitely. He, he's not, you know, he's not like someone who's got his fingers in his ears about his kids, like, say, maybe Stone Cold or some of the people. Yeah. It's, like, it's just not part of their life. He, he is quite racked with guilt and, yeah. you know, Rightly so, I guess, because yeah. his kids have been hurt by it. But yeah, he says that, you know, it was been let happen to him. There's a bit of the documentary that really made me laugh where it's like, he let this happen to him when people with no talent were getting shots at the top. And, and it got to DDP ah! immediately. <laughs> Poor Come DDP. On. He has talent. He's got a different type of talent. Yeah. It's not fair. No yeah. talent. You could have used... David Arquette, come on, even still, like, (laughs) yeah, it's very, very mean, and, you know, Rick blames a lot of this on Bischoff, obviously, and he said with Bischoff, he kept everyone at odds, you know, contrary to Bischoff's and other people's claims about Bischoff, that it was inmates running the asylum and everyone was all over the place, he didn't know who to believe, Flair believes 
that Bischoff purposely kept, you know, Sting and Luger, their friends, let's keep them together, I'll tell them one thing, Hogan and them, his buddies, you know, we'll tell them one thing, Hall, Nash, you know, Waltman, they'll hear this version of events, Flair, Arn, you know, the, the Horseman guys, they'll hear this version of events, and keeping everyone at odds so you didn't know who to believe, and you were questioning yourself. I totally believe that. Because I think there's a lot more message of the madness than people were led to believe with Bischoff. You know? Well, like, I just think of, like, you know, certain companies, the way they work. Yes. And Eric Bischoff is a company man. He's an executive by his nature. I've I've been in skills where they purposely, yeah. you know, I've been in department, you know, double departments and like one one thing in one department yeah. and another thing in another department exactly. for the same person. Exactly, I've worked person. in businesses where the exact same thing has happened, where yeah. marketing have kept very separate from, like, sales because they don't want them talking about the numbers and, all. Oh, they don't want them getting too friendly. What the fuck, like? It's like, no, no, we've got to keep all these departments separate and don't talk to each other and, all oh, spread a secret here and a rumour here. I mean, and that's that's the, uh, the 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 cloak and dagger part. I mean, this is the cloak part of Bischoff's uh, campaign against Ric Flair. The dagger part is holding several town hall meetings to tell everyone he, Ric Flair never drew a dime in the wrestling industry, and uh, he was going to destroy his family, put him out in the streets, make him homeless. That's so fucked up. Eric Bischoff, get a fucking life. Jesus Christ, like, take up a hobby. Where's your fly fishing now? Like, Jesus, <laughs> go, chill go out. Go brew a beer. Yeah. Like, what the fuck? Like, I need this thing as well. He was saying that about Rick and he was also saying about, you know, WWF, Vince is real and I'm going to put him out of business. Exhausting. And, like, this was the bit that I think was, was really important to hear from Rick. He was shaking his head at disbelief of this whole thing. He's like, I cannot believe this mindset of all the people, not just Bischoff, you have Bischoff, Scott Hall, Hogan, Nash, all these people who are thinking, I'm going to put him out of business. And he's like, what is this mindset? This person who you owe your livelihood and this industry to, how does it benefit us to rip the wrestling industry apart like yeah. this? Shouldn't we just focus on being the best that we can be and let them get on with us? I thought it was so refreshing seeing Rick talk about the WBF during this rivalry time. Yeah. He was like, you know what? I think they made us better. And he's right. They did. Yeah. Absolutely. Some healthy competition can be a very, very good thing for the wrestling industry. And he realised that. Yeah. It's and like, realized, no one should be putting people out of business, yeah. like, purposely, you like, know? absolutely. Be a bit competitive. But you don't need to start talking about making people homeless. No. And, like, I don't think, like fans gain much from that predatory bit of tactics it makes the booking really weird it means that people aren't focused on what they should be focused on but all means like if you're a company that can't then draw you know because someone else is doing it better than you that's survival of the fittest like yeah. you know and then you know those companies don't don't exist anymore but i think if, if wcw put half the energy into like preserving the legend of like people like rick flair because that's the thing people would still come to all these shows who are flair fans they're all doing the four horsemen sign even though the four horsemen's got fucking mongo in it now and like you know, Rick was getting jobbed out constantly to much younger guys. There was compilation after compilation, the 30 for 30 doc of him losing to just like, not even names. Like people, I'd have a hard time explaining to you who the fuck they were. Like how can I explain why Disco Inferno beat Ric Flair clean so many times? I can't tell you. I can't tell you, you know? It's, it's just sad. Rick would go out there and do his job. And you know, he had a similar thing with Bischoff, as we talked about, where Bischoff was threatening legal action. Rick went home, no-showed. Again, he was gone for a while, came back, feuded with Eric Bischoff. Very personal, very weird. But here's the thing. We did mention it briefly in the Eric episode. The reason why Rick took his ball and went home was because his son Reed was kicking ass as a young grade school competitor in amateur wrestling. Right. And he was in the finals or something. He's like, I'm going to go see it. And he's like, no, we need you for Thunder. He's like, I'm going to see it. Like, I'm going to see my son and support it. 
And like you hear David in the earlier parts of the documentary say, not a single Little League game. He'd say, come to my birthday. He wouldn't come to my birthday. And you can see Rick now with Reed particularly. They had footage of him and like him in Reed's corner at these little high school gym meets. Like it's fucking adorable how much Rick yeah. was there for him. Yeah, like, he's, he seems like like ideal dad. He's making up for lost time. It feels yeah, like definitely. Although, what a fucking intimidation factor if you're some fucking nine year old yeah, and the nature Rick boys Flair. in your opponent's corner, <laughs> like you know, you're grabbing at your foot, like you know, rolling in a chair when it's not going Reed's way. So, like, yeah, this is important to bear in mind. In the late nineties, Rick, even though he was being pummeled in his self identity and his self belief. He really was trying to make more time for, for his family. I think the worst bit for me was when Eric Bischoff cut a promo about Rick being broke and only wrestling Eric for the money. He was like, ah, yeah, Rick needs this money. That's why he has to wrestle me. Right, that may be true, but like, don't say that. Yeah, like, come on. I mean, Rick's, He's your employee! Rick's finances are bad. and I mean, I don't think it's the job of... <laughs> Rick was like, can you believe that? He was an executive yeah. for a multimedia conglomerate on national telly saying this shit about me. That is like pretty outside the pale, yeah, right? Pretty unprofessional. <laughs> Referred to WCW closing as the happiest day of his life. And like, I was quite shocked when you told me that you never really viewed that Rick was a WCW guy. Yeah. He's featured so heavily in the WWE. Like, I feel like most of the times I've seen him is is in the WWE because yeah. I guess that's the company that survived. So that's the company I watched. We've watched a fair bit of WCW now, for better yeah. or for worse. And yeah, the thing that that is, that's Rick's home. You know, That's yeah. where he was for most of his career, really. Yeah. But the happiest day of his life to see it go out of business. I'm not surprised. <laughs> I don't blame him. Wrestling in a t-shirt at the end with Sting. Oh, that was so sad because he looked the same. It wasn't like he was, you know, in worse shape or anything. He was wrestling just as well as he always did. You notice that his hair was all like kind of spiky and stuff. Yeah. It's because they basically said, we're going to have your head shaved off as part of an angle. And, oh. you know, he had you know, he had the beautiful fucking hair. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, just do it. Whatever, man. Oh, you know. That's so sad. And his hair grows back all spiky and weird. Like that being your dad. Seeing that happen. See, to like him. that's that's the thing that kind of really tugs at my heartstrings with all of this. Is it's like, I think because Ric Flair looks a bit like my dad. Yeah. And that I kind of this part of me that's like just makes me feel so sad for him. It's like if if that was your dad and he was both this like this absolute icon of a mm. man who's held like, on such Reed a pedestal, adored him yeah. as well. Like. But also, Ric Flair is very pathetic, and mm. it's easy to kind of sympathise with him and see him as a very tragic figure. And yeah. he's like both these things at the same time. It would just be, I don't know, I think it'd be really hard as a kid to have like your parent be be that. Were you surprised how kind of like emotional Rick was? I'm not saying that as a negative thing, but just that, you know, many wrestlers kind of yeah. put up the brick wall. You know, Brett looks like he was about to chastise himself when tears came into mm. his eyes anytime I his stuff. I love that Rick cries very easily. Heart in his sleeve. Yeah, I love it. Same as like Big Show. I, just, I really mm. appreciate wrestlers who can cry. Yeah, and I feel it's unfair because I feel men get away with it a lot more than women. Like, yeah. there's a lot of women who cry, but they only cry with happiness. They're not like allowed to cry with sadness. The yeah, all the male wrestlers are shit that Sasha Banks and you know, the women who started crying, you know, in NXT. All the shit they got, and Ric Flair was like, you know, bawling his fucking eyes out all throughout mm. the '90s. You know, obviously it's different circumstances. Yeah, but like, yeah, I think tears are tears are 
impactful in wrestling. Yeah, I think Tiz can be quite a valuable tool in your arsenal as a wrestler. You know, I think for Rick, honestly, those tears weren't... It's not like Rick Big Show where it's like, check this out, I can cry. It's like kind of almost Rick would get himself to a place where he would allow himself to be upset and then the tears would flow. He he does allow himself to do that. Mm. Like, he didn't... Like, there were quite a few moments in both documentaries where he starts crying and it wasn't at any point like he was like admonishing himself for yeah. it or like he felt guilty or ashamed. The Hall of Fame speech is a hard one to watch, Joe. Yeah, It's I 45 bet. minutes of crying, like. Oof, yeah. Paul Heyman wrote an edgy article when he was outside the wrestling business for The Sun. Uh, you know, he, he wasn't doing any you know, wrestling stuff. He was doing his Heyman hustle thing and he, he wrote a column for The Sun. It was all like edgy hot takes, you know? And it was like, uh, Rick, I'm begging you, please stop crying. I'm sick of it. I was like, yeah. All right. <laughs> Bad take. Yeah. It's 2001. It's been nearly two years, maybe 18 months since WCW has closed its doors. And we finished the big invasion storyline. You're going to see me talk about that. There's a whole season of that on the Attitude podcast. And Ric Flair is brought in as the mystery surprise as who is now the 50% owner of the World Wrestling Federation where he talks about being in the Cthornium. So he's brought back in 2001 for this role. This was the first time I would have seen Rick outside of a video game as a kid, and I don't know what happened. I, all I knew is that there was the, the landscape had changed in the World Wrestling Federation, and I didn't know how or why or who this very excited man was. But I will say, when he started hitting the ropes and dancing around... He he sold me like yeah. I, immediately. I was enamored with him. You know, <laughs> like Ric Flair is someone who like I went from knowing nothing about to like wanting to absorb as much as I could about him. You so know, did you stop finally beating him up as Kevin Devil? Oh yeah, no, we'd long since Joe. You're saying a WCW PS1 game has got staying power of more than a weekend? Come on now, let's be <laughs> be serious, like. So yeah, I showed Joe this promo just because I wanted you to see my first introduction to Ric Flair, and it is amazing how much better he looks here than he did in the last Nitro. He looks a lot more himself. Yeah. But he's still racked with the the depression and the the, the, the anxiety and the self-doubt. What did you think to, like, Rick coming back in here? Because they were like, you're not going to be a wrestler. And within two months, he was wrestling Vince. Mm. Is that like, do you think he was put out to wrestle before he was ready? No, I don't think so. No? I know he didn't think he was yeah. ready. I know he, he talks about how terrified he was about wrestling Vince. Yeah, fucking hell. And like, to be fair, you would be. That's like such a trial by fire. <laughs> trial by potatoes, more yeah. like. I mean, <laughs> we were thinking about this because uh, he was like anxious and you were like, oh, why is he anxious? And I go, well, you know, Vince is like, you couldn't get a bigger feud than Vince. And you also couldn't get a worse opponent, like in terms of ability than Vince. So it really is all on you, Nature Boy, to pull this one off. But I think, I, I do wonder, knowing Vince, if it was deliberate. Because Vince always gives it his all. Yeah, like, I, I will fight you for real if yeah. you don't wrestle me good. Yeah, yeah. Like, Vince will just say, like, do whatever the fuck you want to me. Just make it a good match. Mm. Like, make it really entertaining. And, you know, they'll just beat each other up for real. And I imagine it would be kind of like fight or flight. Like, it would just kick in. Yeah, muscle memory almost. Muscle memory, yeah. It's like, well, this guy's punching me for real, so I guess I'll just get into it <laughs> it kind of felt like and I know, I'm not saying this is a bad thing I know some people have, have opinions on this you know that Rick became almost like a project for Vince and Triple H interesting as in we've got it like, and people always make the claim Vince McMahon he doesn't care about you if you were made in WCW he only cares about guys he makes himself that was the Goldberg chat we'd heard with him all forever and ever and ever and ever and it turns out that it's not really true because he booked Goldberg like a superhero the last few years and Ric Flair definitely a WCW guy was 
has been put across as a legend for 20 years solid in WWE TV. Yeah. No questions. Never has that been a blip on that. And I always wondered if it was them kind of going, here's a guy who's a legend who really made a name for himself the hard way, who has been kicked around by those idiots in WCW and those Turner guys who don't know wrestling. You know, they don't know what they're doing. They just squandered him and he's been kicked to the curb. Why don't we, with our WWE magic, it's almost like Disney taking an IP that no yeah. one wants and gushing up and going, look, everyone wants to see Mulan. Obviously, you fucking do, like you know, like taking something that's like kind of been forgotten about. We're going to give it out to a new audience. It felt like they were like, let's show the next generation why Ric Flair is great. Mm. And I feel like I was part of that. You know, I didn't yeah. grow up in the fucking seventies or eighties watching Ric Flair. So it felt like for me, I was like a test audience to say, like, look, here's a guy. We're going to build him up to be a legend, bit by bit. Put him in there with Vince. We'll put him in there with Triple H. We'll put him in a stable. We'll kind of build up his confidence without him directly knowing, hey, we're going to make you feel good about yourself mm. again. And first things first, let's get to WrestleMania, where you had a match requested, can you believe it, Rick, by The Undertaker. That's going to do something for the self-esteem. Ooh, he said he was terrified. I bet. Absolutely terrified. And Undertaker was like adamant. It was, he wanted to have this match. So this is WrestleMania 18, folks. It is Ric Flair versus The Undertaker. And obviously, I should have said at the start, but you can imagine how fucking impossible it was for me to pick three matches. Yeah. And the errors of the matches I've picked, it's not me saying Ric was better at this point in time, but looking back on previous episodes, Joe had seen a lot of peak or prime Flair, and I wanted you to see just a little bit more of him than I grew up with and the kind of the older Flair, because I think it's just as valid and the matches are just as important in their own right. So, a rare sighting at WrestleMania 18, Booger Red, Dead Man, Inc. Undertaker. This is my first Booger Red. What do you think of Booger Red? Why is it called Booger Red? Um, Me and Jerry Lawler are confused. <laughs> He's an outlaw loose and running, though youth of 24, and the notches on his belt say that he is Booger Red. He is Booger Red, Booger Red, Booger Red. A stranger came to town with a booger on his red. Uh, no, it's JR trying to use a bit of old Oklahoma slang. Yeah. Because he's a baddie, booger, and he's got red hair, red, booger red. Now, take her with the heavily spiked and gelled hair. It looks kind of like booger black. Yeah. You know, or booger dark brown. Like, yeah. Booger dark brown says that you've had a really bad toilet time. <laughs> oh, don't go in there. Booger dark brown. Like, oh, say no more. <laughs> like, you've done it now. Like, you've made a big mistake. So what did you think to uh, to, to him here? Bugarette. Yeah. Oh, it's interesting, yeah, because it was the first time I'd really seen Biker Undertaker. You've only really seen kind of... I've seen Goth Undertaker. You've seen Goth Undertaker, you've seen kind of modern knee injection Old. Undertaker. Yeah, Undertaker. Yeah. But I hadn't seen uh, Biker Taker before. So uh, it was interesting. Yeah, he's a big boy. He's got short hair. Yeah. I'm used to him with the wig. <laughs> he was wearing a bandana. Yeah. The rolling, rolling, rolling. Oh yeah, that limp biscuit. What a heel! Yeah. <laughs> Did you like him as a heel in this match? Because like I obviously this is like one of the most kind of underrated. He was really good. What What are the things about him that you liked? He was quite like stoic but nasty. Mm. He was like sinister. Um, like the cruel. way he, yeah, cruel. The way he came around awkwardly on his motorbike around the ring, and he revved it in front of Jr. Like, yeah. <laughs> Get that out of here! Like, I think it's a great character to have that kind of nasty biker mm. gimmick because they're like we've all I think if, even if we've not known or met bikers like that, we've all seen scary bikers or heard them at least. Yeah, and we're like, oh, that's a scary guy. I don't want to meet him in a dark alleyway. Yeah. 
Uh, that was they they kind of played off of that quite well. The promo for this was basically Undertaker goading the co-owner Ric Flair into fighting him at WrestleMania, and he did that by taking his boy David to school. Now it's all about respect. So he didn't actually take his son to school. No, that no, sounds it's, nice. It's a figurative school. He beat up his son. But he beat him up at wrestling school. At wrestling school. Like, Come yeah. on, boy, go to school. We're already here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what do you think to David being used as uh, kind of a? <laughs> He's not very good. We've seen a little David in the Russo episode. Mm. Didn't have the father's flair for wrestling. No, it's so interesting because I mean, you, we'll talk a bit about this later, mm. but. I feel with Rick's first two kids, neither of them have the look no. for wrestling. But both Ashley, Charlotte, and Reed, Reed who were his second two kids, they both look like they could be wrestlers. They both look a lot like Rick as well. They do. They both have his kind of more more angular features, yeah. like a bit more like chiseled. Yeah. David looks like Rick when he was training in the AWA. Like he looks yeah. he looks like the he looks like not the nature boy. He looks like Richard Flair. Yeah. You know? It's uh yeah, it's interesting that one. But I mean, you know, David got a he was in developmental here because, you know, they wanted to be nice to him, you know, kind yeah. of give, give him a give him a chance and all that. You know, he was pushed into WCW because I think Russo Bischoff liked using David Flair as a character because they thought they could get a lot of the soap opera and the drama, but he just didn't have I think the love of it and yeah. the I don't think he had the skill set. You know, when you go in there untrained in your early 20s, wrestling your dad, it's kind of hard to start from scratch after that. Isn't David Flair really weird about Charlotte these days? I don't know. I, I know. All I know about David is that he literally, like, after this, he, like, completely washed his hands of wrestling. Wow. He became, like, a, I think he's a, a state trooper or something like that now. Okay. You know, wife and kids. You know, him and wrestling, done, pretty much. I know him and Rick had some kind of fallings out and stuff like that in recent years, but it's kind of hard with Rick to keep up. You know, mm-hmm. Rick was having fallings outs and then near-death experiences, which kind of reneges on any fallings yeah. out. And, you know, stuff happens, I guess. But yeah, this match is all about Rick's family and loved ones getting killed up by this killer biker. Aaron Anderson gets bloodied up. Ric Flair punches a fan in the meantime. We had settings in the boardroom as well. You were happy about this. I did. I was so happy to see the board represented here. Yeah, it was great. I kind of like the idea, though, that when Ric Flair, he gets, uh, he has to leave the process and he walks over. He's like, at WrestleMania, I will settle the score with The Undertaker by any means necessary and i was like wow someone should leave the apprentice doing that just walk yeah. over to Claude and be like at wrestlemania i will settle the score <laughs> um so rick starts this off full of fire but he looks nervous he runs out to the ring which i think is a real shame because you missed the best part of his entrance music what Bum, 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 bum. <laughs> no, 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 the... That bit. And so we, yeah, he just runs straight out. Did he so. seem anxious to you? I think so, but he was so fast. He was yeah. running so quickly. It's kind of hard to tell. Uh, Undertaker, of course, his Titantron and his nameplate informs us that Undertaker.com is his website. <laughs> Back in the day, when you didn't have a Twitter, so you had to have your own website. Like It's pretty badass. And Joe, are you heading to Undertaker.com now? Oh, yes. Undertaker.com, 
It's a redirect, folks. Ah, uh, it's WWE.com now. Uh, there was a year where if you typed in WCW.com, it would load up the logo and then it would explode and take you to a redirect for WWF.com. <laughs> <laughs> Make it explode, damn it. Use all of your flash. So, Flair is not in game shape, as JR calls it here. Now, you were kind of... You, you, you didn't agree with when Rick was saying he didn't feel his body was there yet. In this match, he's a little looser, a little, little Honestly, more wobbly. Honestly, I think when you see him from a bit further away, he looks the same as he did 20 years before. Like, yeah. He, I think he's being way harsh on himself. I think so, like, you know. The fact that his body looked as good as it did for fucking, you know, up until his 60s. Like, yeah. fucking hell, lads. Like, you know, not getting injured really either as well. You and know? also, it shouldn't matter what really you look like seeing, you know, if you can still wrestle... Like, that's what's important. Yeah. Like, there are a lot of heavier guys in wrestling who can wrestle fantastic and it doesn't really matter what they look like. And Rick is by no means a heavy wrestler whatsoever. No. I Honestly, I think Rick was trying to get sympathy from JR. Like, they're trying to say, like, oh, this guy, he's not used to wrestling. But, like, it did feel like it was a shot at him a little yeah, bit. Yeah, a little like, bit, yeah. Like, they were saying, you know, we want to hit the gym there, pal. Like, you yeah, know. which I thought was really harsh. It almost made it more dramatic for me, I would say. Mm. The idea that this guy, he was, you know, one of the all-time greats. And he's been goaded, even though he's an office guy now. He's been goaded to come out and you know, go on wrestle me. I dare you. And he's not. He's not there. He's not ready yet. I mean, that's good. I don't think you need to body shame to get to that point. Yeah. though. Now, Joe, you didn't get to see blood in your last match, but Ric Flair is more than willing to wake up for it in his later years. Lots of blood in this match. Yeah, Undertaker has a tiny little scratch, but Rick is covered in blood. Uh, Rick bleeds so much the camera starts bleeding too. <laughs> yeah. I loved uh, Old Booger Red pinning Rick and then going, no, no, and stopping halfway through. (laughs) Oh, the cruelty. Rick keeps getting beat up and it feels like he has no chance whatsoever. You know, he gets the odd chop in here and there, but it feels more like he's annoying Undertaker than actually doing any damage. Until the IKEA modular pipe part that comes off of Undertaker's bike (laughs) gives Rick a little bit of a chance. And also a sign that says, keep off. Which, to maintain the kayfabe of having this sign, all of the ramp, all the way up WrestleMania 18, there's all signs saying keep off, which yeah. kind of makes it feel like it's not for the fans, this yeah. WrestleMania. <laughs> Get the figure four to Undertaker with one of my all-time favourite moments. Rick has been the figure four. Undertaker then sits up like a zombie and then grabs him for the choke slam. And Rick is like, Aah! Fucking love it. I've, so good. I've got to say, though, I think the Undertaker needs to practice punching some string. <gasps> really? You tell me the best pure striker in the WWE. Them soup bones weren't doing it for you. Mm, weak punches. Well, you were saying like like Shano punches. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Is that controversial? I will say Undertaker and the WWE pride themselves in the dead man's soup bones. Mm. But I would say no. You're. I think you're right because I, I think as well. Anytime a wrestler does the big blip 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 makes that noise. Yeah, it's silly. It is silly, and you're also drawing a lot of attention to the punch itself. Like you know, so if you're making a big noise, I'm going to look at it more. You know. Mm, yeah. So yeah, I I I I I take that advice on board. We get an amazing appearance out of the blue as Dads Unite and Arn Anderson whose career left him with injuries which meant that his nerve damage in his left hand meant that he couldn't even button his own shirt still manages to give the fucking Undertaker a spine buster yeah that's pretty impressive that is for me one of like I'd say probably one of my top 10 goosebumps moments of all time it's it gets me every time wow the idea of an old guy trying to defend his old friend who got bloodied and his old friend comes in and they used to run in the gang together and they used to be a bit tough 
but they're old lads now and he comes in he gives them the old move and fucking hell like because Arn Anderson was the enforcer he was like Rick's heavy right and the fact that even in his 50s with the big fucking reading glasses on him he's there giving the fucking spine buster oh it gets me right in the feels I love it so much so yeah Undertaker gets Rick in a terribly named submission do you want to know what it's called Joe what's it called Taking care of business. Boo. You think he'd be undertaking care of business, huh? Yeah, see, no. See what, I, see what I did there? Mm. Can you think of a better a better name for the undertaker submission than taking care of business? Mm. Under mission? What? <laughs> the undertale? <laughs> uh, I think, like mortician would be good because yeah. more means death in french oh does it yeah ah, give him morticia like yeah. you know although morticia seems more like it would be like a weapon that he would name like yeah. i'm seeing you francesca i think as a result <laughs> we get the tombstone after rick cannot be picked up for a power bomb undertaker decimates rick flair but rick had so many little moments of hope this is like very emblematic of like kind of the slightly sad and i mean you know the the, the, the slightly pathetic I don't I don't like to use that word very much because I don't want to say that I think he's pathetic but like they were playing off the fact that Rick wasn't 100% he wasn't the Ric Flair of old they were playing off his shortcomings and I loved loved the drama of it what did you think of this one? I really liked this match. It was it was good. I, again, it wasn't like amazing for me. Did you I, get any top spots in it? No, not really. Mm. Other than the board. Other than the board. The board was a top spot. Yeah, but uh, what rating would you give this one? I gave it three stars out three of five. Stars? Like it was a solid match, but like it wasn't, you know, it wouldn't make my, my top favourite matches anytime soon. I think my bit that I really like was when Rick tries to do his bit in the corner. You know, when Rick gets thrown into the corner and he flips over the yeah. turnbuckle and he, and he, he just goes bunk right yeah. into it. And then Undertaker takes him over. You can see him say, let's try that again. Yeah. And then Rick does it like really spectacularly. So like this match almost felt like it was like kind of the work that Rick needed to do. He had to do a bit of grinding, you know, to get back to where he was. <laughs> but like, he finds himself in a bit of a big resurgence after this. Triple H says he saw Rick walking around one day and he literally went up to him and said, you know, in so many words, what happened to the guy I used to see on TV 15 years ago? What happened to you? what's up like where, where are you at like mm. and Rick you know confines in Hunter you know he knows that Triple H is like big fan grew up watching him yada yada and like then this is when I think it becomes like almost like a one on one thing where Triple H views it's his goal to mentor Ric Flair into realising he's Ric Flair it's so unusual this idea of like this is such a unique relationship I think that we have here between Vince Triple H and Rick and that I've never seen this in wrestling before we're so used to in in wrestling seeing Vince as like a father figure for the a older lot of wrestlers. Guy. Yeah. yeah. And he's not a father figure to Rick at all, even no. though he is a mentor. And so often we see older guys mentoring younger guys, but I've never seen a younger wrestler mentor an older wrestler like this. It is incredible because like, you know, Triple H wasn't just there telling me, Oh, hey, we should do this in your match tonight, yada yada yada. Rick was calling them, you know, and still does, you know, talks about, you know, personal stuff, family stuff, finance, you know, all all the kind of drama and stuff, you know, because Rick is, lives a, doesn't live a quiet life, folks, you know, there's always controversy of one, one sort or another. So, like, I will say for Triple H, it's a big undertaking, you know, and I know that Shawn Michaels was part of that kind of, like, let's, let's kind of help Rick together. And I know that Sean and Rick has had had some fallings out in recent years as well. Oh, really? It's kind of, it's kind of tough, like, you know. I think with, with the retirement and stuff that we'll talk about soon, I think there is some kind of sl- slightly hurt feelings and stuff there. But yeah, Triple H 
comes with the idea for a group. And I think, you know, honestly, at the time watching on TV, I hated it. But I think I hated it because I was a teenager and I didn't like the heels. But the idea of saying, hey, we've got two young guys, Randy Orton and Dave Batista. They've not really done anything yet. You know, fresh pieces of clay to mold. I'm the top guy of now, Triple H. I'm the champion. You're the top guy of the past, Ric Flair, the living legend. Evolution, the past, the present, the future. And Batista is like the, Batista's the, the, the muscle, the heavy, the enforcer. And Randy's like the, the ordained guy for the future. Like, that's such a cool fucking story to do. Yeah, it's a really neat gimmick. Like, I hated it. I absolutely hated it. But it probably shows how effective it was I, then. It probably does, because, I mean, I've never rewatched it. I just remember hating it as a kid. And it's so funny. So much of that now, reckoning back to it, the 2004, 2005, 2003, when they were doing that kind of evolution stuff, so many of the storylines were things directly lifted from the horsemen. Really? Like where they would have... There was one where Goldberg was coming after Triple H in Evolution. So Triple H put up a, a million dollar bounty. Anyone takes out Goldberg ahead of my match. They Harley Race put a bounty on Ric Flair before oh, their match to wow. Starcade. Exact same thing. You know, the idea of having these you know, pack of dogs who would, you know, jump him from behind and all. It was all just horseman stuff they were doing again. Triple H always wanted to be a horseman. Yeah. And he got his he got his wish. He got to be it. Like, I think he had to be pinched and stopped from calling the group the new four horsemen. <laughs> or the four horsemen. 2000. But it's funny, though, that he loved the horsemen so much because, I mean, he is responsible for the four horsewomen. Yeah, I think that a lot of it goes in there as well because Triple H likes that branding. Yeah. And if it's a branding that helps people remember the bit of wrestling that he holds very near and dear to his heart. But look at Triple H. Like, you know, when they, they were showing Going, you, know, you see sometimes when Adam and I do Smackdown Crawl for the Outshare podcast, you see Triple H from 2000 wearing the leather backwards paddy cap and the denim and the jeans and the pop tracksuit pants. What does he look like when he's with Ric Flair? Slick back hair, yeah. sunglasses, straightened, Armani suit, nice clothes, nice mm. shoes, big watch. He's being Rick F- holding the belt like Rick used to hold but- us. Triple H is like Brad Pitt. He looks like whoever he's with. Yes. Like you remember when he was with <laughs> when he was with China, he looked like he wore that kind of black leather yeah. stuff. He wore the the bodycon dresses with Stephanie. Well, <laughs> but like real real talk with Stephanie, he had straightened hair. Yeah, that's true. Like his hair is luscious and shiny, much like Stephanie McMahon's when yeah. they first got together. Very true. Like he he is he he takes the shape of whoever he's nearest to. So yeah, Flair has a good run with with Evolution, and you know they they do loads of great storylines. You know, oftentimes Rick did kind of be like a bit of a comedy figure like he was Triple H's kind of like lackey or goon but like it was always played up very very well and they did multiple storylines with you know Randy and Batista breaking away and always Rick was a big part of that so like Rick I think was instrumental in helping Randy and Batista kind of get their kind of careers off to a proper start particularly Batista who in the documentary was like I knew I had a short window because I was already 40 he was already 40? Yeah. Batista was a, not a young guy. He was already getting on in years. Much oh like DDP. Oh God. I didn't realise he was 40. Yeah, he, he already had a quite a quite an age on him. So he was like, I knew I had to basically put in an intensive programme. And Ric Flair was that intensive programme, you know? And again, this is funny, right? We went back, we talked about Sting. We talked about some of these guys who were saying, I owed my career because Ric Flair decided I could have one. Yeah. That was when he was in there wrestling with him for an hour. He's only... Batista's manager or tag partner or whatever and he's still helping guys make themselves and make a career because yeah. you know we always talk about the older guys those who want to be able to to give back and stuff like that I don't think Ric Flair is going to be taking class at the performance center but I think he certainly he has inspired and he has given to and he has developed as many wrestlers as he has like maybe attempted to tear down or have beef with 
I do think it's interesting that he worked so closely with Randy Orton as well, because I do think that, like, you know, as much as I dislike Randy Orton, yeah. I do think he's one of the best heels of all time. Oh, yeah. And if you saw Randy before, he had an association with Ric Flair. Like, what a youngling. Like, mm. you know, nothing really going for him. But, like, I mean, it was cool, because we did have a great resurgence for, for, you know, after Evolution broke up. You know, Rick won the Intercontinental Championship at one point. Wow. You know, we got to see him, you know, wrestle. He was never really main event. He was kind of middle of the card thereabouts a lot of the feuds that they did were based off of his real life beefs like with Mick Foley oh that was so funny what did you think watching their uh, their encounters <laughs> book versus book yeah like he's got his book there with his reading glasses a glorified stuntman he said Rick Ferris like yes I told Matt Gothrider to say that, like, you know. That's not even the worst thing he said about Mick. He said that he would be in a wheelchair by the time he's 30. I'd forgotten about that. Thank you for reminding mm-hmm, me about you're that. You're welcome. Yeah, that was in the Foley app. Jeez, yeah, yeah. He said some pretty saucy things. Yeah. And I maintain to this day, I don't think Rick has actually read Mick Foley's book. No. I, I think he's just been told over and over again. But, like, a lot of historic beef. Mick Foley, Bret Hart. Uh, Bret Hart, who he hated because Bret complained that Rick only did chops and wasn't as good as everyone said he was he's like well if i only do chops you only do sharpshooter you know <laughs> pendulum backbreaker diving fist up he in his book there's a chapter where it's like bret hart only actually does seven moves you know <laughs> my treaties by rick flair uh, an entire section of his book dedicated to how much he hates scott steiner because of the time he did that promo on him and the end of the chapter is i don't get worried about it anymore anyway He's mid-card talent now. Wow. Ooh, you fucking saucy bastard. Uh, Bischoff he had a big problem with. And one of the reasons he had a big problem with Brett is because Rick is the consummate, or was for many years at least, the WWE man, you know? Because they gave him his career back, he felt. Because they portrayed him as a legend. That meant that Bret Hart, he screwed Brett. Montreal, that's he just tried to do bad business, you know? So I think a lot of the stuff with Brett particularly was him just kind of wanting to be showed to Sean and Triple H and Vince. Yeah, yeah, I know you didn't do anything wrong there. He just didn't know how to do business. So a lot of Rick's kind of beefs in recent years have been kind of stuff that he reckons that the WWE were in favor of him being having a beef with. Yeah. But like, it's a bit, you know, DDP's the person who had a beef with Big Bit in this chapter about how he only was a champion because he was Bischoff's neighbor, you know. Uh, hated Hogan, hated Sid, you know. It's, it is kind of sad. I think he has made up with a lot of these people since. Yeah. But I think it's... A, we saw it with Piper as well. Everyone just got fucked up opinions about each other. It's just exhausting. What? It's not a way to live. Just, I know. Just, just, just Life's too short. Yeah, literally. And if you're a wrestler from the 80s, life is literally too short. Yeah. Because most of your <laughs> colleagues are either dead or you hate, it seems. Yeah. You know? So I, I hate seeing that. And I kind of... the I, I, I'm a bit trepidatious if I see a Ric Flair shoots on for the last two or three years because Rick is getting on in years now it does make me a bit sad to see him you know he had a podcast and it was not a not a positive place let's just say you know (laughs) so let's talk about the very emotional ultimate storyline that Rick was offered in WWE Rick was coming up on around seven or eight years wrestling for WWE and Vince had told him the whole time you know this was this wasn't kayfabe you want to be here? You have to prove you have to be here. I'm happy having a 58-year-old guy in the roster, but you have to show me. You can do it. Ain't no sweetheart Triple H Goldberg Undertaker Saudi deal. No. This guy's hitting the fucking small towns. He's full schedule. House shows. Raw. Smackdown. Everything. He was there constantly. And he actually, the older he got, the more he wrestled. Because those wow. first few years, he was managing Triple H. Later on, he was just wrestling singles and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. you know, Rick was wrestling a lot to prove his worth. He didn't want to retire. 
Vince comes to him and he says, we're going to retire you. And I think he had an issue with that. Now, the, the origin of this retirement story, I believe, is Steve Austin pitched an idea to WWE. They thought they were misusing Rick and they weren't booking him properly like as a legend. And he wanted them to do a storyline, which he laid out for them, where Rick would go after his last championship. He says he wants one more world title before he retires. He wants to go for number 17 or 61, depending on how you're, you're counting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the idea is that then he would go on this kind of journey and have to like wrestle all these guys and build himself up. And the crowd would kind of get behind him and think, like, oh my God, this unlikely story that he might do it. And then win, lose, or draw, the match where he finally chances for the belt would be big business on pay-per-view. Yeah. And Vince says that and goes, yeah, okay, I like it, but let's make the story that if he loses any match from now on, that is his retirement. So every match is a retirement match. Wow. And we had this like three month long thing then where Ric Flair was put against all the young studs, like, you know, all, all the new up and coming wrestlers who will be the big stars of tomorrow, like Mr. Kennedy and MVP, you know, names I'm sure you're very familiar with now, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, he, he'd take on like Randy Orton, who was like the killer top guy. And right. he, he just beat Orton with the figure four. And people are like, holy shit, Rick can do it. And then it's all leading and leading. Who's Rick going to face at WrestleMania? All the young studs have all had a shot. And Shawn Michaels, the big Ric Flair fan, says, I want to, I missed WrestleMania. I want Ric Flair at WrestleMania. And then he says, well, Rick, you know what they said? Everyone loved Ole Yeller, that old dog. They loved that dog. He was so great. But when time came, we had to take him around the shed and put him out of his misery. And Ric Flair is like bawling, crying, going, Ole Yeller, like, I'll show you Ole Yeller. Like, you know, it's very real. He's been retired before he wants to. The storyline is, you're old now. I'm going to end your career. This is a very emotional match, folks. And one which I, I propose to Joe that she may cry during. But I don't know if I picked the right time to show it. Mm. It is Shawn Michaels versus Ric Flair. WrestleMania 24, 2008. In a career-threatening match. I wrote down, I am going to cry, yeah? <laughs> Even if you're not. What did you think to the kind of setup of this match and the story and how they handled Rick's kind of career here? I don't feel I was given the full context mm. before watching this match mm. about like this whole like I, I realized it was career threatening, but I didn't realize that there was this huge three month long oh right storyline that where he kept winning and winning and winning. So he was on a roll at yeah. this point. Yeah, did it feel like it was a very big important match though? Like when they were coming out and doing their entrances and all that. Did it have a big feel to you? No, it didn't really. Really? No, because Shawn Michaels comes out really low energy and kind of saunters to the ring. Like, he doesn't do his normal big high energy dance stuff. I think that was because they were trying to get across that he was conflicted. Right, that didn't wrestling. really come across to me. Ah, I see. And Ric Flair looks kind of nervous and sad, like he knows he's going to lose. He doesn't want to retire. retire. Yeah. Did watching this match maybe get hurt by the fact that you were fully aware that after this match he does wrestle again maybe because like i remember watching this match live and being fucking like just so like emotional about it maybe it was the combination of knowing he wrestles again but also knowing that he loses this match right yeah yeah that's true so the whole the whole flair family's in the front row yeah and they're already crying at the start of the match (laughs) Toughen. Yeah. Real tough. It is tough seeing Reed there, particularly. Yeah. Knowing, we'll, we'll talk about Reed and stuff in a bit, but this is how seeing Reed and Charles there side by side was, was, was very, very tough. I love this match. You know, I love seeing Flair, even at this old age, him still, you know, going for the handshake and slicking back his hair and going woo. Like he's still being, you know, 
I was worried about this match thinking like, oh, he's fighting Shawn Michaels. That means he's going to be like all honorable and wrestle this kind of, you know, good guy match. Oh no, but not at all. It's like, fuck you. You're not retiring me. I poke, kick you in the dick. Yeah. I, I love that. <laughs> the moniker, the dirtiest player in the game. Do you know Rick was known as being the risky rule breaker that no, he was? I had no idea about that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's good though. It works well for him. The classic, like, you know, it's Toro Yano has always been watching the Ric yeah. Flair tapes and grabbing the referee going, no, and then kicking someone in the balls. Rick does it so easily, yeah. Toro. I don't know what it is like, you know. <laughs> Maybe you sell some more DVDs, it'll work. We get an early exchange which results in Ric Flair being slapped in the face and then blood trickles down his mouth yeah. and he goes, it's just blood, brother. And then he cut to Shawn Michaels and his hair is literally blowing in the breeze. Uh, This is the number one anime retirement match of all time in wrestling. Just so you know, okay? Took a lot of matches for me to say it, but I'm going to say it again. Fucking damn chops. Fuck off. That's so good. Have you ever been given a knife edge chop? No, never. And I never want one. Never have one. Because unlike the figure four leg lock and some other wrestling moves where I've been like, I don't really see why that's painful. I can understand that a chop is painful. That seems pretty obvious to me. I mean, like, I think Bret Hart has a point where his main thing about Ric Flair is like, come on, like, it's literally the most sore thing you could do in wrestling. Yeah. That is the sorest. Yeah. And it's his main offense. Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to wrestle him, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, the chops here are hard. Like, you know, when he got older, the chops didn't get lighter or anything like that. Fucking hell, they're vicious. Absolutely vicious. We have a great top spot here. Accidental top spot. Where Sean does a moonsault off the second rope to the outside. Oh, Jesus. I remember watching this and thinking the match was over. And he lands chest first on the announcer table, which collapses beneath him. Like every bit other than the bit that he lands on collapses first. And yeah. he's left with this like hard metal frame. Like, The edge of it gets right up underneath his ribs. And you'd think the wind would just be completely knocked out of you. You'd be like struggling to breathe. It would make you feel sick. It's absolutely horrible. Like, Ugh. I mean, like, I did, honestly, I remember watching that and thinking, like, what are they going to do? This is the retirement match. Sean's injured. He can't wrestle now. Yeah. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? And, like, just Sean's one of those guys now. And Sean's like Ricky, someone who we've, we've seen in a lot of other episodes. Yeah. So that when we do the episode, you'll already have a sense of him a bit, I guess, as a competitor. But Sean is definitely the type of guy who'll be like, oh, that looked like it actually did hurt for real. And it does hurt for real a bit. So I'm really going to hand this up. And he really did. Like, I was convinced that he was in a lot of pain. And cracked ribs or something. Like, surely, at least, he's going to have that. There is a great, great spot in here where Rick heads to the top rope. Now, we've watched a lot of Flair matches. Flair often goes to the top rope. And generally what happens is he's grabbed and he goes, and then he's dropped and he lands gingerly on his left-hand side. <laughs> and tonight of all nights, Rick heads to the top rope, nearly 60 years old, and hits a fucking cross body on Shawn Michaels. Yeah. Now, it always became a running joke in wrestling that Rick would keep doing this. Like, Jerry Law would be like, Nate, why you, it never works, buddy. Why are you going up top? You're, you're just <laughs> going to get fallen off. Oh, there he goes. But... If you look back in Starcade 83, Flair's first title win that he said was a real proper win for him. Like, he really owned it. He won that by doing the crossbody off the top rope to Harley Race. Wow. So in kayfabe, I believe the story is that Rick, in his mind, is convinced, this is my ultimate technique. <laughs> yes, that technique. That bloodline. <laughs> and he tries it every goddamn match. And it has worked maybe three times wow. in his career. Love it. Absolutely love it. Referee, of course, Charles Robinson, Lil Nate, looking 
quite like him. Lil Nate. Lil Nate. That's what he was called. Really? Yeah. Why? Because he looked like Ric Flair. Does he though? The big blo- He looked more like Ric Flair in the late nineties, I guess. Okay. You know, around the time when Ric Flair was uh, president of WCW, and then he believed he was president of the United States of America. <laughs> uh, there's so many. We watched some wild WCW promo compilations. Some of them were beyond ridiculous. Like, yeah, I am the president of the United States. <laughs> or my other favorite one, which is Bischoff. I'm gonna reach down your throat, grab you by your scrawny neck, pull out your black heart, and show the world you have no heart. <laughs> what does that mean? Show your black heart, show the world that you... It's because you've removed it? He's going to remove the garden zolia, <laughs> whatever it's called. And eat it. The creamed corn, yeah, and eat it. Flair gets in control after Sean hurts himself, and they start talking about uh, Old Yeller on commentary. Mm-hmm. Which Jerry says, Rick didn't take kindly to that old reference yeller that they made. <laughs> we loved old reference. Yeah. But then we had to take her around the back and citation needed. <laughs> Flair with the I can still go suplexes. I'm amazing to see him do big old suplexes mm. on Shawn Michaels, who is up in the ante himself doing another moonsault to the outside. <laughs> Sean goes to do sweet chin music. But hesitates. Ooh. Now, was that reading to you now? Because when you yeah. said at the start, it wasn't as clear. No, no, that was pretty clear to me. It was a very clear hesitation. And I love that as soon as he, he he was right up on him, he dropped his foot, and then Rick just grabbed it and put him in the figure four, yeah. like shades of the maze. There, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I keep saying that. Can't like you know. When we got a sunset flip, I was convinced we were going to see that ass. Oh yeah, me too. I'm yeah. surprised we didn't see. Uh, Rick's ass a lot more generally in the matches we covered. Yeah, I think uh, Rick Rick Flair's ass does appear much like Shawn Michaels' ass, but I think there's ebbs and flows to it. Mm. I think the ass wouldn't have been appropriate here. Like, right? Yeah, you know. yeah. There's a time and a place for ass, and it's not here and now. When you're wearing blue satin shorts, that's not a time for ass. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Rick does a chop block to Shawn's leg. Oh yeah, what do you think of that? Well, that put a name to something that I used to do to my friends all the time. What the fuck? <laughs> Sorry, move over. The dirtiest player in the Joe Graham over here, like. Because if someone's standing up and you want to knock them over, you just go up behind them and kick them in the back of the knee. How old were you? <laughs> Seventeen. Fucking hell. And similarly, if anyone's like sitting on the grass, because we used to spend a lot of time outside sitting on the grass. If you're like leaning back on your arms, you just go up behind them and put your arm like you gotta knock their elbow and then just fall back so basically you're telling me the thing in jackass where they kick out the leg of the chair the chair that yeah. but worse that, but that worse yeah you can do that to people both worse sitting than and standing and it's so effective and it requires no effort so you were nodding there with Rick going yeah Nage, go for the chop block baby <laughs> <laughs> oh god I love now though Rick you know, Rick kicks out of, of a sweet chin music. You know, he, he does the woo, he does the strut, then he gets kicked right in the face. And now Rick kicks out, he realizes that's it, right? You know, all pretense at the window. I respect you, brother, but fucking low blow. You know, I'm in the figure four myself. I'll poke him in the eye. Yeah. You know, roll up, grab the tights. Like, you know, he's fucking chop blocking him. He is absolutely doing everything. And I love that. The, the idea of, like, the guy who's always trying to do sneaky stuff and then realising, shit, not only is this going to give me the edge, this is the only way I'm going to win, like, you know. Win if you can, lose if you must, but always cheat, as Bobby would say. <laughs> and then the real sad end to this, the the chop, another chop, and then Shawn Michaels 
with the big kick and then we get I'm sorry I love you when Flair stands up and he's got his hands in that the fighting stance we're yeah. going to call it and there's just tears streaming down his face but he's like hunched over like he's got nothing left in him that's it like all all the gas is out of the tank yeah. now last little drop is gone oh I feel like I'm going to cry right now talking Aww. about it like and then yeah, I'm sorry I love you. Like, fucking hell. That is the saddest anime death of all time. Like, See, I feel fuck that, me. That could have been really effective, but there was no, like, vignette beforehand to show that Sean felt that way about Rick. Because we did have build-up, yeah, before we didn't watch all of the, the packages. But did you think, I'm sorry I love you, was that a bit heavy for you then, having not got the, the wealth yeah. of really understanding Sean and Rick's relationship? For me, it felt like it was trying too hard to tug at the heartstrings because it just came out of nowhere. I didn't realise that Sean and Rick had this relationship it kind of almost i felt for you at least if we saw this match with triple h you obviously yeah that would have made a lot more sense to me because i know that triple h and rick had this relationship of like yeah kind of mentor mentory like you you were not the first person to ever be like oh triple h you know i mean we talked a lot about triple h during the steph episode and i don't know episode as well episode as well but honestly, I think I was paying attention when, when Triple H was talking about Rick. You seemed a bit, you know, you seemed touched by, I was touched by, by the it, relationship. Yeah. Honestly, I think Triple H, he really loves that old man. And the healthiest relationship Triple H has. Like, I think it might be, yeah. That's one of saying the, something. One like. of the healthiest relationships in wrestling. And I, I don't like Triple H as a person. Mm. I think he's a bit of a scumbag. Yeah. But... Like, I thought it was genuinely really sweet the way he looked up to Rick. He idolised him so much, but not in a way that was like he put him on some pedestal. No. He wanted to help him. I think he, he wanted him to be able to reach a level of being on a pedestal. I think you know, he it, wanted... it, hero worship is one thing, but hero worship and then actually actively trying to yeah. help your hero be I, worthy of it. I think what Triple H wanted to do was to make Rick see himself the way he saw him. Yeah. Which I think is really touching. Like, I think that's a very strong story. That is, that's very sweet, like, you know... Probably too sweet for wrestling yeah. is what that story is. So yeah, HBK wins. He immediately goes and he hugs Rick. And he's like, you know, kissing his forehead. Obviously some choice words there. Rick is bawling his eyes out. Goes to the audience, you know. Goes, Whole family is crying. Fucking hell. That was real tough. That was real tough to say. You know, I mean, we talked about the stuff with Jay Lethal and things like that. You know, he did go on, you know, within... Within a year or two, he was off, you know, because WWE were, like, similarly to the Macho Man thing, except he wasn't even doing commentary. They were using him for, like, you know, ambassador stuff, you know, product, you know. They used him for, like, ambassador work, you know, signings here and there. Rick couldn't take his own bookings, and Rick needed the money. And Rick was like, I need to get out of this WWE deal because being an ambassador only pays me, like, 600 grand a year, and I've got loads of alimony, and I want to live a certain lifestyle, so... TNA were more than happy to say, hey, come in here. You can do whatever the fuck you want. We'll book you as the tippity-top guy. You want to wrestle, you can wrestle. You want to just cut promos, you can cut promos. And I'll be honest, probably one of the biggest guilty pleasures of me, Adam and Billy, when when we all first met, was watching Crazy Wild Ric Flair TNA stuff. Mm. And for every, like, great, you know, Ric Flair in a wheelchair going, woo, as his... uh, as his van that has come from an Orlando strip club is slowly lowering him down. The idea that Ric Flair has come from a strip club in a wheelchair to get to the wrestling arena. <laughs> or him having stuff with Jay Lethal and doing you know, really entertaining things. For every bit like that, there was a bit like in the ESPN doc where it's like, Whoa, we got Ric Flair bleeding like a stuck pig and his trousers have fallen down. Whoa! You know, it just... It was kind of sad seeing him wrestle. Yeah. 
and I think Sh- Shawn Michaels did take it personally because I know he gave him like an inscribed Rolex afterwards and all that stuff about like you know never forget the date and Aww. such an honour to have your last match well Shawn Michaels of course went on to have another last match himself in Saudi Arabia so not really uh, mm. <laughs> you know pot, pot and kettle and all that but you know Rick when was always going to go back to wrestling because wrestlers who retire are either drawn back because they miss the fans which Rick absolutely did or they needed the money which Rick absolutely did as well mm. you can't take two of the main things that Rick Flair needs that's like taking away toilet and social in the sims yeah you know you need them <laughs> or in real life yeah or, humans also need those things. humans also <laughs> sorry just we got our playstation playtime this year and our number one thing was the sims so I'm assuming people can only relate to us if we talk through sims <laughs> Coming soon, how to wrestling in Simglish. Like. <laughs> so, what did you think of like the bits we saw of him and TNA and Jay and all that? And it was it was entertaining, but was it sad for you at all? Or no, it wasn't sad because it's it's not like the stuff that was happening in WCW where they were kind of like they were wasting him. They they didn't know really what to do with him. Yeah, he was like being just, Ric Flair there. Yeah, like. he was at least being Ric Flair. Like he was being like treated like the icon he is mm. um, with the gravitas that he deserved yeah and yeah okay he's an older man who isn't wrestling the same style that he did 30 40 years ago but that's to be expected i mean oh they did all these stupid storylines as well russo did where like flair just started wrestling again because he said i never retired they made me retire like for me like that's like 2009 when they're doing this it's like mate it's like not even cold. It's not even out in fucking DVD yet, it feels like. And you're already saying, forget about that. And that, for me, like as a fan who was very invested in Flair at that point, that did feel like a little bit of a slap in the face. That it's like, they so hasty. Like, I think you can come back and you can come back from retirement. But I need the coming back from retirement story. Yeah. And the coming back from retirement story is in a hasty, I never retired. They retired me. Fuck that. No, if anything, you know, I think there's a stronger story to be told with someone like Rick, who was retired a few times. Like, there's a really interesting story, which I think hasn't been explored properly yet in wrestling, about a, an older wrestler who keeps coming back and can't stay away. It's such a common theme in wrestling mm. for these wrestlers that, like Mick Foley, who yeah. keep coming back, keep coming back. You know, they, they want to breathe the business. It's so important to them. It's like oxygen. Yeah. And they can't keep away. And it's it's a real, obviously, common thread among a lot of wrestlers from that era mm. and, and eras since. I mean, it's still going on today of wrestlers unable to yeah. retire. And I think it could be a really neat storyline of like... Intervention, of, like... Yeah, the, I don't know, like the type of wrestler who's like, you know, maybe everyone else is telling them, you know, you've retired five times now, this is a bit silly. And they're going, no, it's up to me to decide when I want to retire. Like, it's it's my then body, you, I should get to choose. You have the the monster heel then who's like, I'm going to retire you for good this yeah. time. Like, you know, <laughs> and yeah, that, that's definitely true. I think wrestling is very hesitant still to play off any sort of a, you've been gone at this too long player type of thing. Yeah, that's... I would just rather that than the whole... Ah, I just never retired. Yeah, fuck that, I'm, I'm coming back. Like, Saudi Arabia, you kidding me? Off I go. Yeah. Like, you know, so, yeah, it is kind of, you know, Rick was always going to be wrestling until he was told he physically couldn't. And, you know, he has been told since that he physically couldn't. Right. There was a big scare when, around 2010-ish or thereabouts, where Rick was meant to go to Japan with Reed and do some tag matches because Reed Flair was getting his career off the ground and, you know, Rick was very active in, like, trying to get him, using his connections in Japan and stuff to get him training, using his connections to WWE to try and get him signed. And I think on the flight, he got a, um, like, a blood clot in his leg and he was hospitalised. Oh that was God. that was one of the first of many, like, Rick's going to die. Like, you know, oh, my God. And, you know, it feels like there's been a lot of those, yeah. you know. Um, Rick's had so many near-death experiences. Like, last year, the, the one where it's like, his body has shut down. It just stopped after all the stuff that's happened to him. 
and there he is two days later in a heel t-shirt looking fine like you know it's it's a roller coaster with Rick yeah and it kind of leads us to the point on, on off of that like you know with with Rick and his his children you know Reed Flair who we got to see as a little fucking 10 year old kid double egg take down Eric Bischoff like I'm going to take care of business and he's like, Bischoff Wah! and he's so good so great like you know say nothing of like what we said earlier about the fucking nature boy Ric Flair being your dad him being in your corner as you're doing amateur wrestling now he's taking a vested interest in you and your career you're going to get to that next level because the greatest wrestler of all time says you've got it and it's in your fucking blood you've got all the connections all the skills all the all the the genes you need and like you know Rick had had several divorces he I think he was on wife number four by the time we got to uh, his retirement you know she's gone as well part of the reason I think that doc is probably not on the network is that they spent a lot of time talking to his now ex-wife right and there was a period of time where Rick was actually because of money constraints was living with his son Reed the two of them together and Rick said they were best friends oh that's awkward you know best friends party party together someone like Ric Flair who parties oh so much now you think about Ric Flair he's just had a little bit of a taste of the stuff in TNA and anyway TNA he's like he's traveling with them and all that as well you know there was all the shit in TNA I I was meant to see him at a TNA show live and he he went home because they wouldn't give him an advance on his paycheck because he wanted 10 grand to go around Glasgow and buy some stuff, you know, take people out for dinner and stuff. And they're like, no, we're not giving you an advance. We don't do that here. So he just went home. So you know, this is Rick obviously getting a taste for the, the life again. And then there's his son who's, you know, young up and coming wrestler, you know, and by his own admission, they lived the life together. Mm. Hit the towns, kiss the girls, make him cry. Some father-son partying time. I couldn't think of anything more awkward than what, you know, that. Living with my dad, having sex with my dad. And, yay! You, it's like a Tim and Eric sketch, for fuck's sake. Yeah. Woo! My son, my son. But, you know, it, they had a very close relationship. Mm. And Reed was all sorts of fucked up. And for a long time, this was not like kind of like, a, oh, out of the blue, Rick, you know, Reed's got a problem. You know, why didn't Reed sign with NXT or sign into the Performance Center or whatever it was? You know, he was failing drug tests. Well, they mentioned quite early on in the documentary we watched uh, when they interview Ashley. and she Charlotte, says, yeah. Yeah, Charlotte. And she mentions how he was, Reed was first caught drinking when he was like 14. Yeah, and Rick was like, my kid, he's like 15 years old. He's asking people around to the house for beers. And he was, he was like, had a big smile on his face when he was yeah, saying, like, can like, you like believe father, it? like son, like, oh. Oh, man. And then you just don't realise, you know, it's only with the power of hindsight that you go, God, that is really, really inappropriate. How did you not see this coming? But you don't see it coming. You think, wow, lucky me. I'm, I've got such a close relationship with my son. I'm the luckiest guy in the yeah, world. Yeah, he's a chip off the old block. Yeah, like, he's going to be the be next nature boy. I get to be best friends with my son. That's fantastic. But actually, I don't know if anyone listening at home has had the relationship with their parent, whether they're best friends with their parents. Uh, I'm not like that with my parents. It's not appropriate. You shouldn't be the best friend of your parents. There, there's, I think... There should be at least some sort of a line there. There should be, yeah. You know, there, there, I mean, you can be friends at, at times, but there needs to be a parent hat as well. There does need to be a parent hat, absolutely, yeah. Speaking of, of Ashley, though, you know, Charlotte, there was a part where she mentioned about, like, there was a summer where they were, like, left in Rick's mansion alone when they were, like, 16 or 17. They, yeah. they were just kids, basically. And from the sounds of it, her and Reed did a lot of partying, a, a lot, lot of drugs. drugs. They're and like, she, we partied all summer long. Yeah. Like, and she non-stop. said it was the most fun they've ever had, and it's such a great time. But there was also this look of sadness in her eye that made me think, like, 
you know, if you'd experienced something like that and then your brother had died the way he did, like he died from a drug overdose. And it was heroin as well. It was heroin. And you just think if you spent a whole summer with your sibling taking drugs and then they die from a drug overdose, you would not, you couldn't stop yourself from going, well, it's my fault. I I should have seen this coming. I should have stopped it. There's definitely a huge element of guilt with with Charlotte there particularly. And as well, you know, she looks so much like him. She's mm. going to look in the mirror and see her brother. And, and they're you know, very close to them, yeah. And I'm sure Rick looks at Charlotte and sees Reed. You know, it must be really hard to be the surviving sibling who looks so much like the dead sibling. And you know, Charlotte said, this was not my dream. No. Because my, my promise I made was that I would live out his dream. This is his dream. You know, she, she got into wrestling, trained all this to honour his memory. Which is like, you know, I think people kind of didn't understand that when Charlotte first came in because they were like, ah, just Flair's kid getting in, like, you know, fucking hell, you know, she didn't even have to work first. Like, well, actually, if you decided at one point in your life, I'm definitely not going to do this thing, and then you go, you know what, I'm going to jump headfirst into this thing that reminds me of my probably quite fucked up relationship with my father and my tragically dead brother, mm-hmm. and I'm going to be the fucking best. And say what you will, she's one of the best in the world she right is now. She the best in the world, And yeah. she's done that in a very short period of time. Fucking hell! I just, I, you know, I, it always makes me happy when I see her and Andrade together because I'm yeah. like, you know, she fucking deserves someone who like fucking worships her and like, because it's she's had a hard fucking go of it mm-hmm. with this stuff. And I, I'll be honest, I kind of, you know, because Charlotte comes off a certain way sometimes and has a bit of an attitude in some situations. She's think, had a bit of a dodgy history with the police as she well. Absolutely has, and I think it's quite easy to forget this. You know, Rick, as good as he was at. Kind of, you know, if you said to Ric Flair, you've got a problem with drink, you know, like like the sports psychologist tried mm-hmm. to do, like, fuck off, get out of here. As hard as that is, obviously telling him that his son had a problem was even yeah. worse. Because Triple H is like, I would ring him and I would say, Rick, we're about to sign Reed here to a developmental deal, but his blood test has come back and it's got this, this and this on it. Now, that leads me to say that there's multiple illegal drugs there. And then Rick says, no, 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 that can't be it. There's got to be a mistake. Has to be a mistake. And it's like, all right. It's a test done in a lab independently of us. We don't do the test. Because you are you, I'll do it again. But seriously? And like Rick just wouldn't hear us. Like and I think that was a sad thing. I think it was too late. You yeah. know, I think the signs were there. If you're not being signed to WB because you have a drug problem, the solution to that is not to go to Japan. No. You know, I obviously get Japan's a much cleaner lifestyle and all that. I think maybe that was the idea. Mm. But come on like he needs help first rest and training isn't the number one thing to do when you've got a substance abuse problem because this that fucking if you've got an addictive personality Mm -hmm. and you're going to be in pain and training and resting and fucking Japan it's going to make it worse and it must be like you know what an impossible situation for Reed as well to grow up with a father like Rick who has you know I mean he's abused substances his whole life but he's fine and that's the thing about Rick like you know he talks at length liberally morning noon and night about how much he drank how many women he slept with all the money he spent all of that he is still surprisingly and I mean not surprisingly I guess you know but he doesn't talk about the cocaine use no. or anything like that I, to the extent that like I just kind of go anytime you see an 80s promo that's all jazzed up you kind of go whoa cocaine promo you know because you know there was a cocaine culture in WWF in the early 80s you know there was a cocaine culture in WCW in the mid to late 80s as well but like, I don't know if there was a cocaine culture in WCW in the late 90s. Mm. I know that Hulk Hogan and his friends drank a lot of beer. I know that Nash and Hall had pills. But like, you know, some of that wild stuff. Like, did, Rick's never been like, let me tell you about my cocaine use. Yeah. You know, people like Roddy and stuff like that who kind of later came off of it 
had been a bit more had been a bit more open about stuff that they had done or their drug use. But Rick's never done that, so like, I don't know like how much Rick did drug wise. Yeah, one would assume, given his sweat out the poisons, you know, constant go go go. I mean, what you see in the ring translates to his body chemistry. The man can't tire, it seems like, in his prime. So, who knows what damage he'd done to himself mm-hmm. over the years, you know? And I always was a bit, like, a bit in a few places about, you know, about Reed and all that stuff, about, you know, whose responsibility it was. And I think there was a huge responsibility on Rick. And he was so grief-stricken and so obviously broken by it that I felt like it was such a tragic event he couldn't even, like, process what had happened. It was just, my fucking son has died. Like, yeah. it's like Leland Palmer levels of, like, just agonizing grief. It's incomprehensible. Like, it's just... It's like we were saying about having your baby stolen. It's like, yeah. it's just that level of grief the that type you of just thing cannot... You cannot even understand. It'll make you crumple to the floor. Yeah. Right, you know? It'll just make you want to just not exist. It would physically hurt yeah, to have that much grief. Like... And, like, you know, Rick was... You know, I mentioned, you know, Rick was out doing fucking, you know, WB2K panels to talk about the new fucking game. And he's, like, you know, two months after his fucking son's oh died and stuff. God. like You know, they, he was out there still doing stuff, you know, trying to make money on all that jazz. And it's real fucking hard, real fucking harsh to, to see. But in that ESPN documentary, there was a bit at the end where he said, I should have spent more time being his father and not his friend. And, like, he really seemed to own it mm. and accept the role that his lifestyle and his life and his legacy did impact on several levels in reach and also the impact that he's had on his other children as a result. So like kind of, it's nice to know that at least that's no solace for, for many people. And you know, it's just acknowledging it isn't to make it all better. No, there's so many wrestlers who don't even understand why their family are upset with them or why they've been alienated or estranged. Rick, he understands. He does. He he does. And he's, he's racked up about it, you know? But, like, Ric Flair, that career, though, you know, lots of highs, lots of lows. I asked you at the start if he was a tragic figure, but would you say that he's, like, kind of a cautionary tale for wrestlers like some of the other people we've done episodes on? Or would you say he's someone to be looked up to and revered? I, th- I think it's impossible to learn any lesson from Rick because, like, it's such a unique circumstance yeah, that he's right. in. Like, he is, he's this weird freak of nature that he's, he's rick like he's, yeah, rick, he's flair. rick flair like <laughs> he was fine taking all those drugs spending all that money living with all that stress like he somehow survived all that and he's still you know strong you know okay yeah he's had a couple of near-death experiences in his 70s but yeah he's doing fine really compared to like you think of some guys who you know died in their 40s from much less he still looks like rick flair he still is able to live his lifestyle mm. i think he can still like you know he can he can speak. He, he he can speak candidly about stuff. I think he's got a level of dignity now that I don't think can ever be taken away. Mm. And I think honestly, the whole thing about him having him been told you have to literally stop, much like Mick Foley. I think it was good that that happened before yeah. something happened in the ring that made you go, "Oh, get out!" Yeah, you that know? would have been really scary. And there's a couple of close calls with Rick, particularly in TNA, in terms of like the fucking hell, seriously, this is happening. But I think he did kind of get it relatively unscathed. And I think Rick, if anything given you know there's a lot of sordid details we've been through here mm. you know if, if eric bischoff won that war like he said might have happened in the in the documentary and it was the wcw network i know he said there wouldn't be a wcw network actually he, he was he was yeah. adamant the fact that if they won the war <laughs> wrestling would be gone but like rick Flair's legacy is intact because of wwe's marketing machine yeah you know they are very adamant and if they change their mind it could change but rick flair is safe in that sense yeah 
you know? But, like, what are your final thoughts on Ric Flair? I mean, I know there's a lot of people you've come at the end of this and you go, I fucking, you know, I love this person. I mean, I know Bret Hart was someone you really seemed to kind of mm. strike a chord with you recently. Has Rick struck a similar chord or is he, is he going to be someone that's occupying a lot of space in your mind? I think so. I think he's he's going to be one of those people that I will think about a lot over the next few weeks. Mm. Um, he's an interesting, complicated man. I feel... Yeah, he's both such an icon and such a tragic figure at the same time. Like, I really can't think of anyone who is both of those things mm. as significantly as Rick is. Yeah. Like, he's clearly such an accomplished wrestler. And although he may not have my preferred wrestling style, yeah. I cannot deny that he is the epitome of sports entertainment. Like, he can put on such a great promo. He really understands his character. Even if he doesn't understand himself... Mm. He understands his character. And he understands how to connect to people in a building. Yeah. Be it like 20 people in a studio in Crockish doing a high-octane promo or, you know, 60,000 people in a big arena telling the story just through wrestling. Like, And the way he's managed to develop his own brand without any, like, a lot of wrestlers who understood about how to develop their own brand, like DDP, they had career in things like marketing yeah. or advertising and sales. Rick didn't have that. He was just a wrestler. Like, No, he didn't have transferable skills, yeah. really. Like, he is a product entirely of wrestling. And yet he has managed to create the most iconic wrestling character, I think, of all time. Would you say it's one of your favourite characters? Yeah, I think so. Yeah? You like the flamboyance. You like the yeah. the promos and stuff like that. Because I know Macho Man's someone who you will watch a promo now and then. Oh, still, I love Macho Man promos, yeah. I think, you... I think Rick, similarly, if if I can get better at understanding what he's saying... You'll, you'll get the ear for it. Yeah. You will. Because honestly, like, you know, I used to be able to understand a word he says, and now I'm, I'm quite attuned to him. Like, you know, there's <laughs> the different versions of flair. Well, there we go, folks. I mean... Look, if anything, this is a crude outline at best of the life and times of Ric Flair. There's so much to talk about. There's infinite matches, storylines, feuds, command and conquer appearances and whatnot. All I can tell you is that it's something we'll definitely revisit on Patreon in our How To Revisited series, which you can get access to over at patreon.com slash Wrestling. But before all that, we want to hear your thoughts because there will never be another Ric Flair. So let's go to your tweets and your Facebook messages about the nature boy now you hear the background magnum ta we've been round and round he's a great athlete he's a great competitor but in the words of many he's not rick flair and not ready to be rick flair not nearly ready to be dressed custom made from head to toe he's not nearly ready to challenge the golden stallion He's not ready to wear a $500 tie and $1,000 alligator shoes. And to say, Tony, what time is it? Well, well, Rick, there are so many diamonds around your Rolex, we can't tell what time it is. Magnum's not ready for that kind of life. He's not ready to go out into the airport and hear all the women say, Ooh-hoo! There goes Slick Rick! Now, Nikita Koloff, you dared to put your hands on a very dear friend of mine, Mr. David Crockett. For that, my friend, you not only aroused the lion and Ric Flair, but you made it very clear to me, and to the entire wrestling world, that I got to beat you. Now the whole world knows I live on that big house, in the big side of town, and I've got a big, big yacht. So, Nikita, when I get done with you at the bash, don't worry about having to leave the country. I'm going to make you my personal gardener. Because that's all you and those big arms will be capable of doing. And that's pushing my lawnmower. Now, 
because I'm looking so fine. I want all the women heading to Florida to remember, you don't have to go to Florida. You be here the 4th of July and you can ride Space Mountain for nothing. Woo! And we're back. Many of you styling and profiling, tweeting and Facebooking over on facebook.com slash howtowrestling and over on Twitter at howtowrestling using the hashtag howtoricflair. An emotive response for the nature boy to say the least, Joe. Yep. People beloved Rick, some people pointing out crazy weird problematic uncle rick uh, <laughs> lots of lots of in-betweens as well a complicated man first up from childish tycoon flair's influence on pop culture is so unique his promos have been sampled on multiple rap songs he's referenced on countless more his swagger and persona are a big influence on hip-hop he also ran for president with whacka flock of flame what was <laughs> yeah whacka flock of flame ran for president yeah with rick flair vice president with yeah with rick flair like in his corner <laughs> right so this was not like because rick flair in the 80s wouldn't have paid no second fiddle there's no, no, no way no. this rick is old flair. rick this yeah. is yeah okay yeah rick flair in the corner smiling and nodding yeah yeah i don't know why that reminds me randomly of this time when kurt angle and triple h interacted you know during the peaks of their career and rick was triple h's manager and Kirk got in his face. He said, what are you going to do, Rick? you got to smile and nod and look at Triple H as he does things. <laughs> <laughs> We've got one here from Luke Thatcher. If I ever need to assert my dominance, I'll simply take off my jacket and drop the elbow on it, just like the nature boy. Currently sat in HR again. Woo! <laughs> yeah, don't follow Ric Flair's advice. You will definitely end up in HR. I mean, we've been rewatching Peep Show at the moment, and I have an idea for a sitcom, mm. which is someone wakes up and their internal monologue has been replaced by the nature boy Ric Flair. Yeah. And they just have to live with that going on throughout in their entire life. <laughs> you know, as they, you know, go and take a poo and inside it's like, I've spilled more money on spill liquor than your house, brother. It's it's a difficult life to live. You would be broke in a short amount of time. Yes, both physically and fiscally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Next up from Wrestling Referees of Wizards. I didn't grow up with Flair and didn't see him until the Consortium promo. I thought he was a madman. <laughs> Same season. <laughs> I laugh every time he gets worked up, bounces off the ropes, or does his knocked out flops. Not sure how often he's thought of for his comedy, but he's hilarious. Oh, I mean, I think Flair is the perfect cross-section of comedy and physicality in wrestling yeah. can anyone in the same match make you laugh your head off but then also have you like literally biting your fingernails and like anxiety about like what's gonna happen next because that's the thing he's funny in his promos but he's also funny in his matches like macho man his promos are so funny like i've got such a weak spot for macho man promos but he ain't gonna like slip on a banana peel in the no, match unless his... he's written it down yeah his matches aren't <laughs> funny at all whereas rick he's so he manages to inject comedy into almost every facet of his character yeah i mean it's it's so funny we so often talk about there's like the promo wrestler and then like there's the patterns in the ring mm. and it's always the most frustrating thing when someone is like one way in a promo and then it just doesn't translate mm. like you don't buy them as being the exact same character that's why brett was good he was a boring promo he's and... a boring promo yeah but good in the ring and yeah. you know what it's making me think of is chris jericho oh yeah chris jericho has that same ability of being very funny in promos yeah. but also keeping it going in his matches I mean I, I should point out now Joey is your knowledge of Jericho is limited to those recent WWE runs yeah. and AEW Tim Heidecker Chris Jericho yeah. from hit band Dakar sorry Fozzie best Jericho 
<laughs> so yeah, it's interesting. I think some people come into that layer in their career, but Rick has always, always, always had it. And we were talking at the weekend about like drama classes and stuff like that. Because mm. you had drama if you were like GCSEs. I had to go to like speech and drama like outside of school. And I always think about which wrestlers you'd want to have to do like an improv scene or something with. Yeah. And like Ric Flair, the fucking lights could fall down on top of you both. Yeah. And he would take it and make it funny. I yeah. feel like there can be no accidents in a Ric Flair match. I'm sure like, at some point out to us, 90% of the stuff that we love is stuff that he came up with like randomly on the spot yeah. to fill a need. And I think that is a lot of it is the humour really. You think about the flop, you know, the stuff with the referee, it's, it's humour. Yeah. Know? And I think also as well for the 80s, a rarity because yeah. not many, I mean, Hogan was funny, but not for the reasons you might think. No. <laughs> and Hogan as well, he wanted you to laugh with him. Rick yeah. wants you to laugh at him, which is so clever for like building heat as a heel. Hey, how does that work with the fucking 80s wrestling Puritans, the Jim Cornettes of the I world? I know, and right? <laughs> funny doesn't make money. It makes 16 world championships and a 35. I'm sorry, 60. <laughs> But I mean, like, he's had a career that spans so many decades. And, you know, from the 70s until now, even not as a wrestler, it's through the humor. Flair's is done it with humor. Yeah. It's a big part of wrestling. Get over it, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Harry Green here. There are elements that make a pro wrestler. Career longevity, promo skills, connecting with the fans, drawing money, being able to be hated, being able to be loved, wrestling safe, being a great in-ring performer, being willing to put other people over, and simply having the it factor. To be a pro wrestler, you have to be able to do one of these. To be a good pro wrestler, you have to do a few. To be a great, you have to be several. But to be the greatest of all time, you've got to be Ric Flair and be able to do all of them. Yeah. Fucking A. Totally true. <laughs> oh, we should apply that formula to all of our past episodes. <laughs> Let's see. Sandman. Career longevity. <laughs> Promo skills. Hmm. Being able to be hated. Yes. No, yeah. he's done that recently. Yeah, uh, yeah. We hate to inform you that Sandad has been cancelled uh, yeah. for its second season. So not happening. <laughs> <laughs> Now from Little Voices Ed, my thoughts on Ric Flair. Habda reblabble in this ring between these ropes. Space Mountain, woo! I, I, I understand the, the general energy of what you were trying to say, if not the words. I love that, like, because those words were written out exactly as I read them there. And you heard my Ric Flair earlier on in this episode and how bad it was. It's, it's gone, And yeah. how much better it was when I had a script to read from. <laughs> so you tell me that Ric Flair liked this podcast as scripted joke? <laughs> Uh, no, surprisingly, Ric Flair, like this podcast, would be ridiculous to actually... It would be more work to script it than to that. <laughs> Eddie continues, He still managed to become genuine motion during the tail end of his career, not afraid to make himself look silly and still be treated as a credible wrestler, a threat to any title, and an absolute one-of-a-kind in wrestling. It's an interesting one, though, right? Because oh, you mentioned Macho Man there. My mind often goes to Stone Cold Steve Austin. Yeah. You know, you think of Hogan, you think of even Sherry and whatnot. A lot of wrestlers of the 80s made no bones and had absolutely no issue with potentially you not knowing what they were saying. Yeah. Like, think about it, the actual clarity of the diction compared Definitely to no, now. Yeah, no clarity, but so high octane. But yet somehow more understandable. Like, I know more with a slurred Ric Flair promo. It's because it's got that emotion behind it. It's got all that feeling. Yeah. Whereas I think today's promos, 
there's so much more interview style, mm. like talking down to the interviewer who's out of shot, yeah. doing these formal interview style questions. It's, yeah, the emotion's just not there. Or maybe it's just no cocaine. I, I don't know. <laughs> that remains to be, we have to get this mystery unsolved as soon as possible. Like This one here from Jesse Bones, and she writes, Not a televised moment, but I can remember seeing the trial run of his WrestleMania 24 match with Shawn Michaels at a house show at the very start of that year, and they were trying out some different things. It wasn't as good as the final version, because what could be? But it's the best match I've ever seen with my own eyes and not on TV. Unbelievable. I don't know like how many people have actually managed to see Rick live, mm. but like it's really special to have done so. I've only seen him in a managerial capacity yeah. live. Like, so that is kind of one of my regrets. I've not seen Rick ever actually wrestle. And I, I'm glad that my, my dream has never come true because that would have been very bad in the last 10 years. I would love to see Rick do his entrance. Just to come out. Yeah, I don't even care about seeing him wrestle live. I, I want to see him do his entrance live with Pyro. Okay, well that's, I mean, oh right, you have the big grandeur behind yeah, him. Yeah, it's just so special. It gives me goosebumps just thinking about it. It's so amazing to think though, like Ric Flair, you know, trying out his WrestleMania retirement match on a house show loop here, as Jesse writes, because like, Nowadays, if it was someone who was doing a big high-profile thing, it'd be behind closed doors yeah. in the performance center. And there's Ric Flair doing the house show loop, like right before his retirement. It's amazing. Yeah. Like, I don't think there's ever going to be anyone who has that kind of simultaneous status, but also expectation to work like everyone else. Yeah. Like once you get that status now in wrestling, you've got your special deal. Yeah. And that's it. Like, <laughs> Everyone's too good with their money these days. It sucks. <laughs> now from Josh Smith Poetry. This from Rick's memoir. He, Rick, would often come out of the bathroom, walk up to a female sitting on the couch, and Uh-oh. tap her on the head. Uh-oh. Only he wasn't tapping her with his finger. Ah, uh, fucking hell. Creepy old Rick. Yeah. I mean, the amount of naked Rick has got to believe that penis Rick has got to be like a, a factor out there. Sex offender Rick. It's, uh, yeah. yeah. Not everyone's a space mountainette. And no. even if they are, I don't think that necessarily means you get aligned to that attraction. If you're going to tap someone on the head with your willy, get their consent first. Yeah, even still, though. Like, I mean, <laughs> really? Like, hey, maybe maybe you're into that. Yeah, maybe you are. Uh, Joey Pitt here. That one promo where he punches himself with his ring and busts his stitches. Oh, you want me to be specific? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> now from Barely Sushi. My favourite moment watching wrestling live was when I got a babyface Ric Flair to flip me off for my Flair Fears Socko sign. <laughs> I also got a thumbs up from Mick right before that. Best show ever. Amazing. Drake Jackson here. A friend of mine took his son to a convention where Rick was doing a meet and greet. The child only knew about Rick through the 80s and the 90s shows he'd seen on the network. At front of the line, the kid started crying and hiding. I didn't want to meet Rick. When asked afterwards why he didn't want to see Flair, he yelled, What happened? He's so old! <laughs> Flair apparently laughed it off and the child has not been a Flair fan since. Oh. Man, if ever there was like an unforeseen consequence of the network, it's kids accidentally growing up with wrestlers in their prime who are no longer in that prime at all like <laughs> get a kid to watch austin or goldberg they look the same now it's yeah grand, you know? <laughs> next from goddamn i'm glam strikes me as a deeply sad man masking it with outlandish behavior especially after reed amazing performer but the teddy long story from kayfabe commentaries ruined the man behind the moniker also aspire to be as horny as charlotte and almas are for each other <laughs> yeah god i think charlotte's somehow like like inherited the general randiness of Ric Flair yeah. except instead of 
the entire North of American continent, it seems to be focused now on uh, Andradas, yeah, and all yeah. this, which is for the best. Like every time they post a selfie of them working out at the gym, I'm. It makes me hope that that's what we're like when we do Ring Fit. <laughs> I'm like that could be us. <laughs> I don't know. Ring Fit might take it down a cool point or two, <laughs> like a little bit. Like anytime there's an animated ring going, move super energetically, it makes it less sexy. Yeah. Now on the point though about I've I've actually seen that shoot with uh, Teddy Long and God yeah that one got filed to the back of the head of like do not absorb I think that is definitely worth bearing in mind Teddy Long long time referee would have mentioned him during the referees episode recently also very very long time general manager slash manager like a lot of people grew up with Teddy Long as being the authority figure on on SmackDown like for many many years he had that role. So, not necessarily someone who's got many axes to grind, so to speak, but as we mentioned, the referees never really got much of a uh, of a glamorous lifestyle, and you can imagine being a black referee in the South of America during Ooh. the 70s and 80s. Yeah. He's been privy to a whole lot of shit. I bet. And that has included just being outright called the N-word, like, constantly by top stars. And wow. he was asked it, and he said Flair was, 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 was among those people who did it. Like. Yeah. So... By all means, not like, like don't want that to kind of go by the wayside. That mm. Flair was part of a pretty prevalent and virulent culture in the eighties uh, that you know didn't treat black people very very well. I mean, should we talked about Bill Watts who was running the show, like you know, or going yeah. to run the show? That'll t- teach you the caliber of uh, of race relations at the time. But what is very interesting about that is that Rick, in his book really does go out of his way to distance himself from that culture, even though Teddy Long and others, I think Tony Atlas as well, similarly pointed the finger at Rick saying he's as bad as the rest of them. Mm. But Rick is like, oh, I was very, you know, in his book, he's like, oh, I was very shocked when I went down the South the first time, like, you know, South of Minneapolis, how how badly people were, were treated. And he tells a story about being picked up by the big O Orton, who was Randy Orton's grandfather down in Missouri. And he picked him up in a pickup truck and uh, Big O was eating a giant raw onion and an entire head of garlic at the same time. Cool. And said to him while they were driving down the road, do you like N-words? And I'm, oh. I'm just saying that. And Rick says, what do you mean? And he says, well, around these parts, we fucking hate him. Pulls the truck over, sees a black gentleman who's fishing on the side of the road and pushes him into the creek. Oh my God. Gets back in and resumes eating his raw onion and head of garlic because he's a fucking Quentin Blake illustration of a baddie like. Jesus. So again, Rick, I think, has the wherewithal to realize that how bad the culture was down there. But I don't think that just because you know you were part of something shitty doesn't excuse you and doesn't get mean you don't have to not apologize about yeah, it. Yeah, you have to apologize for yeah, anything like that. God. Yeah, you know, that's five or six years ago the promo, that interview now from from yeah. K-Babe commentaries. If you're someone who's watched a lot of the U shoots, you're very privy to a lot of people revealing that a lot of wrestlers have said and done things, yeah. you know. Is it he said, she said? Well, you know, again, I, I draw you to Teddy Long's status and position compared to Ric Flair's mm. and where the power was there. And you can make your own minds up whether or not that upsets you or not. Now from Handsprings 777, bonded with my 80-year-old great-aunt over wrestling. Wow. Discussing favourite wrestlers, I said I liked Ric Flair. A darkness fell across her face. Ric Flair, that old hook-nosed bastard. <laughs> if I ever see him on the street, I'll punch him in the face. By God, it was Ric Flair. And this is like fucking Terry Funk, it sounds like. It's <laughs> yeah. amazing. I love, 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 in this in, in the United Kingdom, it's my favourite thing, is meeting anyone old and then asking them if they liked World of Sport. And yeah. then going, absolutely yes. And then you mention, like, 
Mickey McManus, one of the hated Irish, and then their fucking blood runs cold, and they're like, yes. And we ran him out of Blackpool, and he never came back. Like, you don't see him around here very much now, do you? Like, well, it's because he's probably 90 or dead. Like, you know? <laughs> Sorry, so, so, so many of these are people saying, mean, woo, by God, Gene. Like, a number of people here specifically saying, mean, Gene is something that they, they put on compilations like that, or random nitros from the late 90s, just to hear him do that to get them out of a funk or a depression. Honestly, yeah, it really cheered me up watching that compilation. We'll put it in the recommended bonus viewing because it's, it really is. It's a lovely, wholesome little bit of content. I like, it's, you can put a wholesome spin on anything. Hit him with Bischoff be like, they don't like when you come out and you go mean jeans though. Bischoff, this is for you, you thought of it. <laughs> me! <laughs> Back out! Woo! Gee! Woo! Woo! Uh. <laughs> Do you know what it reminds me of? Some kind of like animal, like a dog or a cat, just going full on howling. I mean, Ric Flair is constantly in heat. Yeah. That could be Ric Flair's character, particularly in the 80s. <laughs> when you hear a cat out there going, Rrr! it's literally going, I've got a limousine, I've got a litter tray, a mile long, and there's six cats out there just dying for me to piss on them. <laughs> One here from Joe Blauberg. The old NWA promo where he talks about having sex with the audience, takes off his shirt and lays down on the floor in front of a very confused Tony Schiavone. (laughs) (laughs) Copy Roman here writing, Fire me! I'm already fired! I just like the idea of the gentleman from HR earlier who's in there. Just keep going full flare. Yeah. (laughs) Anyone tries to fire you, you tell them they're already fired you. There's nothing they can do about that. Like, keep it lit, like. Snowy Kitten Girl says, The greatest testament I can imagine to what a long and fascinating career the man has had is that multiple podcasts have been made about things that happened to him before he was even two years old. The man legitimately does not know his own birthday. Yeah, I mean... He doesn't have a birthday. He doesn't. I mean, that's it. I mean, he's got like a rough estimation. I think there's a day they've decided on it. He mentioned the documentary, they have an anniversary then. Which is so, so cute. What a great idea. If you've got adopted kids, what a lovely concept. I just, I love that so much. Kind of own it, like, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Last one here from Branovan Candia. Flair is the best and saddest example of living the gimmick. On one hand, he was never fully comfortable with monogamy during his run. He's happily married now, however. Felt the need to make every outing into a wild party, and as a result, he never fully knew what it was like to be Richard Flair. On the other hand, he is one of the most driven wrestlers of the past 30-plus years, as he was an NWA World's Heavyweight Champion in the days when that title holder would be everywhere from USA to Toronto to Tokyo. He would deliver killer matches and promos in any place in the world that had a camera or an audience. He was a world champion in every sense of the world. The only people in recent times who could be compared to him is Bret Hart for his similar level of travel and Okada for his epic matches. But even then, Okada is in Japan for the most part of the year. Point is, Ric Flair is a very interesting person, one of the best wrestlers ever to live. But at the same time, he has made many mistakes and questionable decisions. Ask Teddy Long. So, yeah, I think Ric Flair is someone much like Stone Cold Steve Austin who has been crystallized in pop culture with layers of like impenetrable diamond armor. Mm. And I think all of these accusations and all of, I mean, I don't mean to call them accusations to belittle them or anything, but like stains against people's character like this. And Ric Flair has many. It doesn't stick with people. Mm. I think it's kind of like 
people don't want to process the information. You could probably talk for two to three hours about, you know, that Rick is problematic and all oh, that. Oh, yeah. And I just think that Rick Flair as a person, I'm not even saying you know, Rick Flair, Richard Flair, I'm just talking about him himself and then his character and what he means to pop culture. It's bigger than him. I think he's someone who's never actually been able to wrangle his hands around the concept of himself. Mm. And I think, if anything, he maybe realises or should realise that it, he is bigger than he can ever possibly understand. Yeah, you know? totally. So yeah, a complicated man, a tragic figure who you could go from one sentence to being full of joy about to the next being full of kind of dread and anxiety. He's very like Vince in that sense. Yeah, definitely. You know? Last one here on Twitter now from Kevin Chiat. Flair is the GOAT, the benchmark against which every other world champion is measured. There are people who you can claim are better, pure workers, or money draws, but in terms of consistency over decades, no one else compares to Nate. Look at the love for Flair during his big health scare a couple of years ago. He's the wrestling community's problematic grandpa. <laughs> yes, we all love our grandpa, but we should always bear that in mind. <laughs> no, I mean, that really hits the nail on the head. It's about longevity. Yeah. That is the key thing there, and it's one thing to be... You know, a legend who's revered. I mean, you know, Hogan, and I think when Hogan had his problems in recent years, it was a real test of your standing in pop culture versus your standing as a human being. Yeah. And those two things fighting it out and people who cared more about their their childhood and their sense of nostalgia. And, their, you know, I'm not saying as a, that it's not a thing with value, but people's sense of themselves as it relates to their heroes in their childhood and people's sense of themselves as it relates to, you know, someone being kind of a, they felt like a false idol. Someone had been perturbed to be something that he was not but even still with Hogan you're talking about a 10 year run that was kind of ossified yeah Ric Flair it's 40 fucking goddamn years of memories that people have so that will kind of explain Ric Flair being in the position that he is I don't know if Ric Flair will ever kind of like when Rick dies and not to be morbid about it but like it will it will change wrestling forever yeah. um, because we will lose I think the most important link and the most like living example of what wrestling was versus what it is now mm. and I've never been one to sit back and say wrestling was a thing then and therefore it's better but I think you can argue it for lengths and lengths of time whether you prefer this style of wrestling now or what Ric Flair was offering back in the day or what happened in between they're very different they're very valuable but once we lose that link to it it'll be harder to compare those eras mm. because those people won't be around to tell you how great they fucking are yeah it's true <laughs> so a bit of a change of pace for our next episode then Joe yeah are you excited to talk about our next topic? This is someone who has been requested from our lovely backers over at patreon.com forward slash howtowrestling. Someone who has, in fairness, endeared themselves as more of someone giving hot takes online than someone you've seen a lot of in ring. It's going to be about the wrestling sensation from TNA, from WWE, and all over the world. The South Korean American sensation, Gail Kim. Woo. What do you know? About Gail Kim, Joe. Nothing. You know nothing. I mean, I know she's married like a millionaire. <laughs> she's she's well off. I know she's like responsible for the women's evolution. Like she's her tweets triggered the whole "Give Divas a Chance" Ooh, movement. We, we, we've got we're gonna have to get a cork board and some some yeah. uh, some some pictures and some wire for this. I know she called out Stephanie McMahon, which is <laughs> awesome, okay. and I love her forever for that alone. Yeah. 
That's, I think, all I know about her. Okay, do you remember her from the Awesome Kong episodes? Oh, yeah, of course, ah. yeah. She was in that, yeah. So, of course, you know, we, we've talked a little bit before about, you know, how there was a separate women's evolution slash revolution slash I don't care what the fuck you call it, I just want to see women have awesome wrestling matches. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's call it that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we talked a little bit about that in our Awesome Kong episode, and we want to shine a little bit more light on that period of time, and also the struggles and the life and times of like what happens when you are someone whose ability and your means and your your want to be recognized definitely outweighs outstrips and outshines every single company that you go into and how that goes about what it's like to be uh, essentially an overachieving woman in wrestling in the decade that has has went past us and how that's not necessarily a very easy road to navigate she is someone who I would have been introduced to way back in 2004, just like another woman for Tristratus to kind of beat. But she went along the beat of her own drum and has forged one of the most unique careers and one that is definitely worth having a lengthy old chat about. So we're after your thoughts about hot takes, matches, moments, recommendations, eliminations from Battle Royale and otherwise. Use the hashtag HowToGailKim. I cannot wait for you to see the artwork for this one. It's absolutely fabulous. And a big shout out as always to Dirtfurts. Dan Swanton, he's Dirtfurts on Instagram, Twitter, etc. Who did our lovely artwork as always. An absolutely beautiful rendition of Ric Flair. And you can check out all the artwork and upcoming episodes and all information as well as amazing articles over at HowToWrestling.com, your home for all How To Wrestling needs. And as well, if you want to support How To Wrestling, get access to a whole boatload, over 60 episodes of bonus content. Everything from little side venture series like our How To Revisited, some little random bonus episodes on the way, and most importantly, a whole shed load of pay-per-view episodes from WWE, NXT, AEW, all the way back to SummerSlam 2015, Joe and I have recovered every single one in depth. Get access to all that and more besides becoming just a $5 backer. And now if you become a $10 backer new for the new year, you get access to a mailbag Q&A with our very own Joe Graham. Hello. If you want to ask Joe anything, you can do so by heading over to patreon.com or our socials. There are links there to leave Joe a question. If you become a $10 backer, you got access to all of Joe's q Q&A's that will be coming out once a month from now on. So why don't you pop over to patreon.com slash wrestling to check it out. Or as always, you could just send a message to wrestling at gmail.com subject line mailbag and we'll be sure to get to your question in the episode. Thank you so much to all of our backers and patrons who make this lovely show possible. And until next time, where we're going to be talking about Gail Kim... Whoa, leaving the nature boy behind there. How do you feel having done that one? I don't know. It's strange. It's monumental. Yeah, I'm reminded of quite an inspirational quote from David Crockett. Ah, yes. He said something very touching about Rick. He said, I cannot imagine Rick not wrestling. That's like a world without sunshine. Oh, my God. So, Joe, are we entering into a world without sunshine? Or does Ric Flair enter into the semi-rotation of Macho Man promos of I'm feeling a bit down in the dumps, I want to watch some woo, mean by God, Yeah, I think so. Honestly, yeah, when I'm feeling down, I think some woo, by God, Gene, definitely on the on the list. Well, there are definitely hour-plus long compilations of Ric Flair wild promos. Oh, we'll, great. We'll put up some links on the on the HowToWrestling.com on the recommended bonus viewing. But have you had a good time? I've had a great time. Where does Rick rank up with you? and the all-time greats is he on a Mount Rushmore level for you is he up there now I think so yeah honestly I think 
I think this is one of those episodes that's going to stay with me for a long time. Wow. I'm going to find myself thinking about a lot. Yeah. The way he's penetrated the mainstream so significantly is just incredible to witness. It's amazing you can do that without the WWE machine behind you exactly. as well. Exactly. And honestly, it makes me look at the marketing powerhouse of the WWE and make me think, well, hang on a second. You're not doing as much as you could be doing. Like, Rick has achieved this all on his own. Yeah. You know, and he's come yeah, you've from... helped him out in later years. Yeah, mind, absolutely. But, but the, you know, the legend is the legend. The legend is the legend, <laughs> precisely. And honestly, it's just like, wow, what is possible with the thinking behind the character of Ric Flair? Yeah, it shows you the absolute immutable power that professional wrestlers can have in our pop culture. How they can endear themselves as figures of comedy, tragedy, you know, sports, whatever. Ric Flair is so many things all at once. He's, yeah, he's a problematic grandpa. He's also like a, a wrestling godlike legend. He's also one of the funniest things you could pop on to show anyone who's ever even seen wrestling. And he's also one of the tragic, most interesting, like, warranting of examination characters I think we've ever had in this yeah, show. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you'd have to look well beyond Hollywood to find people this fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you everyone again so much for all of your help. Until next time, it is a goodbye from me, Kevin. And a goodbye from me, Joe. And we'll see you with How To Gail Kim. Don't forget the hashtag next time on How To Wrestling. See ya.